Hello and welcome to another session of the Corona Committee, our session number 89. Chess moves is what we call it. Lots of things are going on worldwide and we think things are starting to move. Uh, the other side is starting to move. <coughs> there, uh, Some measures have been done away with in some countries, in England, for example, where some of the parliamentarians seem to have applauded. Denmark seems to be done with the measures. But it's very confusing at this moment, especially for those who follow the official narrative, uh, saying that uh, in Germany and Austria, it still is at full fledged, And you don't know when it's going to be finished or whether it may get worse before with that vac mandatory vaccination. I uh witnessed at least uh I, I heard when it was spoken when the belgian parliament had a hearing concerning the mandatory shots that could have been agreed on and get funded bushel was heard there pointing out his position <coughs> getting interesting questions from the parliamentarians and the impression was that they were completely disinformed. Either this was all a game or for the first times they had actually had these questions. And this is questions that our experts could have answered right in the beginning on the uh, hazardousness of the virus and so on. So very basic. It was interesting to see that many questions were asked and he had about five minutes to answer the questions. And of course, that was not enough. And now they can uh, ask the questions in written. And uh, interestingly, the people didn't get to hear the answers if the answers are given behind closed doors. So a very strange and we also addressed the short uh, duration of the healthy uh, status. In Switzerland, it's 12 months and Germany too only. Germans seem to work different than Swiss people seem to have, maybe. Well, maybe some Swiss people are here and Swiss Germans live in Switzerland. Uh, well, anyway, uh, seems to be somehow localized. So I think it's important that we look at the moves that are being made and um, to see what else may be rolling on is a new narrative coming up and we have to be very very vigilant on that whether it's not only for corona but maybe coming from a completely different side and that is what we're going to look at today Rainer. well yes the new narrative the new panic narrative and that's all it is about only with uh, fear and panic uh, can you continue to subdue population. We'll look at that, um, I think, towards the end of this session. We'll look at the ever stronger rumors about, say, an um, impending hot war in Ukraine or the uh, South China Sea. We'll take a look at Ukraine first. We'll look at that. Um, but I do believe that if we manage to disprove this main narrative concerning Corona and to explain to a large part of the um, population that this is a artificial uh, panic, uh, then the next narrative won't work because, um, as they say, liar, liar, house on fire. Before we start with the interviews now, I would like to say a few words on uh, the grand jury proceedings in German. We'll make a uh, recording in English later on. 
To make this clear, we do not believe that the US or German constitution have to be disregarded. On the contrary, these are excellent, well-designed uh, constitutions that uh, underscore human dignity. It is not the constitutions that are broken, but the system is broken, which has been hijacked by um, the system by um, by Mr. Global um, that we can't trust anymore, which will be indicated by the videos that we'll show at the end of the session. We'll start with one that shows quite clearly that the personnel that represents this system uh, will uh, take us nowhere anymore. That's why we uh, uh, will use this grand jury um, procedure that we did not uh, try to develop within the system because we can see that we will not uh, be heard um, with the procedures that we start within the system. For instance, here in Berlin, um, the two procedures that um, deal with the PCR test that they uh, use any sleight of hand in order to make sure that um, uh, we lose um, by saying uh, you have to wear a mask no matter if you have 10 certificates. We don't want to deal with this baloney. Um, this is why we have this procedure. It's a, an investigative procedure outside of the judicial system. Um, it is something that we fall back on that many people are uh, familiar with, the grand jury a procedure from the old system, which is only the basis for our procedure. We use substantive law, and we're not falling back on uh, German or British or Russian or US law. We use natural law because everybody can understand that. That's only the first step. It's a model procedure that is to help people first, help people recognize um, that they are the sovereign. Just like Margaret Thatcher uh, said, I want my money back, people have to say, I want my sovereignty back. And where we can still um, make some headway, I don't think we can make any headway in Germany. Um, maybe after the pandemic, we might do a bit of headway. But in India, in some places in the US, the people have to say, okay, you pass judgment in our name, so you do what we want you to do. You have to investigate so we can find who's liable for this uh, whole shenanigans that went on here. Alternatively, we might also say we'll leave the system behind altogether and we establish our own judicial system. There is staff available, well-trained legal experts, well-trained judges, lawyers, prosecutors who are willing to support the legal system, um, the state of law, but who realize that the existing system is corrupt through and through, just like we need our own health system, educational system, economic system that we need to establish. We also need to establish our own judicial system where uh, nothing else um, will, be, um, will allow us to make headway, and that's across Europe, really. And it's not the yaysayers who follow uh, up on any um, order. They won't be able to be creative or to investigate. They only follow orders. Um, we have uh, the more creative uh, legal experts. We only have to remember that we are the sovereign, that we are the people, and we want to 
um, give a template with this model procedure with real lawyers, real a real judge, real witnesses, real expert opinions uh, that will be heard. And just like with any court of law, if the court does its job, we will have a truthful investigation so that we get a an overall picture. And I'll do the whole thing again, over again with Viviana in English. Um, and just so that we can understand that the whole system is completely broken. We have a video at the end of um, uh, this session where one person will speak for 17,000 doctors in the US who are no longer part of the system, uh, but who are needed by the system. That's important. We have the power. We are the people. And then um, another video will deal with an army of 10,000 or 100,000 uh, truckers where Justin Trudeau is just being um, chased off the yard. And we have to make sure that we uh, don't get the impression that we have a global government now. And there will be a video with an interview with Boris Johnson. It's a week old, even though the mainstream media are only uh, spread it now, where he says uh, that all measures will be ended. How come? Well, because the people want that. But before we start, we want to give you a German example, um, exemplifying that the system is completely broken. A short clip with our current health minister, Karl Lauterbach. If you listen to this, you know that it doesn't make any sense to try to reform the system from inside uh, with the staff in um, place. That doesn't make any sense anymore. Let's see what uh, Mr. Lauterbach has to say on the matter. Well, if uh, somebody is uh, vaccinated against their will, against uh, even the mandatory vaccination leads you to voluntarily get vaccinated. You don't need to comment on that anymore. That's either a complete stupidity or um, deliberate obfuscation, i.e. Uh, when the um, uh, to, to obfuscate when the pandemic restarts, i.e. two days before the testing restarts, um, so we can't survive with this personnel anymore. I've been thinking for a number of, for some time that we should roll out the uh, juridication and uh, these are kind of uh, the arbitration courts um, where problems can be solved in, in like in TTIP or CETA. This is the kind of uh, situation. Maybe if you have a civil contract, you could submit to a certain arbitration and that is liable to apply German law. Well, we might consider this, but it would have to be a, a court of the people for the people because it, they uh, would want a um, private um, a, a private law court if, um, uh, for instance, uh, nuclear uh, power is um, uh, banned, then they want to have uh, compensation. Um, that the operators want to have compensation without hearing the people who are affected. Um, that's the thing we can't uh, accept. Maybe we can hear something about the existing uh, efforts to uh, create a uh, new system, uh, legal system um, in the US. 
I think that's a step in the right direction. I don't know if I had reported uh, about a young judge here who told me from the German Association of Judges, I think March 2021, where there were presentations made why mandatory vaccines are uh, anti-constitutional. But of course, uh, if, if they are set up that way, uh, it was constitutional, is what the presentation, and that means they're not objective in their views anymore. Good example. The system, if you trust uh, this system to be reformable, then you forget that the system has taken us exactly where we are now. This system has been hijacked. Our politicians, that was an, um, a um, hostile takeover. Um, private partnership only means that um, the government is taken over where the um, where um, there are meetings in Davos all the time and um, where you impress each other and um, it is the the governments that are impressed when they they meet with um, all those uh, apparently important people and have a, um, a glass of champagne with them so that's the important thing, not only with us, with um, enlightenment, with information, uh, towards all others, we need to um, let people know that we are the sovereign, we, the people, are those who holds um, the reins in our hands. That is the only true form of democracy. Now what we have is the opposite. This. Uh, our democracy is being turned into a totalitarian system and we have to resist this within the system and us who are capable of doing so have to establish a new system. So let's get started, will we? We'll start with Pakistan, which is um, at the end of the world from our point of view. We never heard anything from that corner of the world. And we'll now speak with Jessica and Niels. Jessica, uh, in Germany, uh, she works in the automotive industry or used to work there. Uh, she's a key account manager and Niels is a disaster and development worker. How do you do out there in Pakistan? And did the video feed get frozen? Just a second, we'll have to do uh, something on the technical end here. That muted, perhaps. And now they've gone. What oh, that's a uh, pity. Anyway, we could uh, talk about the rally in Brussels. We were, we were there, yeah. Yes, and it was a fascinating event because you can report from the stage yeah, it was <clears throat> strange. Um, we had the opportunity on Sunday morning. On, on Saturday, we were able to personally meet uh, some of the more important personalities. Well, I wouldn't, um, I shouldn't um, word it this way. Maybe uh, some of the better known um, people from the resistance, Mary Hollander, the Holocaust survivor, Vera Sharaf. It was great to talk to her. She has such a clear understanding. She has connected all the dots. Some professors uh, from uh, the medical and scientific community, um, Professor 
Perron from um, uh, France, um, um, some journalists from the mainstream who have a foot in the mainstream, but also one foot on the other side, because you can see that in the mainstream they can only report certain things. They were there. And it was important um, that we should have had the opportunity to meet with these people because that allows uh, for an entirely different uh, view. And then the next day, on Sunday morning, we had a press conference and um, another one in the, in the evening, and the demonstration was held in between these two press conferences. And I managed last minute to get on stage. A bit strange organization there, but what the heck. Uh, what does last minute mean? Uh, the police were about to dissolve the whole thing, and I was able to say something for about 40 seconds or so, but it was frightening to see how, well, how violently the police actually uh, disbanded the demonstration. But it means that we're uh, on the right track. But it also means, on the other hand, um, following up on what Mr. Lauterbach uh, said, this system is broken. It uh, needs to be replaced by a new one. We have to make sure that within the system we insist on our fundamental rights, but bottom line, it can only improve if we install something new. Both um, simultaneously will uh, bring a solution. Now, Denise and Jessica, can you hear us now? Yes, we can. Hello. Great. Hello, first of all. Just to let you know, we're in the Himalayas. The internet is kind of uh, skippy. If we fall, drop out, we'll be back. Unfortunately, if we, for, we missed the interpretation. I don't know what you, the introduction, we don't know what you've said. Well, I had said who you are, that you are a key account manager uh, from the automotive industry, and that Niels is a disaster and development uh, worker. And I wonder, because we've never heard anything from Pakistan before, what's happening there, actually. Are there uh, concentration camps as well, uh, vaccination mandates, mask mandates, or is it different? Or are you just about to be um, taken into custody because you're not wearing a mask now? Well, I would say, as far as my experience goes, I'm visiting him here for a couple of weeks. The Pakistanis in the major cities there are rules and inverted commas and the rest of the world is quite relaxed my example is we the main city the capital is a split city islamabad and uh, kabul and uh, then we went to a bank and in front of the bank there was a security guy um, telling us wear mask, wear mask, and so on. And then he went uh, there with the mask in his hand, and I told the people I have no mask, and just walked past him and uh, went into the bank. And then we were in the uh, ATM machines talking in German, laughing, and the security guy wanted to talk to me, and then he walked away. And this is what I've experienced everywhere here, whether it be a McDonald's, and when I arrived on the airport, I had to do a um, speed test. <clears throat> you are in a queue, and they're all close shoulder to shoulder. And of course, there's signs on the floor, keep your distance. But what I see here is the opposite. If you go to the second part, the Rabatindi, um, it's just a, a road apart, and the market is 
stuffed full of people. There's four people of us. We had to walk behind each other because it was all full and the rickshaws drive you over and there's cycles and traffic from everywhere and people walking everywhere. And what we see here in the cities as well is very, very relaxed. And I think nobody really believes in this. And from that side, masks, well, maybe I've seen a hundred. Uh, most of them on the floor or used to light the fires with. Are there many uh, people who are uh, ill or tested positive? Well, sick, you don't see anything of sick people. Maybe you hear a bit in the news. We don't know anybody. Our staff doesn't know anybody. We are in a village here. There's no sick people in the village. We have had no corona death at all. What about ComAid? Um, are you members? Did you found it or what's it all about? Well, I've started uh, an association in uh, Germany to accompany the work on site here, collect money that we can take up children here and uh, children who are forced to work in brickyards and uh, ComAid gives pedagogical and health aid to children, to women who can't live with the husbands who are prosecuted and so on, uh, who are killed. Oh my God, why um, should be killed? Well, for reasons of honesty, divorce, and different uh, diseases, different reasons, and this culture, people are quickly kicked out onto the road. My oh my. Well, independently of Corona, which doesn't seem to be a problem at all. So um, the rules are there on paper, but nobody um, uh, sticks to them. But the problems are quite different in that country, right? <coughs> yes. The people have different problems here. They don't care about a lockdown. Oh, you see in every hotel, restaurants, you see vaccinated only and mask only, but in the end you're not asked, asked and you can just move around anywhere. So um, Corona is only happening in the major cities and they're only very limited. Apart from that, we are as free as an old normality. And uh, vaccination dynamics, what are they like? Well, after the first lockdown and the first vaccine round was well received, I heard something like over 40, 50%, but only because the people got paid for it. It was, it paid off. Apart from that, not because they wanted to protect themselves, and then criticism started, um, uh, concerns started, and experience um, uh, people had with Bill in India, that many people died of vaccinations in the past, and now people hardly get vaccinated anymore. Well, that's super interesting. It shows that those people who are obviously more um, closely um, engaged in reality, uh, independently of how they treat women, but people who are more rooted in nature, shall we say, and those who remember what Bill Gates uh, 
managed to do there, who was actually uh, prosecuted in India, uh, seriously prosecuted in India under in criminal law, those people allowed themselves to be vaccinated, not because they were afraid, but because they were offered money. But then they started uh, thinking about it, uh, asking questions, and then said, okay, enough is enough, right? I think they have dropped out. Well, they've dropped out again. Could you Did hear this? Yes, we heard parts of it. I expose you talked about that the people were triggered by Bill Gates and that's why they don't do it anymore. Exactly. They went along with the first attempt because they were offered money and then they started thinking about it, um, asking questions and they realized again, or remember that Bill Gates is a bad person. Yeah, you can put it that way. Um, the educated people are the ones that uh, take the vaccination first and the um, lower people, the peasants, uh, simply work on their fields and they don't care about a vaccination. All right. Um, well, I imagine that the country is not part of the developed world. Will that or does that... Um, have any uh, impact on the judicial system? I mean, the, the, the doubts in the population. Is there a, a reasonable judicial um, system or is it based on people's knowledge and their rejection? There is a court, but I think that works. That looks into different things. It's very slow and the people do see, do read the signs of the time. And if it doesn't give them any benefit, they don't care. So obviously there's no possibility for authorities to uh, impose mandates on people, so people don't seem to respond to panic um, um, anymore and uh, physical coercion is not even tried because it's hopeless. Well, it is tried at some times. Uh, they threaten to fire people, but uh, the companies are depending on this stuff. Uh, the, co the companies would close down if they fire the people. So they threat externally uh, so that they can say we expressed our power, uh, but um, with bribery, with um, uh, other benefits, you can find a way in through the back door. Okay. So that um, tells me that obviously people's instinct is good enough for them to resist both um, corruption and artificial scaremongering at the end of the day at least. Um, they instinctively and based on their remembrance of uh, what happened in India in the past, um, they resisted. Yeah, I think that holds true for a large number of cases. Of course, some people are forced to get vaccinated and they do so. But overall, I think that um, that hits it. So can we expect um, some um, vaccination certificates to be falsified? Well, um, we live here. I know a story from a neighboring city. 
um, it has small alleys and you can see a copy shop everywhere and it says get your COVID certificate today and uh, I don't know what data they collect but uh, kind of you can get it in the marketplace if you want to uh, I am the you know the orderly German uh, I was shuttered <laughs> but now I started laughing at it I think it's a great joke and uh, the people I've talked to they all told me what shop they got it from who got it for them uh, yeah um, 10 minutes 5 euro yeah so that means that these 50 percent uh, vaccination quota is is, uh, is not it is it is is that the case well, well, the first vaccination was so lucrative, they were offered so much money, um, so the poor basically got half a monthly wage, so 50 euro more or less, um, so that's half a monthly income, um, um, so we're talking of 25, 30 euro, that's a lot of money, uh, and many accepted the vaccination then, but now, over the last half year or so, uh, nobody's uh, getting a, a vaccination anymore. They buy the certificate. Well, that's less expensive if they need it. Well, I haven't needed it yet. So maybe they'll ask in the capital once in a while. But here where we live, we're free to uh, do whatever we want. Nobody asks us about the uh, certificate. What we did have, we had vaccination teams sent by the WHO uh, who came to our school um, wishing to vaccinate uh, all the children in the school and we uh, told them to go away um, telling them that we don't need a vaccination. So it is visible that they try to access the children, is it? Absolutely. All schools are visited and those headmasters who say, okay, fine, uh, invite um, WHO, invite the teams, they go from classroom to classroom. Oh, and the parents, aren't they asked? They're not asked, no. Oh, oh dear. That would be a gigantic case for a massive class action. Should be done by an American uh, law firm against one of the producers. It's, this is, this is, drastic physical harm, possibly with uh, uh, lethal consequences, without informed consent, which is not given by the children in this case, had to be given by the parents. Without informed consent, we have no agreement. Whether there's a damage or not, anyway, it is a physical harm. So hopefully that the American colleagues are listening to this, that is a profitable business. Um, that may lead to the uh, producers uh, only from Pakistan be blown apart economically uh, in order to compensate the the uh, claims from the children and their parents. Well, who's pushing this there? It's the WHO who's making those vaccination offers? Well, they said that they are members of a governmental uh, vaccination campaign. So that means that these vaccinations are made available free of charge. So there's no goodies attached to them anymore, but people don't have to pay for them either. I don't know what about the vaccination centers at the moment. 
but in the private centers they are you have to pay but the teams that to the schools they vaccinate free of charge okay um, do they make a distinction between um, Pakistanis and foreigners like yourselves or do they um, are is everybody uh, treated the same way it uh, sounded like when you go in there uh, you were asked to uh, put on a mask but uh, it wasn't imposed are uh, foreigners treated differently than people uh, who are from Pakistan thing there's one thing I can talk about I went into a hotel once where we had to show our certificate I didn't have one and it was enough to say, I'm a foreigner, I came here by airplane, you can only get into the country when you're vaccinated, so I am vaccinated, and oh, okay, this this foreigner is, is okay to let him in. Okay, understood. All right. So the only problem that you have probably is the cold, because you look like you, um, you're sitting in an ice-cold place there, right? I don't think they Well, that. it's difficult to hear you again. Can you still hear us? Probably not. So in the center of the Himalayas, um, the world's roof, that's where you are. And it has to be cold there at this time of the year. Right, let's summarize. There are rules who very few are in, oh, that very few people are interested in there's a campaign that worked um, sort of worked in the first uh, part because people were offered half a monthly wage in the second part it didn't work anymore because people started thinking and they realized that a certain bill gates as far as they uh, know apparently uh, largely dominates uh, the WHO, um, is being prosecuted in, uh, under criminal law in India. We're back now. Okay, yes, um, you didn't hear any more uh, what I asked. It must be pretty cold there where you are now, right? Apparently you didn't get it back in. Anyway, we're back. Can you hear us? Yes, we can hear you. Can you hear us, understand us again as well? Tell us, how many hours behind us are you, or ahead of us are you? It looks like you're in uh, um, at dawn there, and it looks like it's cold. So many, how many hours are you ahead of us or behind us, and how cold is it where you are? Well, we are four hours ahead, and I would guess 15 degrees, maybe 10. But I, I could get, I need to get uh, shorts. Um, but it's, it's nice and warm, actually. It's not cold. And there's sun nearly every time. Well, we have rainy days as well, but yeah, it shines a lot of time, a lot of the time. I had just summarized, and maybe you can confirm if I did that correctly. There are rules, but they are mainly ignored. 
Apart uh, from that, there was a vaccination campaign, which first of all was successful because half a month of salary was offered to the people. And uh, following that in the process, if I can call it that way, a process of thinking, uh, people seem to have understood that behind the campaign there is a certain Bill Gates who, if I got it right, is uh, not of a good reputation there. People understand he's dangerous and if you follow the proceedings in India, what the criminal proceedings against him uh, for mass murder and he's uh, threatened by a death sentence there, that may have an effect in Pakistan. It's not things people know that people are aware of. I don't think everybody realizes that. The um, um, poorer part of the population only see their own uh, field, their own uh, um, animals. Many people realize it, though. Many people um, uh, are aware of this. I'd uh, take it a step further. The country is being supported if they impose these measures, but they're not imposed consistently because the peop uh, population doesn't go along, and they'd die if they uh, did go along. So externally it is um, portrayed as like as if they went along with the corona measures, but implementation in the country um, is nearly zero. There are vaccination campaigns, but mostly in the capital city. I tried to um, explain it earlier. I went to a hotel and I was asked for the vaccination certificate. I didn't have one. And I said, well, I entered Pakistan by plane and you can only do that if you're vaccinated. And everybody said, okay, yeah, that's true. Okay, you can stay in the hotel. It's interesting. It seems to be quite different from if I remember the beginning where we had Ash, the um, fashion company from Nepal, and he said that there were lockdowns in Nepal that were very strict and uh, that was at zero deaths. I uh, have been to Nepal and I know Ash from there and uh, I have uh, a great affinity with that uh, region of the world and I would expect Pakistan is just as beautiful. And I was uh, concerned to think of that because it's very precarious economic situation for many people there. And if you get closed down with zero deaths and it was massively strictly, there was students protests that were beaten up. And uh, in Pakistan, at least now, what you um, are looking at, it seems to be quite relaxed. Was that right from the beginning that way or was that a development that has uh, softened over the time? That's the development that has become uh, softened. The first lockdown was quite severe. Um, shops were closed for several weeks and uh, the police went to the streets, uh, took to the streets with um, water guns, um, forcing people back home. Um, people had to uh, go um, slink around the streets secretly uh, in order to go shopping. Um, shops were closed anyway. We were only able to um, buy food um, uh, through private contacts. So the entire 
village. Um, 400 people went without salaries uh, for a whole month. So people um, work on a day-to-day -day basis. So they work one day so that they can um, purchase food at night. And they weren't able to do that for four weeks. And um, we uh, went, we, we had three trucks come in with food um, and went from um, house to house to provide uh, food to people. So that seems to be working, yes? Yes, that's the resistance that we offer because we have uh, donors who make um, food available for people, um, for the children, um, when they need it, and that's uh, what we do here. We make sure that the uh, donations go 100% straight to the people. Uh, we can do that. That was the first lockdown. The uh, follow-up lockdowns were only propaganda or um, shows being put on to prove that they uh, were having lockdowns. So from 12 uh, to 1 o'clock, from um, Friday to Sunday, and then Monday to Friday, they were open again. And... Um, um, after 8 p.m. or so, so strange lockdowns. So bottom line, we can say after that first streak lockdown was just a show, is it? And why? how's that? Is it because the population doesn't comply? Or it sounds a bit like the authorities, the security forces had no interest in uh, um, hitting their own people. Well, the show must go on, because um, aid, uh, aid is uh, attached to it, but the people, the population wouldn't go along, they'd get aggressive, they would take to the streets, they're also annoyed about the prices that of course keep rising, and I suppose that the government is uh, damaged by it, uh, and the economy. Other protests against the measures, or is that rather uh, if the bread prices are too high, people get out and take to the streets, um, but they don't see the overall pictures and say this has to stop, that uh, threatens our basic rights? There are no protests against the measures themselves, only when prices go up or when people can't work, then they take to the streets. And is there somewhere, somehow organized resistance? Are there lawyers that explicitly said this is uh, offenses to the basic rights? Doctors who said we don't want to vaccinate or something like that? I would cast doubt on the existence of fundamental rights in Pakistan. I don't know any resistance. I don't know any lawyers who object. I do know um, people who have a good understanding of the situation um, and who, who see what's happening, but uh, nobody who re rejects it or who opposes it. Quite astonishing. And India, we um, think that the constitution is quite well designed and refined, as Deepali has uh, informed us, and there is uh, offenses to basic rights. It's interesting to see that this is very different in Pakistan. Of course, it's a different country. We see differences in the European countries as well. well it is strange. Probably um, it has to 
um, affects um, people quite severely before they uh, object. We can see it clearly in Europe, only uh, when, and it's even more obvious in your country, uh, only when foodstuffs become scarce because of the measures or when they get too expensive, then will people say enough is enough. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether people demonstrate against the measures or their consequences, it will destabilize the regime. And that's why the regime doesn't go on with it. Um, they um, keep up the show, um, so they get their um, supports, uh, their bribes, but they leave the, the population alone. Well, all right. If I understand this right, now that uh, the first uh, harsh lockdown is through and the rest is show, um, everything is back to um, pre-pandemic situation, uh, both in good and bad um, um, ways, because the situation never was good in Pakistan, but the measures don't play a role anymore. Yeah, quite right. Except from the prices that are rising, uh, creating big issues for the people. Um, yes, because the fees, the money doesn't start. I have another uh, question on supply uh, shortages. Um, is that orchestrated that certain things aren't available anymore? Not that I know of. Maybe flowers out of shop, out of the stock in some shops, but then lorries to come and refill. I can't really imagine a country where obviously there is no global supply that you become dependent on, but where people supply themselves on a regional basis, how could anyone interfere here? That shows us again how important it is to uh, build up uh, structures in your own region, your own community. They are showing it to us now. Yeah, what we are, that's what we're planning here, keeping our own chickens, supplying ourselves and um, making the people independent. Some shops have been uh, built down here in the village behind us and we are planning to keep some cows, chickens um, to supply the village and uh, this um, site has exactly been bought and assigned to that. And uh, a solar um, power plant, um, uh, water, thermal water, um, because people have this problem that there is too little gas in the winter, too little electricity in the summer, and um, this is to uh, counteract any shortages that might uh, come down the line. And um, so we are trying to provide uh, help. So I think about what do you do when uh, the shops are closed, when the power is cut, um, how can we get clean water? And with our project, we support 50 to 60 people. Is there any website that you host? Yes. It's a static website with a bank account. We are not publicly present in the, on the internet. Maybe we can give uh, viewers the possibility of supporting you. If we can get your um, contact details, we would publish them, publicize them on our uh, website. That sounds really like an excellent project there, uh, promoting there. We are working on a leaflet which I can send to you and then you could use that. All right, yeah, good. 
and we uh, write circular letters uh, describing how we spend the money and what we do to support the children, yes, like, etc. Like, like her, for example. We wanted her to say hello, but she fell asleep. No, let her sleep, let her sleep. We all need a bit of calm, a bit of rest. Okay, all right, thank you very much. That was very uh, interesting because uh, we've heard a few things from India. We have one of the more uh, important uh, judges, um, uh, Ms. Orper, who has kept us informing about uh, what the situation is like in India. It seems to be uh, a similar situation as with you, except that India has uh, progressed a bit further in terms of their legal work uh, with them. There seems to be a um, by and large functioning legal system. Uh, and independently of Corona, uh, that probably has to be established in Pakistan to begin with, right? Can I add two sentences? Um, what I was shocked most about this week, uh, I wanted to adopt her and take her to Germany, but the idea that uh, in the best of all Germanys, um, of all times, a child is more safe in its country of origin uh, struck me as, where do we live? She's three, four years old, she should go to a kindergarten, and people are, uh, children are tested and uh, thinking that in Pakistan the children are safer than in Germany, that is something for me to chew. Well, I'd say within the project, the children are safe because we really look after the children. Of course, there are many other threats in this country. We can't say the children are generally uh, are safe, generally speaking. But with us, I'd say I'd prefer to have my own children in this project than in Germany. Well, after what you've been telling us, I completely agree. Hey, okay. So thank you very much and good luck out there. Uh, have a good time and enjoy your weekend. Okay. Well, when we see it, it doesn't look that uh, easy, but it all looks so great. I'd love to go there. We'll um, come and visit when the whole thing is over. Yes, you're welcome. You're welcome to come. Okay. Right. See you then. Anyway, we'll turn the page now and look into a different direction because uh, there is a new um, scare. Uh, oh, 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 um, there'll be war in Ukraine. The West, i.e. NATO, and the Russians have been complaining about this for some time, is encroaching ever more uh, counter to uh, previous agreements and um, contracts. And it leads to increasing uh, rumor that there might be war erupting in or around Ukraine and that that would affect Europe and Germany um, is something uh, that speaks, that is obvious. So today we would like to look into this for the first time in order to get a good idea. We'll speak uh, together, uh, we'll speak with uh, Thorsten Röper, who lives in Russia, a uh, free journalist and author. And um, we've uh, received uh, a lot of uh, mails from people last week who said you have to look into this. That might be the next big issue. And then we'll hear Alex Thompson uh, from the UK. He, he works for UK Column. It is a, a broadcast in the UK. 
which is uh, co-moderated by Brian Garish. I think Alex Thompson and Brian Garish do that together. Both of them, as far as I know, um, have been working for the um, um, uh, British Secret Services and then uh, Matthew Errett again, who knows a lot about these geopolitical uh, issues, uh, will be interviewed again. We'll start with Thorsten Röper. He is with us already. Mr. Röper, everything okay? Have you heard what I just said? Yeah, I heard it all. Great. How can we, um, how would you evaluate what's happening down there in and around Ukraine? Is that to be taken seriously or is that an artificial uh, effort to push um, in the direction of a war in order to um, wreak panic among people in Europe? I can talk to that in a minute. I just heard the end of the last interview. What I hear there reminds me of of what's going on in Russia. On paper, it's all very strict, but in reality, nobody cares about it. Even we've got a fake app here. It says not uh, um, uh, fake ministerium instead of health. Uh, so nobody cares a damn. Uh, they do a couple of strict days every now and again, um, even though we have a lockdown from uh, 11 to 6, there's streets where the bars are open and uh, music are going on all night. Nobody comes and locks them. How can you explain this? Uh, is the background similar to what they have in Pakistan, that they say, OK, we'll keep up um, the show, uh, but we won't impose it because the pe uh, people wouldn't go along with it. But externally, we'd like to show that we're on board. And if so, why? Why are they keeping up the show? Well, I don't want to go to interpretation here. If I knew, I'd say so. Uh, just that last week with the book, I can just uh, state the facts. Why? Call Kreml. I don't know. And uh, uh, nobody wears a mask in a supermarket. Maybe at the till because the uh, the the, uh, the person at the till says, uh, "Take the mask." I have got a camera. I get trouble with my boss, and people simply just put them on somehow in front of their mouth and don't care, and that's okay. So. Theory and practical application is very, very different in Russia many times. And that's what I seem to have heard from Pakistan. So the people in Pakistan, it's difficult to understand what's going on in Germany. I haven't been in Germany for two years. I just hear and I can't believe what I hear. Because here, okay, it's on paper. If they do it, the first week is strict and then it gets dropped off and nobody cares any longer. Well, it's probably a question of mentality. Um, I went to a vet last week and even other people waiting in the waiting room um, in the vet's um, um, practice, people asked me, why aren't you not wearing a mask? And, and I said, okay, I have a certificate, I don't need to wear one. And then people were friendly enough. But there are other um, situations where people have been kicked out uh, of places, even though they have a certificate. Um, so this um, uh, kowtowance to uh, the authorities is probably stronger in Germany. I've never been talked to anybody to wear a mask in two years' time. Maybe the person looking at the uh, supermarket outlet referring to her boss and they you go in and they told you wear a mask but that's it but never any any fellow person on the road in the beginning i the humid i i coughed and um i i she uh, an, an old lady asked me why do i cough in the supermarket i just said i'm a smoker and she was okay 
Well, this this mentality that we have in Germany, you don't have that at, at all. Well, that's kind of interesting to hear this from Pakistan as well. When I um, think that Renato Holzeisen said, uh, talked like this about Italy as well, seems to be other mechanisms in other countries, in Belgium, for example. The case was that, uh, I don't know, it is uh, done strictly, not everywhere, but nearly. Uh, they have to close hotels, which maybe the people... I don't know if there's a context, but really, uh, I don't know. Um, in Belgium, it felt quite strict as well. You couldn't get in. But not as bad as in Germany. Uh, Germany really has a uh, special status here. Even in the US, it's not like that. Okay, in a uh, major city like LA, you can see individual people wearing their masks inside their cars. But um, if you talk to people, not with those people necessarily, but uh, if you talk uh, to people uh, down with Tony Roman, for instance, they know what's happening, particularly outside of the cities. Everybody knows and nobody um, sticks to any rules and they're not imposed either. So outside of the cities, it seems um, to be similar in um, Pakistan, at least within the cities, they keep up the show at least. And outside of the cities, nobody's care, um, nobody cares, even though you have to be very worried about how WHO, and that's someone we can really easily sue, how WHO ignoring paternal rights of care uh, commits a violation of a children's um, bodily integrity um, by vaccinating them um, in the schools. Mm. That's not uh, imaginable in Russia, right? No, 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 no way. Uh, in Russia, children can get Sputniks when they're 12 years old. They've developed a dose for children, but they are only vaccinated if one of the parents have agreed in written. So they have to come up with a piece of paper that at least one part of the parents are agree. Apart from that, the government does and tells people to get vaccinated and so on. That's the official line, okay. But uh, putting it into place is different. People are, the children are just not, not jabbed, uh, but they have to have some kind of agreement. Let's take a look at the problem of Ukraine. What's really happening there? You uh, looked yes, into yes. Um, crafts at some stage in um, great detail. Um, that is probably very interesting for uh, German and American viewers. Well, the question is where to start. Looking at Ukraine, I know that country quite well. I wrote a book about it, 700 pages, on the Maidan 2014, the Civil War. The question is where to start. It reaches very, very far back. It's a complex topic issue, quite long. Um, let me think of where to pick it up. I think uh, to make it understandable, we have to talk about Maidan. Because at that point, many people didn't notice at the time, um, believe what the Western was told, Maidan was completely uh, staged by the uh, Western countries. So the revolution um, 
which was shown as a completely, uh, uh, completely revolution here was fake unordered you can see this if you look at into it with a bit of patience it was the friendly ngos who organized it all they have to present the report and you see where they get the money from so there is internet TV stations that may show that we get the right pictures for for the daily news Presso Romanska, and when they reported later on, it said, yes, well, a third from the U.S. Embassy, from the Dutch Embassy, and from Soros, and that covered their costs. So, everything, what was Maidan, was sponsored by the West. It was a conventional putsch, so to say, organized by the West. Can I ask? That's amazing. Why don't they at least use some um, fake companies that are um, put in the middle, some middlemen? Is it really that clear? Is it that clear? They they put it in their annual reports. Who the recipients of the of the money? Is that the media and uh, apparent revolutionaries? It's like the Antifa wrote, okay, for doing this and that and that rally, I got uh, that hundred thousand from the um, from the civil services. Secret Not the demonstration. Uh, Antifa would write, I got uh, two hundred thousand from uh, the uh, um, the secret service, and my costs were one hundred eighty thousand. And that's what you can read. Um, you uh, could see what the uh, sponsors were, uh, NATO, uh, Chatham House, etc. And, and the money uh, came from Espresso and others. And they also have it in their annual reports. And you only need to read them. And um, uh, Summers uh, told in May. Um, uh, so the mandate was over in, in uh, May. Um, uh, then came the um, coup d'etat. And then Summers... Uh, um, got in front of the camera and said, of course, I um, didn't have any chance. That reminds me of a video that's uh, viraling at the moment from, from Mike Pompeo, who did a speech in the university before Corona, you probably saw that, where he says quite proudly, we calling, uh, referring to the CA, lied and portrayed and uh, robbed. That's how you do global policy? Apparently, yes, is it? Obviously. Well, so um, the, the, the story of, uh, you know, all the talk about human rights, it's nonsense. You have to see it. I, I wrote it in different, uh, different articles. You have to go back to history. The Romans told people that they have to send... Uh, the soldiers to war um, uh, because they need to take civilization to the barbarians. The Spaniards didn't conquer um, the New World to plunder the, the uh, gold, but in order to bring religion to them, uh, to those, uh, to the natives. And there were protests uh, uh, against this. Even the Catholic Church protested against um, the the. Uh, genocide there, um, and they said, no, 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 we only do that uh, to spread the religion. In the British Empire, it was civilization again. They also said we would love to uh, um, let uh, Iran have its uh, depend, um, independence, but they need, they can't self-administer. They need civilization. So every uh, time has its terminology. Now it is democracy and human rights, and you can do what you want. Um, it's the same story over again. So it was the same um, back there in Ukraine. It was externally. Um, uh, financed, and then you have to see who 
uh, got to power there. And in the uh, German parliament, um, uh, they reported about uh, the new government was um, a right-wing fascist government, and Steinmeier went there and, and uh, shook their hands. So those are at least right-wing nationalists, if not worse. What were they called? What's their name? Svoboda is their name. Okay, they didn't um, stay in government for a long time, um, but they were there. They are nationalists, uh, and in uh, Donetsk and uh, Donetsk and the Crimean, they weren't opposed to uh, the putsch because they're so uh, democratic, uh, but because they knew they're nationalists, and they will um, suppress us and. Um, uh, they have a uh, racial law in Ukraine, it's like, almost like Nuremberg. They uh, passed a law that um, creates three categories as uh, uh, of Ukrainians uh, by ethnic um, categories. Uh, category one, the uh, Ukrainians. Category two, some peoples uh, from the Crimean. And then three, uh, category three are ethnic Russians, Poles, and Ukrainians. And, and um, Hungarians. They're not even allowed to speak their own language, so as an ethnic Hungarian who lives in Ukraine, they uh, can't go uh, to the doctor and talk in Hungarian. They have a language police who can check this. They have things that ca you can't imagine, that's not even reported about. What was category two? One is Ukrainians. That, that They are the top of the food chain, are they? Uh, category two are the uh, Crimean Tatars and some others, and the rest are others. Ukraine is a, um, um, a country of multiple ethnicities. Um, in the east, you have Hungarians, Romanians, and Poles. They have the same problem. In the uh, in the east, you have Russians. In uh, Ukraine, uh, Hungarians um, won't get passports uh, for years. We uh, nobody reports about this because that would be suppression of the people uh, that you would have to report about. The Ukrainian foreign minister said, uh, uh, or the the, or the Russian uh, the, um, foreign minister said, as long as they don't change their um, um, their so policy towards ethnicities, we won't allow them to join the uh, um, Council of Europe. What's behind this? Why is this an incinerated, a staged revolution? Um, what about the West? Of course not the population, but the people at the top, as the puppets on string of the Davos clique probably, the West tries to destabilize that region? For what reasons? What are they up to? Well, you have to read Brzezinski. He was one of the most important uh, uh, security uh, advisors with uh, President Carter, and then uh, he was a consultant with all uh, subsequent um, presidents. He uh, wrote a book, The Only um, Superpower, uh, back in 1998, and he said quite clearly, the U.S., in order to maintain its global dominance, needs to dominate the Eurasian uh, continent. And this uh, involves, and this is said explicitly, you have to separate Ukraine from Russia. It's about weakening of Russia. And that's all it is about. And they managed to do that. Ukraine, uh, due to propaganda, uh, Ukraine and Russia are now separate. And that was the objective. And therefore, the war in the East um, is by design, because as long as the Russian, uh, as there is shooting going on, you can have anti-Russian propaganda, and that's what's uh, what the objective was. So uh, back in 2006, there was the Orange Revolution. That was the same story. 
Ukraine, just like Georgia, uh, they tried it with Belarus as well, with a putsch. Um, that wasn't uh, distributed in the mainstream media as well. They tried a putsch in, in Belarus, um, killing uh, leaders with riots, etc. It was all planned and was to be held on the 9th of May and was um, uncovered at the end of March. And the secret services showed that they uh, uh, filmed officials who planned this and then they were arrested. What's going on? How, how are these things uncovered? Is there more people who uncover this? No, it was a, a secret service operation. Um, the um, um, perpetrators of the um, coup were in um, Belarus um, and they thought they had found a general who was on their side and as they couldn't uh, travel to the EU, um, they went to Russia and the uh, um, the Secret Service had put up uh, cameras because the general only uh, pretended he was on the side of Lukashenko. And so um, this was filmed and um, it was a normal um, Secret Service operation. Well, that seems to follow a certain scheme. If you want to do something, you do a coup d'etat, whatever involving the military or color revolution. Yeah, just like all the uh, revolutions um, back in Yugoslavia. Um, even it's always been the same people since ever since. Well, the impression here is that you try to they're trying to well, um, with great uh, effort, but are, um, trying to push these rallies to be violent. I've seen this in Brussels now. There was people who a guy who was uh, disguised throwing a bottle, and the little fire was. Um, from from uh, uh, the waste bins was uh, started and a scooter was thrown in a couple of waste bags and trying to blow this up but the people were not interested in that it was not a group it was just a single person who tried to put things on fire literally and uh, trying to really with great uh, try great effort to escalate this in Europe now as well, that a revolution could start. No, it's a different thing. In Europe, what it's all about is to um, show the hooligans, portray them as, uh, the, portray the uh, demonstrators as hooligans. And um, now there's one among the demonstra uh, demonstrators and then all the cameras are uh, focused on him and then all the uh, corona demonstrators are violent. That's a staging for the mainstream media, yes. Yes, of course, because the uh, cameras could be trained on the uh, peaceful demonstrators, which they don't do. They they uh, film the three provocateurs, agent uh, provocateurs. Um, they don't want a, a revolution. They want to show to the public that uh, Corona deniers, whatever you call them, are all idiots. And if you want to have a, um, a demonstration, you have to do it differently. Uh, um, the um, uh, murder of uh, Moldova hadn't been um, uh, clarified. What happened really? Were they killed by their own people? Yes. You can see it. And it's all... I think you could even see it with um, in the mainstream media or in, in, um, on German TV very briefly afterwards. There was an agreement where Steinmeier, etc., were in Kiev, and they said, okay, Yankovic, uh, the president will resign, will have new uh, re-elections, uh, constitutional reform, etc. All of this had been 
um, decided, and then uh, Naidan uh, said, oh, no, that doesn't make sense, we'll have a peaceful uh, attack, great terminology, and that started at 9 in the morning, and then um, they uh, shot at the police. The headquarters of Maidan was in a um, sky, uh, scraper. Um, when they shot at the police, they didn't have any. Uh, the police didn't have any um, weapons, so they ran away. And then the Ukrainians shot uh, fr uh, at their own people from behind, in, into the backs. You could see them how they were um, hit from behind. You could see uh, with the laser pointer from what. Uh, when did they shot from? And only an hour and a half later did, were the police allowed um, to uh, um, hand out weapons. And if you look at the media reports, you can find those after 12 p.m. Uh, all the police are shooting at uh, demonstrators. That's three hours too late, and they didn't talk about the uh, start, start of the story. So there's no official... Um, examination of this, investigation of this. Um, uh, there was supposed to be a public investigation. That's not criticized by me or the Russians, but by UNHCR. I think there were 33 human rights reports by UNHCR. They have two a year uh, about the human rights situation in Ukraine. It's interesting hist uh, reading. So those people who shot their own people in that scene you just described shot the police who couldn't fight back and uh, didn't expect anything because it was a peaceful attack. These are the same people who um, are um, operated by the people from the background, one-third of John Soros, um, US, US Netherlands and US. They are financed by them? Well, yeah, we don't know for sure. Um, there are reports, rumors uh, that are well done um, that uh, some Georgians uh, were shooting there, but we don't know. There's no investigation report because Kiev is dragging its feet on the investigation. And we can read it up in any of the uh, 33 uh, UNHCR reports on the human rights situation in Ukraine. Um, it, it, they all say it. Uh, the story of Odessa is, is similar. Nobody knows in Germany. Uh, there were always these anti maidan um, protests, and they went there and clubbed them down, uh, uh, driving them into a, uh, a building, um, set it on fire. More than 40 people died. This is also listed in the UNHCR report that it needs to be investigated. It never happened. But the media don't want to report about this. It doesn't fit the picture. And behind this is the conviction of the Americans. You've uh, talked about Brzezinski, uh, whose daughter is a journalist today, you probably know. Um, this is the conviction of the Japanese that they have to control Eurasia because otherwise they lose their dominance and that means to cause as much stare on the interface Ukraine-Russia as possible, is it? It involves riot. Uh, there are two um, countries that oppose the West, uh, China and Russia, and, and the idea is to weaken these two countries, riots on the borders, um, and um, it also um, is about the reporting about the uh, Uyghurs in, in China. It's about destabilizing these countries. And from 2019, uh, there's a study that I can recommend, uh, recommend uh, 350 pages by Rand Corporation, and it explicitly states 
the Russians aren't uh, aggressive enough in their reaction, what can we do to provoke them? And then on 350 pages, they have different chapters on uh, Russia, uh, Ukraine, uh, Belarus, uh, Central Asia, etc. What we can do to uh, uh, nag the Russians, to weaken them. And the studies from 2019, I wrote a series of articles about every chapter. And 20 years half after the study, I looked at what happened and nearly everything has been implemented. You don't have to uh, watch the news, you have to read um, the, NGO, the NGO reports, then you can read about what's happening tomorrow. They obviously uh, stated, openly stated, uh, it's about the weakening of Russia. Uh, countries that are in the U.S.'s uh, uh, way of the U.S. dominating Eurasia. And Ukraine and Russia are actually uh, closely uh, tied in terms of family contacts. I know so many people who have uh, family in Ukraine. It's a very painful topic uh, because this massive propaganda in Ukraine actually has led to um, Ukrainians having um, cut off their ties to their brothers and sisters, literally brothers and sisters in Russia. It's a bit like Corona, is it? It's, if anything, it's more extreme, but the principle is the same, of course. As I said, those are people who uh, took their cars, went over um, to, to spend their summer holiday there. They cut off their ties to Ukraine. Propaganda in Ukraine is incredibly strong, intensive. And this has been going on since uh, 2017, seven years, eight years now. If you look at this a geopolitical game, a game of power and try to look into the history to get some orientation, you can't avoid stating that Ukraine and Russia are very have been very close together, not geographically only, but uh, in terms of mentality, and that this hostility between Ukraine and Russia has not been existed until the West came in, is it? It's not quite like that. So we can see it with the uh, Poles, the Baltic states, and the Ukrainians, the Western Ukraine. Is um, very complex peoples. They uh, felt occupied by the Russians and the Soviets, and they have a very strong counter reaction. I went to Tallinn by bus uh, at one stage, and I arrived at the bus terminus in Tallinn, uh, lighting a cigarette. Um, and somebody came over and said, you can't smoke here, um, go to the uh, smoker's corner over there. And I said, okay, um, uh, understood, okay. Um, I said, okay, I'm German. And I, um, and he said in English, oh, you're German? All right. Uh, Japan uh, lost the war together with you, uh, but this is the smoker's corner there. So they're really uh, excited. And we can see that with the uh, Ukrainians in the western west of Ukraine. So that means that the destabilization, which is apparently driven forward now, has two roots, is it? Yes, it has roots that, that can be built upon. Um, the reporting could have been different for the last eight years. They could have said that the Russians were all nice, um, but no, they always um, pour oil into the fire and they... Um, exacerbates uh, this. So the trend in Western Ukraine has always been there. They weren't so happy with uh, all of this. But 
Right. That wasn't all that bad. They, they, nobody would have thought that they start shooting at each other, but they were um, so um, excited um, that the, 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 the feelings were heightened. Okay, I understand. The Krim is one of the most uh, strong targets. I think that's where the Winter Games was. No, but that's that was such a. Uh, no, that wasn't on the on the Crimean. Uh, that's that's been one of the focus points all the time, hasn't it? Isn't it that uh, that Crimean was given to the Ukraine by one of the foreign ministers 50 years ago? 70 years ago, there wasn't a uh, foreign minister, it was uh, the um, head of state and um, party leader uh, Khrushchev, um, who was Ukrainian himself, and he actually simply gave the Crimean to Ukraine, um, um, but it didn't matter. It was like as if you had a village between Hesse and North Westphalia. Right now, um, the village is uh, slapped onto another uh, state within Germany, and nobody cares. Uh, nobody would care. And the same was happened within the Soviet Union. The whole thing only became interesting when uh, the Soviet Union broke apart, and the Crimean was part of Ukraine because the majority of people uh, there are um, Russians, and there was a referendum back in the 90s, and the majority wanted to join Russia. Nobody listened, and in 2014, Russia then accepted it okay. and uh, annexed it. In the context of the warfare that we've been hearing about, only if somebody is interested in telling it to us, sometimes you don't hear anything, everything's to be calm, calm and then it starts immediately. There was this uh, shooting down of that KLM aircraft. That was absolutely contradictory stories that were told it was said that it was the ukrainians others say it was the russians what can we say about this is there any clear findings on this or is it all rumors that's a tricky business i wrote an incredible lot about it um, i wrote the ukraine book as a hobby i never planned to publish it as a, as a book that was back in 2015 when it was quite unknown i wrote this book pretty fast and I um, wrote a, a chapter of 60 pages about the KLM machine. Um, that was before the investigation report was published. And when I uh, made my uh, website in 2018, I found a publisher, and it was published then in 2019. And I hardly needed to modify anything because it was obvious back in 2015, there will be a lot of discussion. There are always um, the uh, rumor that a uh, plane might have taken down uh, the KLM um, plane. Uh, the fact is the plane came down. Uh, the West claims it was the Russians. And the Russians say, no, it wasn't us. And now we have to see. It's difficult to say. At, uh, on that day, if you look at the media, uh, it happened in mid-June. If you go back to the archives, uh, Everybody uh, reported that uh, the Russians keep violating uh, Ukrainian airspace, which never happened, but that's the reporting. And the Ukrainian Air Force was um, uh, on uh, high alarm. And uh, the Ukrainians might have taken the plane down uh, by accident. Um, but, um, because they were so nervous, it could have been the rebels as well. 
uh, theoretically, it's difficult, but um, um, and there were reports at the end of May, I believe, where the rebels, rebels said that a, um, um, uh, a barracks had uh, switched sides and they had book, uh, missiles that um, were capable of taking down a plane and the Ukrainians said, no, 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 that didn't happen. And when the plane came down, then Ukraine said, okay, yes, they did have uh, capture missiles. Um, back at the time, the Ukrainian Air Force uh, was active in this conflict as well, and they fired uh, missiles as well a few days previously. And we could see um, at the time even that the rebels have these uh, ground-to-air uh, missiles. Now, the question is, who fired this uh, by accident, the rebels or Ukraine? And you don't need to consider Russians, do you? Well, the Russians are always considered because uh, there was uh, media reporting about it. But even, well, we uh, might say that the Russians shipped this thing over and then they drove off again. We don't know who shot there, who took the shot. Uh, we have to know one thing because this story is interesting because it didn't make it to the Western media again. It was, what, uh, two years uh, maybe? Uh, where an investigation uh, committee in Holland got in front of the press who said, we found something in the wreckage, i.e. the production number of the missile, but we don't know what it means. And then it took three days, and the Russians said, okay, oh, great, um, this is secret, uh, but we'll uh, make it public now. It means uh, man manufactured in uh, at such and such a date and in such and such a factory. So they know it was made in 1986 in such and such a factory and then was taken to Western Ukraine where, after the fall of the Soviet Empire, it stayed. So the serial number published in Holland points towards the Ukrainian missile. Daft story, and it was buried quickly uh, fast. Ukraine never disproved it. They showed the number in the press conference, and the Russians said, OK, uh, this number means this, the letter means that. So it's a, a hot issue. There's nothing official. Um, my assumption is that it was uh, Ukraine, whether by accident or not, I don't know. Well, you've just mentioned geopolitically the interest is, I suppose, of the American industrial complex or those who pull the strings in the background is to destabilize the Russians with the help of the Ukraine because only that way you can uh, um, ensure your own hegemonial power. And also in this South uh, Chinese Sea, there is some pressure being built up. You wrote about that. I mentioned it in the introduction. What went on there with Hunter Biden? He's the son of the current president. What happened? Well, that's a beautiful story. Right. But it's a long story, too. Maidan, Maidan is over. President uh, Obama uh, nominates uh, his vice VP, uh, Joe Biden, to be a Ukrainian ambassador, uh, Ukrainian um, uh, special envoy. And in May, Hunter Biden becomes a board member of a company called Burisma. Burisma is a uh, company in Ukraine um, belonging to an oligarch. And um, he had a problem because he used to be environmental minister and had um, 
uh, given himself uh, contracts uh, when minister, and there were uh, even uh, legal problems in London with uh, accounts being blocked, etc. And he got Hunter Biden and others, I forget the name, the stepson of uh, John Kerry, the then uh, foreign minister of the US, a former Polish president. So the who is who of the West. Um, became part of his company, and he paid them $50,000 a month. And Biden, Hunter Biden, you have to know that, that was always uh, conspiracy theory, etc. was all bad. Uh, Hunter Biden was um, incapacitated at the time. First of all, he didn't know anything about this business. He was also um, a drug addict who was on crack, and he was stoned. I think over the five years that he worked for them, he was in Kiev three times there, um, got the money and never did anything for it, but bad um, conspiracy theory. And now he publishes uh, autobiography and he writes himself. He uh, writes about his crack excesses when he was in uh, with Burisma. So money uh, changed hands. And at the same time, Joe Biden uh, exerted pressure on uh, Ukraine. Um, to uh, fire the uh, prosecutor who was prosecuting um, the company, um, and it was declared that he, this prosecutor, was corrupt, that he had to be gotten rid of. And I have to jump ahead a bit now. Um, uh, phone uh, conversations were published uh, subsequently between um, uh, Joe Biden and um, the um, uh, the president Poroshenko. And um, uh, Biden said, OK, this man has to go. Um, and Poroshenko said, I, I don't mind, he's not corrupt. And Biden said, I don't care, he has to go. So he had to go. And uh, Joe Biden actually tells it to the uh, Council of Foreign Relations, where he proudly uh, um, said how he fired the son of a bitch when he uh, went to the Ukrainian uh, government. And he said, uh, um, Ukraine said, okay, we won't um, fire them. And um, then Biden said, okay, you won't get the next billion. Um, and um, the president said, okay, um, you're not the president. And, and Biden said, okay, call Obama. Um, you won't get the billion. And there's evidence for this. That, right? That's what Biden said himself in front of the Council of Foreign Relations. He said it himself. Right. And. Um, so they uh, shot him down, and then they had to ask who will be the next uh, um, uh, public prosecutor. And um, uh, this, the, the new fellow was Luitsenko. Uh, they first had to change the laws. He's not even a legal expert, uh, this fellow is. He is an electro electrical engineer. Poroshenko uh, managed to do that. Biden was happy, and the money was paid, the billion. So uh, Lukashenko uh, was the uh, public prosecutor um, in chief, and um, the uh, prosecution of um, of the company of Moroska was uh, discontinued. And then it was interesting when a new president was elected in 2019, because Poroshenko uh, didn't have a chance to be reelected, and. Um, um, uh, uh, Luzenko uh, got afraid. Um, he started uh, singing. He went to the press, giving interviews, uh, saying that I have a no-touch list here. The American ambassador gave me a no-touch list um, of people that we are, or companies that we're not allowed to investigate. And the moment um, that was um, published, 
When this became uh, known, then um, Giuliani started looking into Ukraine, and then this became uh, came to light, and Poroshenko determined uh, um, who mustn't be investigated. Uh, as soon as Poroshenko was uh, voted out, um, the um, investigation against um, the company um, Poroshenko was open again, and more money was flown. There were. Um, uh, this is um, something that is on public record. Money was flown uh, during the time of Burisma from uh, the Baltic States via Cyprus to New York to a company called, well, I can't remember the name right now. I forget the name. I forget the name. Anyway, uh, a company in the US, a, a consultancy uh, firm. Um, but um, um, some of the staff were Hunter Biden again. What was the target, the objective of that company? Well, I don't know. Uh, one of many companies um, uh, where Hunter Biden was active. But um, they got the money from uh, Burisma uh, for consultancy, 16 million. At the same time, Papa Biden ensured that uh, prosecution was uh, suspended and um, discussions um, became published, and I know this person um, um, personally. That was Alexander Burishenko, the right-hand man of uh, Poroshenko, who um, held these uh, discussions. He published one, it's all on public record, where he was sent by Poroshenko to negotiate with the owner of Bur um, Burisma because Poroshenko threatened if you don't pay now, I'll uh, unleash the public prosecutor. That was at the beginning. So Burisma, every month, gave uh, gas uh, free of uh, charge worth $1 million every month. And he said, that's too expensive. So uh, Boroshenko sent uh, Oroshenko um, as a negotiator and um, um, Burisma said, okay, um, he'll make a one-soft payment of 50 million and then you leave him alone. Boroshenko said, that's too little. And then came the moment where this fellow, the, the owner of Burisma, uh, who uh, negotiated both with Hunter Biden and Joe Biden, and they were happy with the 50 million. And then uh, Joe Biden uh, told um, Boroshenko, don't touch. What sum was uh, that of the free gas delivery? One million dollars. And then they got out of it with, uh, by a one-soft payment of 15 million. 15. Oh, five oh, okay. Well, Biden took it. <clears throat> and uh, so it's uh, quite a story. It's so long, everybody told me, you're stupid, you're crazy. I took this, I said this one and a half years ago. Olyshenko gave that in an interview. What, how does the Ukraine gas supply work? Well, the gas flows through the Ukraine to Europe, the Russian gas. And after the Maidan, the Ukrainian government said, well, we're not going to buy gas from the Russians, we buy it from Europe. So you know that Europe doesn't have gas to sell. So what happened? There were um, uh, letterhead companies built 
ordering the gas from Russia, so it was sent down the down the pipeline. Russia, uh, Ukraine took it off, and that Hungarian company switched it down to uh, European gas. So it's virtual reverse. And that's what they did. And these uh, letterhead companies just uh, got hundred dollars for thousand cubic meters of gas, just to relabel it. Fantastic business. Lots of people got their hands warm in that, and it was observed by a so-called Amos Hochstein. He was the Energy Council of Joe Biden, fifth Vice President Joe Biden. So he sat on all that money. Amos Hochstein today is the uh, special um, attaché for North Stream 2 today, and he it was important to have the NAFTA gas, and he bought that, uh, giving the money, and uh, got the money back from Ukraine, the higher price from the consumers, and that's why the boss of Nastok, Naftogas, was, was of guidance people. So, he couldn't kick him out. Just uh, hold it a second, uh, Mr. Ripper. I have to understand that well. What about this redeclaration of gas? How did that happen? That was a bit quick uh, just now. Um, uh, can can you go okay. through it again? I'll take you again through it slow. Ukraine is not buying gas from uh, Russia. That's official policy. It buys gas from Europe, but Europe doesn't have any gas. So that means I start a company in Hungary which orders gas from Russia. That gas goes through the Ukraine to Europe, but it doesn't get there because Ukraine picks it up first. And the gas supplier, Naftogas, who takes that gas out of the pipeline, doesn't buy it from Russia, but from the Hungarian company. And the Hungarian company earns $100 by uh, selling it officially from Europe. So um, they get a cut out of this. Billions. Take the European gas consumption, uh, the Ukrainian gas consumption, uh, by a thousand cubic meters, uh, by hundred dollars. It's a couple of billion dollars. And all of this for geopolitical uh, reasons. <clears throat> it's just making money. It was split up in the Ukraine. The gas transit issue, redeclarating a gas, was Biden's business. Biden's energy consultant, uh, Amos Hochstein, sat on all that. And he was on that. So he controlled it. The fracking gas of the Ukraine is an interesting story. That is up to Soros. How did they? Well, quite simple. There was a special attorney set up in the corruption scandal because it was so controllable. And the Ukraine uh, started the NABO, National Anti-Corruption Bureau of the Ukraine. So a special attorney for corruption with a great benefit, which haven't uh, started a single case yet. But for that, their boss is someone who is fined for corruption. So he knows what that is. That was an instrument. So that means if someone came and said, look, I, do, I like your company and I'll give you 10 million for it. He says it's 100 million. No, it's only 10 million. And if you're not interested, then the NABU will come. That's how it works. That's uh, mafia methods. Purely, yes. But that's how Soros got in his piece of the uh, slice of the cake. But all of this is known. It's just not known in Germany. And this Biden fellow, is he 
uh, behind all of this, or he's only a frontman for other um, people behind him. Is the vice president of the U.S. and he got all of. He's fully corrupt. All of his life story. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. This this is this is just one example. But even though um, um, he um, got on top of this, yes, but nevertheless, we have to imagine that even if it says uh, Biden on, on front, there's another 10 people behind him uh, holding uh, out their hands. Well, of course, Biden's not deciding anything. Biden just, uh, you can read this, Politico wrote this, all public, it's just not reported in Germany. Biden started his career at the beginning, he... Uh, his brother had nightclubs and so on with uh, with um, benefits, and then a bank um, financed uh, Biden's running for office for congressman or something, and uh, they uh, funded it um, and um, got Hunter Biden as a consultant who was an alcohol addict at the time already, and then. What's the term if somebody get, goes bankrupt? Insolvency? Yes. Now, this is changed in the sense of the bank. And then there were stories where Biden already was vice president. Great story as well. And Biden, when Biden went in for something, he always got his brother or one of his sons in. They were always consultants. So it was always done with the consultants. Uh, family Biden and Biden did the laws. A uh, good thing was Iraq as well. There was a program, Obama said, we do 100,000 flats in Iraq. And they uh, took hundreds of one and a half billion, I think, uh, I think, and ordered an American country where accidentally one of Biden's uh, brothers was a uh, consultant to do the program. They're not a symbol, not a single flat was built because the money just uh, vanished. And that's the red thread through Biden's career. Who got this 1.5 billion? I'd have to look up the companies. Uh, the com but a company owned by the uh, by Biden's brother. No, it, um, a company wanted to have it and, and they uh, turned Biden's brother into a consultant. It's always the same way with Biden. Uh, China, same thing. Biden goes to uh, China um, uh, to discuss something and on the plane with Air Force Two is his um, son, Hunter Biden. So uh, all of a sudden he becomes a um, um, shareholder in a Chinese uh, bank. Uh, that's always the way uh, Biden does it. It's it's a, an endless list. It's really funny. Uh, it's really fun to read. And um, I, you can read it up. It's um, uh, something that the American media used to report about it before uh, the uh, election this, campaign. This is really important. We've all heard these rumors, and or as rumors, and we all know that Rudy Giuliani tried to get into this, others as well, uh, from that environment. And uh, I'll tell you a story about Giuliani. How, where did they go? Well, okay. Uh, for Germans, the names are difficult. Oh, no. um, Lusenko, in 19, starts to tell stories to the press. And from then, Trump got suspicious and got Giuliani as to, to clarify things. And <clears throat> then we got this Olyshenko, the 
consultant of Poroshenko. Uh, Poroshenko uh, quarreled with him and fled to Germany, by the way. And then they get into contact and say, look, I got a number of videos and uh, audio of these phone calls. And a couple of others came in, and the plan was, it was the um, uh, the uh, uh, proceedings against Trump, and um, they said, okay, we'll do a live and have all these Euro-Ukrainians um, live with their documentation, where it says, look, here quite clearly Biden and Poroshenko talk about how they fill their pockets. And now Olyshenko is in Germany. Who, who was so he? What was that again? He was the former right hand of Poroshenko who provided all the tapes. And on 1st of December 19, he was to go to the US to make his statement. And then Trump wants him to be invited to get the visa, but the American embassy in Berlin doesn't give that, so he has to go to Budapest to get the visa. Okay, he gets it, and then three days before leaving, he got uh, he is arrested by the German police um, because of some point. Uh, he goes there and says, "Look, I'm here. There was, um, by the way, you are arrested. There's no nothing against you, but you are arrested." So Olyshenko was arrested and kept uh, for six months in arrest. Uh, the maximum amount of time, six months. That was in 19. But Trump had left office then. Oh, he was. That was uh, the end of his... Yeah, he still was in office, all right. And in that sense, they were going to go to... And the German police arrest him with an international search um, arrest warrant? Well, uh, he was, uh, a German court in 2017 said, don't do that, there is political, um, it's not approved as political refugee. And then Poroshenko, um, before the election in Berlin, he, uh, in Ukraine, he went to Berlin, talked to Merkel and went back home. That was in April 19, in June 19. The Attorney General again issues a warrant again based on that uh, agreement, which was dismissed by a German court. Now the, it's there in the drawers, and nobody goes there and arrests him. Although he lives in Germany, they could. And when he used to go to the US three days before that to publish his tapes, he is uh, summoned to the police and arrested. So, that so the the arrest warrant that wasn't executed was the one from Ukraine, and the one that was executed was an American one. No, no, that was German. It was a German warrant. That's more interesting, even, <coughs> because the Germans have no interest in the whole thing. So somebody must have ordered them to do this. The Germans have an interest. In, interest. Uh, Merkel was against Trump and for Biden. Take it as you like. I don't know if she got a command. The point is that there was this request for extradition that was rejected by a German court and then suddenly again by the prosecution general, prosecutor general 
an arrest warrant was issued, which is in a drawer for half a year, just in case, and then it is taken out and executed three days because he leaves for the U.S. But, uh, Mr. Ripper, it's uh, interesting, and this is not only interest of Merkel, I don't think she, what role she plays, it's in the interest of the Americans. Of, of course, it's clear where it comes from, but the interesting thing is, we're all lawyers, um, Olyshenko, he never saw a judge. He was in um, um, arrest um, for half a year without seeing a judge. That's a maximum uh, duration uh, in Germany. Uh, Olyshenko is a uh, sportsman. He uh, participated in the Olympics. He was given pills in uh, court um, uh, because I said um, um, arrest um, is, of course, um, uh, stress. And... Um, his lawyers um, imposed with a lot of um, uh, effort to get him to a hospital, um, and his uh, lawyer is Gauweiler. Gauweiler? Um, well, we could ask him. He is obviously, as one would have to be impression, is on the right side in this game. Well, uh, Olyshenko is his uh, client and uh, Gau um, uh, fought for him. I don't know why, um, but he's his lawyer. Uh, so um, th there was reporting about it, but only in the local news in Germany. But I can uh, show you uh, a list on um, uh, uh, this. This is not um, uh, fantasy. Politically, very, very uh, important. That's why we invited you in the first place. Of course, it's uh, important. As I said, Olyshenko uh, uh, flees from uh, Ukraine because he fell out with Poroshenko, goes to London, and the CIA and um, NSA come immediately and they say, we know you have some uh, recordings. And he said, yes, I do. And he showed them, and um, the FBI was uh, um, more than happy. FBI goes home and says, we have um, rec records that show that uh, Biden... Um, is involved in Ukraine, and um, then the, the White House uh, stops so, the FBI. So the White House under Trump wanted to address this. But Trump didn't know about it. Trump only uh, learned about this when uh, Olyshenko went to the press. Uh, from 27 to 2019, Trump didn't know what it was all about. You don't know either. <clears throat> Um, you, you have to speak the language of the uh, countries. It's all public. Um, um, it's not secret, but if nobody okay, tells you, on, if yes. you don't speak Ukrainian or Russian, what Trump didn't know either, the ambassador in Kiev installed by um, Obama, he didn't replace her. Um, Trump didn't touch her. When did he fire her? In April of 2019, when um, those things about Luzenko, etc., became uh, apparent. That's when he fired him, because then you realize that he had been had. And uh, this ambassador um, became one of the most important uh, witnesses in the investigation um, um, against Trump. Um, what did she have against him? Well, he didn't like me. He mocked me. That was this uh, lady. He left her there for two years because he didn't know what was going on in Ukraine. He didn't know about it. Oh, dear. Well, Mr. Roper, that was, that was a big chunk to bite. 
very, very deep insight that we've got. Uh, you have to send us the links that you think that are important for us. You have to send them to us. I can tell every reader, uh, go to my um, website, um, antispiegel.ru, and go to Biden links or Oleshenko. You'll have dozens of articles about it. I wrote a lot about it. Well, just to... To uh, basically, it's so corrupt in so many places that uh, you could just start something there. Kiev, Zelensky, don't go. Uh, doesn't go to the loo without the U.S. knowing. They are completely dependent. The whole country on the U.S. You could blow this up any time, couldn't you? They can. Well, that's what's being done. We had it last April. What happened? Biden. Uh, another funny story uh, to conclude. Uh, Biden um, takes office. First act, Olyshenko, i.e. Um, the uh, the person who has the records, is uh, put on the American sanction list. Second step, the foreign ministry, the um, Department of State, um, gives um, um, uh, awards for people uh, who have help the U.S., um, a Ukrainian prosecutor general uh, who uh, shredded the um, um, Burisma um, uh, files. You can't look at them anymore. They're gone. Three weeks after um, Biden assume, takes office. So that's really funny. And now you said that the the coup d'etat story at the time was published, and it was stopped. Then that that white Russian, that Belarus uh, well, thing it didn't work. Um, the the putsch um, didn't happen because they arrested the putschists. Okay, so but what can we do apart from what we are doing already to expose this? That these are topics that are going on in Ukraine and Russia. What else could we do to stop uh, another pseudo-escalation of war or, or whatever? Well, good question, uh, how we can take influence. I think, Mr. Roper, the most important thing is to expose this. That's what Ernst Wolf tells us with, uh, in the economical context, which uh, also is to uncover structures that have not been known. And it's obvious that the only thing that helps is to make this public so that the people can understand what's going on. Then they will also understand that, in truth, there is no conflict between Ukraine and Russia. But it's one, at least in this case, after what you've been telling us, we're going to go into more depth of that in a minute is a staged conflict which has a certain basis but that has been blown up to right excess and uh, because geopolitically there is a global hegemony trying to be obtained by the UK by the uh, US well Ukraine is a plaything um, really um, it's being exploited um, in last April, um, just under a year ago, there was reports, uh, oh, the Russians are attacking, um, they'll soon uh, attack. That didn't happen, um, but it was needed, and now they need it again. We have to ask ourselves, um, there are nationalists um, in charge in um, Ukraine. They would like to fight. They would like to take the Crimean back, but the problem is 
the Russians then will attack. The Russians won't allow Ukraine uh, going into uh, the Domas region. Um, look it up on the OSCE. Uh, the OSCE has published uh, reports, and it's not a Russian propaganda organization. OSCE writes 75% of uh, civil um, victims of um, people killed, civilians killed, are due to uh, the rebel army. OSCE report, um, they regularly report about it, and it's on public record. And the Russians say you can't um, um, simply bomb civilians, and if uh, Ukraine um, attacks Donbas, the Donbas region, the Russians will go in. And it's amazing that the Americans keep uh, stopping um, the, the, the Ukrainian government. Um, they do it every nine months and escalate the whole thing. Maybe at some stage in um, Kiev somebody uh, runs amok and they actually do attack. Well, I, I only see exposure as a means. Well, that's what I do all the time. Every day I write about it. Um, I'm one of the few people who speak about it in uh, Germany, who report about it in Germany, because I speak the language. I know this. I write a lot about this. Uh, I probably have written a, a thousand articles about Ukraine. It's a topic that I deal with very intensively. That's what I do. As I said, it's uh, shocking to see what the German media keep under wraps. Yeah, I share that impression, but it's not completely new. This is, I've, it's always framed, but I've been watching this for years. All that uh, um, uh, resigning of the office against Trump, that uh, all the uh, witnesses, this woman, Jovanovic, yes. But it was always framed in a way saying that they tried to nail Hunter Biden down. But if he really plays that role, uh, Joe Biden and his family made a lot of money with him, isn't it? Yes. Even if he pretends like, uh, if we pretend like we don't have the public record, uh, Hunter Biden was Burisma from 2015 to 2019. $50,000 monthly uh, wage. That's official. And then read his autobiography. He wrote himself. And from 15 to 19, he was on crack on alcohol. And not able to do business. Yeah, it was completely out of it. You can see it's true. And then the consultant company um, of Hunter Biden and the stepson of John Kerry get 16 million and so on and so on. That's not individual cases. That seems to be a system in this. With Biden, it is a system, yes. Uh, the corruption permeates his old career. This man is so corrupt. If the Russians say, uh, you have a corrupt, uh, we have a corrupt country, and I say, yes, that's true, but you're only uh, um, starting, you're only learning about corruption. Look at the US. Mr. Ripper, thank you very much. It was again a shocking um, experience to talk. Uh, we're going to drill down in detail with our two next guests. If you're interested, stay online. You can listen it later on. No, I listen in. I don't know. Um, maybe during the discussion, I'll, I'll uh, uh, get involved. Um, I'll switch off the camera, but I'll keep listening. And I'll send a few links to Corbin. Okay. Incredible that these people 
don't get enough out of this way. How do you have to think to get, go on and on and on and on with all that so recklessly? What, what do you do with all that money? You sell your soul for money? You have more than you can spend already? I, I don't understand it either. But if that's the way it is, well, I said um, I've kept thinking for 15 years um, in the courts, something's wrong here. It's not about money, it's about careers. Either you make a career, but you only will if you uh, fulfill our um, uh, interests. Um, and of course, the interest that you're representing is not um, the German government, but the people behind it that we talked about now. All right, so let's see if we can um, even uh, cast our view a bit further and speak about uh, with Alex Thompson. Alex, ich weiß, dass mein Kollege. That's right, uh, Rainer. It's, it's been eight years now, nearly nine years, since yeah. I started cooperating with UK Column and as a former British intelligence officer mm -hmm. who now lives in the Netherlands, as you can see from the backdrop behind me. <laughs> I have an interesting perspective on what you could call Anglo German Russian. Uh, geopolitics, yeah. the most complicated geopolitical question in the world, I think. And we want to hear that because I don't know if you uh, did you get the translation of uh, what I, we I listened. Oh, you spoke, I listen you speak to Thomas German, live. Uh, yes, I do. I, I'm in fact a former transcriber of German and Russian at British Intelligence GCHQ, and I'm now an interpreter out of German and Dutch as well. So I listened to Verba live, and uh, I've also read his books, and especially Zit ihr was ihr angerichtet hat. That, that was really quite a, an eye-opener for me. And what do you think? Is that, uh, is his analysis correct? It is spot on, and it made <laughs> me think of the uh, situation nearly 20 years ago now. I think of, it's 20 years ago this year, that I was one of the junior members of the British intelligence delegation to Langley to talk to the CIA about Russia and the former Soviet Union. And these themes were already present. Leonid Kuchma was president of Ukraine back then. And the CIA, NSA, the British intelligence agencies, MI6 and GCHQ, already then were extremely interested in the petty rivalries between the oligarchs in eastern Ukraine, the aluminium magnates, the coal, the coal bosses, and how the, these guys are very suspicious. Uh, they are always trying to get one up on each other to, uh, to, 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 to rival each other in business. And this has proven very useful in former Soviet politics and crime, which are closely linked, as you very well know. And it's a, it's a pool in which British intelligence in particular and the, the US have fished in order to exacerbate, to exaggerate these rivalries. Uh, so we keep getting, or we, even 20 years ago, we kept getting indications that one or other of the big metal or oil magnates was going to go over to the pro-Russian side or to the pro-Anglo side. This was basically the, the chief task of Anglo-American intelligence with regard to Ukraine. In some ways, one of the main ones for the whole former Soviet Union, uh, because the, the petty rivalries that they are, they are like mafia family squabbles to the insiders. But to outsiders, they can be uh, leveraged. They can be instrumentalized to cause conflicts if there are outside reasons for wishing to do so. Um. There's one thing I'm, I meant to ask you um, before we go deeper into this story. Um, there is one of the scandals, one of the scandals surrounding Trump was a, I think it was a dossier by a former British intelligence officer 
who was a personal colleague of mine, Christopher Steele, who was the head of the Russia Steele. desk at yes. GCHQ, 2006 to 2009. I travelled with him to Langley on some of those. Uh, they're, they're every six months, usually, the British intelligence delegation goes to the CIA or they come to London. Uh, and interestingly, the CIA usually then goes straight on to the Bundesnachrichtendienst. They're probably not supposed to tell me that, but one of the officers said, we talked to you, the Brits, and then we talked to the Germans, and they're the only serious people we talk to in Europe. So Steele, I, I thought at the time, was simply rather over-enthusiastic. He was always fishing for details of rivalries between oligarchs in Ukraine and Russia. Really, for what it's one cultural zone, certainly eastern Ukraine and Russia. Intermarriage uh, takes place between the mafia bosses who become the oligarchs. And even then, he was seeing how he could use those connections so that he would have an address book for his what turned out to be his subsequent career like most retired MI6 guys who do this kind of thing, touting his connections to write private intelligence, in his case for Orbis Business Intelligence. But the uh, the director of my old agency, uh, this is after I came to the Netherlands, of course, but the director of GCHQ, Robert Hannigan, was, was caught up in this and resigned very suddenly after Trump's election. Although, as usual, in all of this question there are there are some claims which are too good to be true too lurid and too sensationalist you should always be careful about documentary claims but that the the general tendency is is quite right the brits used their contact in american intelligence to try to get rid of trump because of the uh, issues that thomas roper has just masterfully outlined uh, at uk column in fact we were in fact about the only people to cover the question of european military unification in the last five years, particularly how it was in Britain's interest since 1947 to, to pursue that policy. We've written a number of articles that you can find on ukcolumn.org about that. And uh, one of the points that we made then was we showed footage of the think tank, the Royal United Services Institute, the military think tank in London, where a guest speaker from the European Council on Foreign Relations, so Soros has set up a CFR in Europe as well, uh, named Nick Whitney, gave a speech in which he said, Trump uh, Trump has now been elected, we can't stop it, but if he cannot be house trained, then the British and French need to give the European Union their nuclear deterrent. At the same time, Deutsche Welle started proclaiming in English, it is time for the British nuclear arsenal to become effectively a, German, a joint German asset. Uh, that's not in the interest, I know Germany very well too, to know that nobody in Germany wants that. Uh, it's it's in the interest of a small faction of your power-crazed elite. If we could put it in very general terms, I will never be able to be exhaustive today, but just stop me and ask questions. The general tendency since both world wars is that you have a problem to tackle in Germany itself with power-crazed individuals. You very well know it. Basically, the way they have gone is some have decided they will cling on to the Anglo-Saxon domination of the world, such as it still is, and go with that. And then we get claims about the, the so-called Souveränitätslüge, that Germany isn't really independent, has some truth to it. Okay, Another faction is more continuation of the Third Reich, but they're not interested in Germany territorially. They're interested in owning technology, intellectual property, blackmail and control over Anglo-American politicians and deep state figures so that they can bring about, uh, in some sense, a continuation of Third Reich objectives particularly with reference to Ukraine and Eastern Europe. So there's basically, you have two lots of evil guys to deal with in Germany. One uh, masquerades as, as uh, allies of the Anglos, and the other basically tries to steer the Anglos behind the scenes. Um, may, may I ask a short question, Alex? Um, if you're not against, it's Thomas. Um, I would uh, ask 
the uh, guys here to give me your contact or you take mine. I would like to talk to you afterwards. This Most certainly, yes. Okay, thank you. Very I'm, glad I'm, to out, to you I'm out again, I'm listening. Just, okay, thank you, and I hope I get the content. Good. Alex, say that again, please. Uh, we have two lots of evil guys in this country. One masquerades as allies of this Anglo-American connection, and the other? One chooses, one chooses to go the route of German party politics. And, okay, the, the, the documents the, the, are false, but the claims behind the documents are right, that Germany is not fully sovereign, mm -hmm. and the power-crazed minority in your political system jolly well know this, and they get to the top of the city or the, or the SPD, knowing that if they get into the Kanzleramt, they will not be able to exercise, for example, a policy of neutrality towards NATO. They, are, they will be obliged to take part in every NATO exercise and provocation. That's that's part of the price of uh, in, in business. They talk about the cost of doing business. You know, that it's a deal with the devil. And they uh, we see the same in the Netherlands as well, but uh, more particularly in Germany. So uh, those those figures uh, prefer to play along with NATO to meet CIA, for example, to to talk about Russia containment and carving up the Ukraine. The other group, and this goes back at least to the Maison Rouge meeting in Strasbourg, when Martin Bormann, who was Hitler's handler by that stage, could see that Germany was going to lose the war territorially. Um, they agreed with more particularly the City of London figures uh, that give us a year's time to get our assets out of Germany, some of which came back and is effectively the cause of the Wirtschaftswunder. But these guys are no longer interested in the territory of Germany. It is analogous to... Uh, how Britain decided to continue its City of London financial empire even after the United States was clearly top dog at the end of the First World War. And America too reached this point in the 1990s. You know, I think that Catherine Austin Fitz spoke about the manager of a California pensions uh, provider, I know you lived in California, who told her in 1997 that the bosses have decided to abandon the country. In other words, maybe they'll live there physically, but they will extricate their wealth and their intellectual property and their blackmail network, their, their, their compromat, so that that can operate statelessly. So that's basically, for short, you can call it the Third Reich continuation arm. And these guys often are, are loyal to some idea of the Third Reich, even though they may not be necessarily German citizens or live in Germany anymore. And they're not interested in the political level. So what would happen if like Merkel or other people just would not have played along? Like what what concrete? So the NATO would have come in and said, uh, or like they would like pull the, the plug from the financial system or like what do you think is the threat in the... I think that the, these, these threats, the power of them is that they are so breathtaking that they tend not to have to be put into practice. It's enough to, to just dangle the idea in front of a German politician that you might lose your NATO membership. Uh, it doesn't need to be in a single document. The so-called Kanzlerakte is probably a gentleman's agreement in 1949 that when the Bundesrepublik Deutschland was set up, the chancellor would check everything with the allies. Uh, NATO policy, uh, vetting the members of mainstream political parties, uh, keeping the gold in the Federal Reserve. These are probably gentlemen's agreements, and the documents that come out are just uh, bad forgeries that came out in the 1990s. Yeah, but I don't think so. I, I think it's probably it's probably just uh, just a mistake. Uh, it doesn't, at least to our guys here, it doesn't look as though this is a a real yeah. attack on us. Okay, are we on that no. again?
So we're, we're going to be online uh, any second. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so we, we, we're back up again, it seems. We're not quite sure if this was like a sort of a an attack because of content <laughs> or if it was just a technical coincidence. Let's just go for the coincidence theory right now. Yeah. Okay. Um, can we there's a, there's, I think the, the translation is going... Can, uh, but Alex, you can hear us, right? I can hear you. I can't see you yet. Oh. Are we back? Yeah. Okay, very good. Yeah. Okay, well, but wait a second, because it seems that the translation is like entering the Zoom as well. I don't know. Let's wait for a second. When... I think the problem's been solved. Um, let us, let us uh, take a look at those two evil gangs in this country again. One masquerades as allies of the Anglo-American connection. They sort of want the territory back. They, sort, they, they are the continuation in, in some ways of the Third Reich. The others... They, they, want, they want what uh, the, the historian um, uh, Fritz Fischer called more than 50 years ago now. They called that they want the Griff nach der Weltmacht, nach der Weltmacht. And of course, he, he's describing the First World War. There is a surprising amount of continuation from war to war and we're about to enter world war three god forbid on the same basis so they want the the, the, the weltherrschaft the world domination and they got from the british this stupid geopolitical idea from sir halford mckinder a victorian era uh, geo or geographer the father of geopolitics they got from him the idea that if you control your ukraine you control the world look up james corbett on the heartland theory or a number of other people but you have the more practical corrupt uh, politicians who just want to make a career in Germany on their way to being EU or UN or whatever they want to be or make a big name in business, uh, just like anywhere else in the Western world. And they are more prepared to play along with this idea that uh, Russia is a bad country, we must keep it in order. The Ukrainians are crying out for more European freedom. And they're the ones who don't care about the territory, they just care about money. Correct. They're corrupt. Yes, well, I mean, okay. to be brutally honest, the, the mafiosi in question in eastern Ukraine and Russia don't care about the territory either. They're much more interested in who controls economic resources than they are in borders and membership of alliances. Jesus Christ. Um, so how, how much of a NATO or CIA operation do you think the, um, the corona narrative is that is a difficult one because nato has effectively devolved uh, declined into just being a protection racket certainly since the old end of the cold war um i would very highly rate uh, the whistleblower from the fbi who was who joined the fbi more or less the same week i joined gchq sibel edmonds who uh, is not personally known to me uh, but uh, that's S-I-B-E-L. Uh, she's written books, the best is Classified Woman, where she talks about something which what I was not aware of in GCHQ NSA relations. It's more general, it's NATO related, which is that 
There is a group of organized criminals that use NATO for drug smuggling, for example. That's patently obvious by now. And just like the Five Eyes countries had a hands-off policy, don't spy on each other for signals, intelligence, electronics purposes, so it's turned out from Sibel Edmonds' disclosures and other people's since that there's something similar between Belgium as the headquarters country of NATO, the United Kingdom, and Turkey believe it or not, huh. that uh, they don't spy on each other for the purposes of large-scale drug smuggling, because that appears to fund a bunch of crooks who, who think of NATO as their private army, as their mafia protection racket. So to that extent, there is organised crime within NATO for sure. Whether they are directly involved in, in COVID or the narrative preparation is difficult to say. Uh, we often get tied up in knots when we try to work out which organisation is responsible for what. It would be far more sensible to look at personal relationships and personal motives between the players. They can wear so many hats at once and be uh, be in so many organisations. So it's a, it's a network, basically. And Recording but, in progress. And do you think that... Um, The, the all these secret services, I mean, the tons like in each country already, do you think they're all intertwined in this? I mean, you mentioned that they're like reporting back and forth. Yeah, so it's it's maybe, I mean, are they officially separate or is this like now going into all kinds of directions that everyone is sort of uh, intertwined with one another? Most, most members of the intelligence services in most serious countries are patriotic and sensible. Um, the thing is, though, that the most, use, the most useful thing about an intelligence service is that it represents a huge repository of data, knowledge, the ability to blackmail people, and a few corrupt individuals in each of these services ultimately can be very tempted to see their their day job, their membership of a three-letter agency as just really a ticket to play the game. And the game is, let's let's carve up the world between us. Uh, the serious writers in writing in Russian, German, French, English, they've all said this, actually, with regards to the, uh, the geopolitics of the 20th century, that there are a few people near the top, ultimately, a bit, it's a bit like government, you know, when you get to the top of a bank or the top of politics, you regard your peers, your rivals in other countries as more your kind of person that you can, you can see eye to eye with than their own organization and their, and their own national loyalties. And Germany has, of course, has, has like a number of other countries, it's gone its, its own way here, but Germany has, because of its past, a particular temptation, or, or Germans who get to senior positions in intelligence have a particular temptation to regard the project for which they are working as not Germany, which has all kinds of dark overtones to some of them, but something like Europe or freedom or the free West. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's a particular pitfall for Germans, I think. Mm -hmm. And do you think with regards to, say, let's call it the resistance against the, the corona measures and this whole, you know, sort of um, system that we are seeing unfolding before our eyes, or this like change, societal change, do you think there, um, in, there's a lot of uh, like secret services involved in like maybe, um, you know, counter like or like stop this movement, like say, infiltrating certain activity groups or parties or other things? Like in uh, the individual countries, like both Germany, but could also be like yeah. in, in, in other, in basically any country. 
So, so are they they're watching this closely and then interfering when they see someone, maybe like even building up a person as like the big uh, hero and then, but he's really from the other side or? This happens a lot, but it tends to be police and internal security services who do this because uh, they can use that to plead for more budgets. Uh, in fact, the, the, the German um, uh, Bundesverfassungsschutz has a particular technique uh, of funding uh, groups uh, of, of fake opposition and even uh, controversially providing them with enough money to buy arms or sometimes providing them arms directly in order to provoke false flags. Within the Western context, Germany and the Bundesverfassungsschutz have often been criticized for this because they go much further in it mm. than other countries. But the top of the tree in, in any serious country that's a serious player in intelligence, the top dog is the foreign intelligence service, the Bundesnachrichtendienst, MI6, CIA, uh, because they are closest to politics. And those guys regard the police and the internal security services as junior relations of theirs. And they regard themselves usually as too conscientious and too intellectual to get involved in games of paying informers and provoking uh, false oppositions. It does happen to some extent, but the kind of players who are interested in the geopolitics of the Ukraine, whether they're in MI6, CIA, uh, the BND, they're not going to be very interested in the day-to-day the, the, the -day issues of COVID. Okay. They, the, many of them regard themselves as, as fine, enlightened individuals who are simply seeking to preserve peace and harmony. So it's it's just the police and the inter internal security system that will go that far and fund the opposition, create fake opposition, controlled opposition, and they're doing this. Why? Because they want they want to increase their budgets, or yes, it's as simple Large, as that. Largely that. Well, <laughs> again, you're wanting information on Germany particularly. Yeah. Um, so, what's special about the German setup is, of course. Again, it's these gentlemen's agreements. There were so many, like the, the Kanzler idea was, or the Kanzler Amt idea, checking everything with NATO and the Americans. That's a gentleman's agreement. The, uh, there was another gentleman's agreement that you wouldn't uh, build uh, fighter jets or tanks because you'd be the world's best uh, producers of them. Mm -hmm. So you'd leave it to others to do it. Uh, this, these agreements are fraying at the seams now, but they, they still exist. And another gentleman's agreement was with regard to this, that you wouldn't have the same kind of intelligence apparatus as other countries. Because uh, well, the most successful German intelligence agency actually was the Forschungsamt, the equivalent of NSA and GCHQ, the electronic espionage people. And their, their techniques actually went to America, as I've said in talks, which are on ukcolon.org. If you search for emergency briefing on ukcolon.org, you will see my talk about that. Um, but what happened was, of course, you had this situation at the end of the Second World War where uh, you had uh, disgruntled Uh, intelligence officers who were convinced that Germany was going to be destroyed under Hitler. So you had the Stauffenberg plot, and some of these guys were recruited, particularly by the Americans, but also by the British at the end of the war, and set up, of course, uh, the, the foreign intelligence service that Germany uh, ended, up, ended up getting. You know, you had the, um, the Generalmajor Reinhard Gehlen, Yeah. was the, the guy who did it. And as you well know, he was sniffing out partisans behind the uh, behind enemy lines on the Eastern Front. And the Germans, it's, it's roughly related to Operation Paperclip. A lot of the useful Germans with a questionable past were uh, given new roles. And so the Gehlen organization, which was extremely good at communist hunting and, and extremely savage, uh, 
was left in place. And it was DDR propaganda, of course, but it was true propaganda in this case, that they were uh, their crimes were ignored because they were jolly useful. And these guys became the peacetime Bundesrepublik Deutschland intelligence guys. So they, they, they uniquely among the Western or, or NATO countries, they did have these techniques of, you know, um, literally in some cases, arming criminal groups in order to plead for, as you say, more budgets. So there is a unique German angle to it, but more generally, that is the hierarchy of, of intelligence services in the West. I understand. And budget, they're very interested in budgets. Um, it, I had, I, there's a few things that uh, Corvin jotted down for us and that I would like to ask you about. One of the questions he jotted down, which I think is a very interesting one, is why would the city of London want to break the German-Russian friendship and provoke wars in Eastern Germany? Yes. In, in fact, these questions were worded by uh, me to, to Corvin. So, mm -hmm. they, yes, they were, they were my suggestions. Well, again, we can get carried away with ourselves answering these because it is so thrilling, mm -hmm. this question of deep geopolitics, especially between Germany and Russia and the Anglo-Saxons. <clears throat> But there's a lot of good commentators in the free media who've been at this question for enough years now that... If you listen to them intelligently and if you read these source materials, especially those in German and Russian, you can reach a conclusion on this. And it, it seems now beyond doubt that in the late Victorian era, the British Empire controllers realized that now that Germany and Russia were, for the first time, modern unified states, they were out-competing the British. There was also this geopolitical angle from Sir Halford Mackinder, M-A-C-K, I-N-D-E-R, um, this COD theory that if you need, if you wanted to control the so-called world island, Eurasia with Africa, then you needed to control Eastern Europe. So this persuaded a group of people around uh, Cecil Rhodes and Lord Milner, a group that was at Oxford in the 1870s, that they needed to control the world by bringing the United States back in and by uh, uh, promoting the growth of a, a greater Germany and a greater U Russia rather than independent states in Eastern Europe, uh, which they thought would both be containable by the Anglo-Saxons because they were the only sea power of the three. They could blockade the other two. But this is what George Orwell expresses with his theory of um, 1984 with East Asia and Eurasia, that is greater Russia and greater Germany, allying in turns with Oceania, the Anglo-Saxons, The perspective, you will understand, is that of the Oceanians, the Anglo-Saxons. They think that they can always come out on top. So the, 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 the plan for a long time back, more particularly by the financial interest in Britain, the City of London, the Cecil Rhodes types, was counterintuitively, perhaps. It was, let us unify Russia and Germany in totalitarian models so that we, we, they will uh, flatten all other possibilities, all other opposition there, but we will come out on top. Even if we have to ally with one against another and have a world war, we'll still survive. That's the mad thinking involved. Um, it was largely discovered and brought to light by Bill Clinton's history tutor at Georgetown University, who was Carol Quigley. That's a man's name, C-A-R-R-O-L-L, -L, who was not himself conspiratorially minded. He was a mainstream historian of liberal persuasions, liberal in the American sense. And I've actually spoken to um, students of his who were full of admiration for him. They thought he was so enlightened. 
Um, he didn't actually believe in the conspiracy fully. If you listen to the only audio interview which I am aware of with him, he points out that he stumbled upon this truth, that a bunch of City of London gentlemen were steering American foreign policy and were very interested in controlling Ukraine. And they did so even before 1900 by setting up a group called Lord Milner's Kindergarten, who, who became the geopolitical controllers of Britain. They were interested in having the First and the Second World War. I know, I know it's a controversial slogan in Germany, this slogan, Sie haben den Krieg gewollt, they wanted war. But there was a group of gentlemen in the city of London who very much did want it. Again, if you listen to the testimony given in 1982 by Norman Dodd, the ODD, if you look on YouTube for Norman Dodd tax-exempt foundations, you'll easily find it. He um, speaks to G. Edward Griffin in a 1982 interview about having sent a congressional staffer to the libraries of the American tax-exempt foundations, shall we say the City of London interests in America, in uh, the 1950s for the Reese Committee, an inquiry into the overmighty tax-exempt foundations, which ultimately are carrying out the City of London projects to continue the British Empire. And they found there, these researchers found, as Dodd says, in the minutes, in the libraries of the tax-exempt foundations, notes from 1905, 1906, that they wanted a world war. They would come out of it on top. We could go into all kinds of ins and outs of that, but that is the, 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 the general tendency uh, of crazy elite Anglo-Saxon geopolitics. And the, 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 the final straw in it was, of course, that uh, Mackinder's theory that you must control Ukraine to control the world was sold to the Third Reich. And they did that, of course, by converting Baron Karl Haushofer to this theory. Haushofer became Hess's tutor in geopolitics. And Haushofer and Hess uh, because Haushofer visited Lund, uh, Lundsberg prison often in 1924, Haushofer and Hess probably wrote the geopolitical chapters in Mein Kampf uh, with the famous uh, quotation in it, what India was for the British, Russia will be for us. We could go all kinds of directions with that, but the, the, the part which is repeats from generation to generation is the, the, the thing to keep your eye on, that behind every power-crazed German who wants to control Ukraine and Russia, and uh, by the way, um, it was it was I think uh, Haushofer who invented the term Lebensraum, mm -hmm. um, the, the or popularized it. Behind every one of these Germans, there's an Anglo-American thinking: well, they might win, they might lose the next war, they might end up at Nuremberg. What do we care? Uh, our, our descendants will still come out on top. So you say that uh, Hitler has not written this Mein Kampf completely himself. Yes, I haven't done textual studies of it, um, but I know that there are serious contentions by those who have researched it well, that the chapters in Mein Kampf which talk about dashing to uh, the Donbass were probably dictated, almost literally dictated, by Karl Haushofer to Hess. We could, yeah. we, we, well, we yeah. could go in a number of ways. There's so many unverifiable claims about Hess and his relationship with MI6, his flights to Scotland, all the yeah. crazy things. But it is interesting that he and Goering were the two Anglo-friendly, well-educated gentlemen in the Third Reich, and they were the two who were absolutely shut up. They weren't allowed to speak. Of course, Goering was already dead uh, before the trial, and um, uh, in the case, or, or, or just before his execution, I should say, uh, in questionable circumstances after his conviction. And Hess got a, a total of 23 seconds to speak uh, at Nuremberg, 
in which he started to say that British psychiatrists had played with his mind, and then he was shouted down. Goering was still in the defence dock at that point, and he was basically saying, I'll, I'll summarise, you know, sort of, shut up, don't, don't, don't give away our big secrets that we went well, into the Third Reich as, as Hitler's Anglo-handlers. May I ask a short question? Uh, Please do. You, me you mentioned the, the kindergarten in the beginning of the 20th century. Um, uh, what do you think about the uh, uh, word, the second um, 30 years war? The Zweite 30 years. Yes. Just what my, This just is the theory that the period 1914 to 1945 is a repetition of the unparalleled tragedy that Germany suffered in 1618 to 1648, the Thirty Years' War, a war on the middle class, the Mittelstand, and uh, a provoking of, of a civil war in the most productive part of Europe. Uh, if there is any truth to that, then it would be, uh, well, I, I, it would be something like um, the, the, the city of London uh, being interested in reducing the productivity of greater Germany so that the mercantilist uh, Anglo-American empire still comes out on top. That, that, that you can go all, all number of ways with this. The Russians are way ahead of you, Germans, in these uh, writing about these things, and the French too. They they have lots lots more material about perfidious Albion, you know, uh, the, being betrayed by British interests. It, there's a it, you can get too far with it because most intelligence officers and uh, strategic political thinkers in Britain and America d don't really look further than tomorrow. You know, they, they, they're really not that interested. But there are a few more, in particularly in the financial world, who regard the countries and the intelligence services as their pawns, as their tools, and they do think in these timescales. Mm -hmm. I mean, with regards to what they said in front of the uh, the trials, you know, I mean, of course, it's not easy to to distinguish with like what they maybe say to claim that they weren't guilty. You know, they might come up with all kinds of stories um, as, you know, as a, defending themselves. Or it could be that they really in that uh, stressful situation, maybe, you know, talk, speak the truth. I mean, that would need to be like much further yes. in, investigated, I guess. And but I don't know that, if it's... But the, uh... The incident that you just described about Göring telling Hess, I think it's that way around, uh, to stop yes, talking geez. and not give away the secrets, which means that we were the handlers of the Anglo-American, of the city of London, basically, and their American counterpart. Um, there are other... No, not quite that. The, no. the, the secret was... Uh, we, uh, as the well-educated guys who'd done business with the Anglo-Saxon elite before the Third Reich rose, before there was an NASDAP, we agreed at some level with city gentlemen, city of London gentlemen, that, um, you know, our IG Farben wants, wants uh, a guy to go and invade Eastern Europe. Uh, therefore, we um, have, have decided to support Hitler. So the native bad guys in Germany, the IG Farben guys who want to support Hitler, who end up in the European Commission. I think you know Halstein and these 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 figures. Um, the agreement was, we will ally with the external, the, the the London and Manhattan interests that want the same thing, and Hitler will be our, our useful idiot. Yeah. Except and when you get to Bormann, it's a beyond that. It's, but, yeah, Bormann, his family interests uh, and his wartime record was showed that he's much more interested in Ukraine and possession of that territory than in Germany, you know, and... Uh, he, so the, 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 at the well-educated level, there were two or three well-educated uh, senior Nazis, but the rest were, as you know, low-level thugs. But the, the well-educated ones thought, well, we'll probably lose this war geopolitically, but uh, but we'll at least manage to get our our ill-gotten gains out mm -hmm. and and set and, and be part of the new world order. 
that, that's the thinking which you still have uh, dominating a, num a number of German corporations. I get it. And that's why Vera Sharaf, I guess, not so much in a rational manner, but intuitively says, I can't believe I'm fighting the same people again that I fought 80 yes. years ago. Well, yeah. they, they, they do have satanic uh, strength behind them. Uh, one, of the, one of Brian Gerrish's most pertinent observations is there is no explanation, purely humanly speaking, on the human level for how the same interests can come up generation after generation, even if there's a change of organization, a change of citizenship, the same loyalties and the same plans keep coming up. How can that and it's not a sinister Anglo plot because you know the, the global revolutionary thinking, often called Trotskyism, is actually very interested ultimately in destroying Anglo culture. You know, they, they uh, as, as Christopher Story was the best writer on this, he points out, Trotskyites both in Britain and America and in our former enemies, Germany and Russia, have long said the final goal is to destroy Anglo societies from within, and then we will have the world power. So Ukraine is simply a sort of a geographical uh, staging post on the way to this Weltherrschaft. And so the EU and like, for instance, this HERA, you know, this new agency for health uh, system or like control helping in emergencies. Um, do you think that's that's supposed to play a major part in like transforming the the world to like, a, like, you know, like unifying it under like some sort of world government? Most certainly, because uh, since the end of the Cold War, even before the end of the Cold War, the big enemy that has been sold to the Western public or the world public now has always been an invisible energy, en enemy. It's either, it's either ideological enemies who you cannot uh, tell by sight because they're your, your own countrymen, or it's been uh, terrorists, uh, or it's gone then on to biological, radiological, nuclear chemical weapon threats. It's, it's never something that you can quantify and see. And so Britain, as we often report on UK column news, is in the lead globally in setting up this idea of national health security, often called the biosurveillance state now. Uh, some of the Italian thinkers are some of the best writers on this, uh, constitutional thinkers, but it's becoming increasingly clear across the Western world that we're facing a biosecurity threat. It gives a new pretext, a new reason for intervening in people's inalienable God-given rights uh, by balancing them out. Did, did, did you see this built Zeitung footage the other day of a so-called heroic, brave Christian policeman in, uh, I forget which city in, in Germany it was, who was facing an open-air prayer meeting of people who didn't like COVID restrictions. And he said, of course, you have your Grundrecht, you have your inalienable right to worship in public, but other people have Uh, the right to life by not being infected by COVID. Yeah, so that's what health security is. It's 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 doing away with inalienable fundamental rights, not by repealing them, but by saying yes, they exist, but they're counterweighed by uh, outweighed by uh, by something we just invented yesterday, like the right of everyone on earth to feel safe. I mean, if it was really like a a a, a disease, you know, that you get it and you're dead. Then maybe you'd have some sort of balance in, you know, that it's uh, that you have to balance it out. But if if we're facing um, a threat as as has been like discussed several times, you know, it's not really dangerous to the population as a whole. It's it's clear that it's something something else is behind it. You know, very much so, very Alex. Much. From I've I've seen a couple of videos of I think former 
Russian intelligence officers who explained in great detail how, for some reason, the Russians wanted to undermine Anglo-American society, particularly the American society, and destroy it from within. What, uh, how much truth is to that? Is, is this really, who is really behind this? I mean, if that is the ultimate goal, to even destroy the Anglo-American society from within, who is behind this? Well, perhaps my answer will not surprise you, Rainer and Viviana, that ultimately it's only the devil who can have such a level of, of, of malice, uh, of evil. Uh, but on a, on a human level, uh, you don't need to look for a religion or a nationality that would be interested in this. The people we're talking about regard themselves as Ubermensch. They, they regard themselves as, as above all that. You know, literally, uh, as, a, as a famous book called it, Jenseits des Bösen, Beyond Evil. It's not a category that's that's relevant to them. Yeah? So uh, it, it, it's it's been a feature of world communism since its inception to talk about Anglo-American Christian capitalism as the main enemy. And Anglo-allied countries, such as Germany and other Western European nations, as the sort of subordinate enemy to the main enemy. So obviously in early Bolshevism, this was a big talking point. And then it became one in Britain when, when communism was nativized among some of our traitor elite around the time of the Second World War. Uh, but we cannot then say that uh, the Trotskyites who wanted this were loyal to the, to the Russian people or to the Soviet Union or even to communism. They simply wanted a unified world. And if you want to unite the world, obviously your main enemy is going to be whoever the most powerful uh, bloc is in the world at that time, especially if it is a culturally stable and generally beneficent cultural power in the world. Obviously, you're going to have to take that out of the way before the world will accept rule by you. And uh, like the, but what's the point in like having this one world government? So it's the same, you would, you would think it's like the same things as like control, like that has been discussed also here before, like it's controlling the resources and like having full control on, on the human beings and, you know, like maybe a transhumanist agenda, or do you think it's the other things in the forefront or like? It has to be hatred and suspicion of humanity in the end. You know, it's a well-known rhetorical question. If you get to be ruler of the world, what are you going to do with your power? Very few people can answer that. Some people have religious convictions that allow them to answer this question, or very few have philosophical ideas. But generally, this question is unanswerable by most people because they are not disturbed enough to want to dominate the world. But there are a few who do, and... Uh, if you have that level of drive, then you're almost by definition, you're going to be uh, somebody who is afraid and suspicious and incomprehensive of, of ordinary people who doesn't understand what makes them tick. So you're going to want to see population reduction, absolute conformity between people and, and this kind of thing. Um, we have. Oh, yes, go ahead. Yeah, before I forget to show this this graphic. Um, just to show you that this is not merely a controversial question of the Third Reich, but it's something which confronts Germany from generation to generation. The, the father of German liberalism, the, 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 the man whose, whose name is on as the FDP's think tank, is Friedrich Naumann. Yeah. And, of course, he popularized, ultimately, it was a Bismarckian-era slogan, Mitteleuropa, that Germany should dominate uh, Central Europe. Look at the French-language first edition, French translation of his Mitteleuropa, here is the French, here's the, the, the title of the 
title page, sorry, the cover of the French edition. Can you see that Mittel Europa in this French edition, uh, it's more honest than the, the German original. Can you see that it includes Denmark, Benelux, the Baltic, Ukraine, Croatia and Slovenia, the countries that Hans-Dietrich Genscher uh, basically acted on behalf of and started the Balkan Wars of the 1990s for. Mm -hmm. All the countries that ended up being geopolitical allies of, you can call it Großdeutschland, Greater Germany, in the later 20th century, before, during and after the Third Reich period, and even after the, uh, the vendor, all of these countries were already described by Naumann in 1915 as the resource pool which Großdeutschland must be able to, to, to count on the loyalty of. Yeah. So I'm not suggesting that the FDP is the root of all evil by any means, but and I am suggesting that there is always the same temptation by evildoers from generation to generation to, uh, to maximize what they can do. And if you are in control of Germany, then the strongest thing you can do, obviously, is invade Eastern Europe and make it a pool of cheap labor and raw materials. That's always been the... And because the evildoers in the top of the Anglo elites know this very well. They have thrown everything they can at stopping Germany and Russia getting their acts together. So even when Kaiser Wilhelm went to a Swedish island, Björkö, uh, in 1905 and signed a treaty with the Tsar on technological cooperation, this petrified the city of London. And uh, Wilhelm's ministers uh, were prevailed upon to, to repeal this treaty of Björkö almost overnight. Again, the, uh, uh, after the First World War, it was uh, under Ebert, there was a very strong fear among the city of London that, uh, that the Germans would reach a separate honourable peace with the East, that they would normalise relations with Lenin. And they made us, in fact, there was a strong effort to do this. The Treaty of Rapallo in 1922 agreed basically that Russia would provide its vast raw materials for German vast know-how. And this would have made a Eurasian state the top dog and not the Anglo elite. So this was reversed almost overnight with the Doors plan, which, of course, was, was one of the main things that the Third Reich uh, used as an excuse for why it had to come to power to, re to reverse the Doors plan and the Young plan. So all, all of these things go in cycles. Uh, on, the elite on both sides are extremely suspicious of the other one coming out on top. That that's the only ideology they have at the very top of intelligence agencies. Stop the other guys being top dog. And Germany is in this unique position because for historical and geographical reasons, it always wavers between these two. Which of these two top dogs are we going to go with? You know, this all sounds, uh, it's very simple, really, when, when it, it boils, it, it, this boils down to megalomaniac maniac, uh, behavior, yes. people who are, in my view, completely crazy. Um, but is it really as simple as that? Is it really that uh, some of the people who have gotten to the top of the hierarchy, both in business and in politics, are simply psychopaths? who are, like in a James Bond movie, trying to rule the world? It sounds like it. I, th I think so. And there's also a level of people who will tolerate the rise of psychopaths. Yeah. A classic example is an old wartime GCHQ man who lived to past 100 years old, and who was very close to UK column, called Harry Beckhoff, B-E-C-K-H-O-U-G-H. After the Second World War, because he was one of the German speakers in Uh, the wartime precursor of GCHQ, he was sent to the British occupied zone of Germany to help with the process of denazification and re-education of the elite. And he became a personal friend of Konrad Adenauer there. Now, 
no matter how how anti-German you are, you cannot say Konrad Adenauer was a Nazi. That would be a step too far. Mm -hmm. However, Adenauer did confess to Beckhoff that he employed 134 senior ex-Nazis just in the Kanzleramt, in the and the Kanzlerei. Um, this is is an example to illustrate your the answer to your question, which is that is it just psychopaths? Well, there are a lot of psychopaths. I would say the 134 re-employed senior Nazis were psychopaths, but Adenauer knew jolly well what they were, and yet he still used them for the sake of continuity, uh, smooth government, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. Even more, uh, Adenauer said, because of their past in the Nazi time, they were controllable. They, they never would have done their own agenda. Yeah, so he took them because they, he took them under control because of that. Makes perfect sense because if you know that if you know the skeletons in the closet, you know how to control these people. Well, let's balance that with the other big revelation that Harry Beckhoff gave us, which cuts the other way, which is that uh, Sir Edward Heath later the prime minister who brought Britain into the European economic community was a controlled asset by some strand of German intelligence since before the Second World War. It turns out that he was compromised by a homosexual encounter in Germany in 1939. And Beckhoff talked about this in quite some detail in his books and writings. And many people thought this was just a paranoid conspiracy theory until a police chief, Mike Veal, in Britain, uh, came out with a report on Operation Conifer after Sir Edward Heath's death, which confirmed that they had six independent witnesses that child Sir Edward Heath was uh, an abusive pederast, wow. a child molester. Right. So this, this has been well covered on UK Column and a number of other reliable free media, reliable new media sources with documentation. This, it's this well-known stuff. So Mike Veal came out in public and said, of course, he got a lot of flack for it, but he did come out and say that if he had still been alive, he died in 2005, if he'd still been alive, he would have faced police questioning for child rape, right? So that confirmed what Beckhoff had been saying, that but, but we mustn't run away with this idea that the Germans blackmailed Heath into bringing uh, Britain into the EU as it, it finally became the EU. No, it was one particular strand of interests which had a geographical presence in Germany that was interested in doing that. Mm -hmm. And now when we look at, uh, again, the Corona situation, how crucial do you think it is for the whole um, system that Germany continues like believing the narrative or, you know, like continues with the measures is, are we like a, are we a, a cornerstone, a in, cornerstone this? in this, in this whole picture? Narrative, yeah. I'm speaking from the Netherlands and it, it seems to be that most countries in the Western world have this idea that poor us, we are the yeah, cornerstone yeah, yeah. of globalism. And, and yeah, so the Dutch attitude is often, oh yes, so much of the, the world's uh, pedocracy is based in the, in the Netherlands, which is true. The British seem to think the same thing mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, but uh, uh, while we're speaking about the Netherlands, actually, I have spoken individually with the chairman, not the leader, but the chairman of a Dutch political party who has said uh, Britain can leave the EU, but the Netherlands can't because we are a province of Germany. And by that, he means the same Third Reich continuation corporations. No, he knows very well that there's nobody in, in political circles in Berlin that wants that uh, uh, the Netherlands to be part of a Fourth Reich. No, it's just a question. It's Middle Europa again. Remember, Benelux was part of Middle Europa on that map I showed you. you know, that they can't have independent geopolitical interests. So that doesn't serve the interests of the German people, no. But yes, Germany is the keystone state. 
just like Pennsylvania in America was the keystone state at independence because it had such a bulk, and still does in America, such a bulk of population, central geographical location, technological know-how, industry, uh, high-quality population. All of these things made Pennsylvania the state that would make or break the union. And the same is true of Germany. In any project which is launched in the European continent, Germany, just by dint of its population and its expertise, is going to be the key state. Clinton, having been well-schooled by Quigley, said on a visit to Berlin in the 1990s, Germany is the natural leader of Europe. And now again, because I'm really interested in that, the, um, you know, wouldn't it then make sense for the, um, the ones who are, I don't know, like here playing this game, um, to set up like quite a bit of like controlled opposition um, anchors, like, you know, even like when the narrative started, so they were maybe in place before or like are now being placed somewhere. So if like resistance becomes too strong in some in some area, they they, they have ways to, um, I don't know, to to do some counter engineering here and there. Would you what's your opinion? Most certainly. And this is why we need decentralized opposition, opposition based on individual conscientious people who will not go along with things that their conscience and their intuition and their intelligence tells them is nonsense, is tyranny. Uh, every week, and the British scene is the one I know best, but I know it's the same in Germany, every week there are some anti-COVID protesters or networks that re reveal that they have been infiltrated by police informants. Mm -hmm. The only way to avoid that is by having a decentralized cell type of, of uh, organization. I, I, obviously, the, the part of that is not telling outsiders what you're planning necessarily too much and avoiding electronic communication where possible and communicating on paper and by word of mouth. Uh, but another part is retaining your intellectual uh, independence, yes. not being uh, whipped up. The, 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 I, I, I love and, and know the Germans well enough to say this, and you won't mind my saying it, uh, the, the Achilles heel of the German nation is over-enthusiastic following of a plausible leader. Yep. This, the, the British ambassador writing his report, Foreign Office Paper, Germany Number no. One, 1939, uh, said this in terms, the Germans are a great nation who run away with leadership, or get carried away by leadership. Mm -hmm. this, 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 is, this is well known, but you have to know your own weaknesses out of love for your own people. And so it's true of anyone, but particularly of Germans who are waking up to, to tyranny. Uh, I, I would say don't follow leaders. But can I ask you? Perfect sense. So, um, if that's you that's what we're all about, actually, we want to go back to the roots, and we want to set up our own structures, political, economic, etc., etc., in our regions, all if over I the may, world. Yes. If I may, Reiner, I think because you're a German American, you're and a lawyer. This you're the ideal guy for me to to suggest this to. I don't want to tell the Germans what to do, but I want to raise this issue. Uh, American patriots, as I think you well know, have are now divided over the question of whether they should get into the better states and secede from the Union in order to stop their country being used as a mighty basis of evil yeah. in the world. Uh, and some of them say, and I think Catherine Austin Fitz is very much in this camp for understandable reasons, no, we need to keep the bulk of our nation together, even politically and economically. Right. So America is, has a unique position in the world, but it may be time for certain of the, um, the states in Germany which have the longest tradition as happy independent countries before Bismarck, particularly the Freistaat Bayern, Bavaria and Saxony, I think, which used to be 
uh, like regional powers in Europe, it may be time for them to think seriously about secession. Because generally, uh, Germany is big enough and diverse enough to have a, a geographical aspect to it, which other European countries don't. You have a decentralized system. There are, part, vaguely speaking, the Catholic South and the socialist East of Germany are not Russophobic. The Anglo policy of, make, of, of making Germany Russophobic and whipping up war in the Ukraine works better, and it has done since the days of Naumann, a liberal Protestant. It's worked better with the Northern and Western um, uh, sort of liberal, nominally Protestant uh, Germans. So you have a very difficult judgment call in Germany as to whether you break up the federation or not in order to prevent Germany being used as a, as a crowbar to attack other countries or to dominate Europe. Um, personally, I think that the Germans would have a, a happy, prosperous, culturally vibrant uh, future as they did in early modern Europe as a, as a, a group of semi or uh, mid-sized uh, influential states. But I don't want to press that solution on the Germans because there are, there are downsides to it as well. I think there are quite a few downsides because I think at the moment the advantage is that you know the uh, the protests are, are, are peaceful, and that it's you know they're really not so confrontative. Plus they are like very regional, you know, like like in very small um, entities. And I think that's maybe is my opinion like is at the moment the, the you know the way to go because if you are if you're like going for like a proper um, you know secession. Then um, uh, you, you're going to have like a, a civil war. At, at least the, you give like the the government, the rulers who want to keep German together, like to bring the whole of Germany into like a new power structure. Um, you know, maybe the reason to bring in like military and really attack the ones who, who want to go for secession. So I'm I'm I, I don't. I mean, that is that is yeah. by the way the reasoning behind uh, Catherine Austin Fitz's. Um, uh, assessment when she's saying we can't do that, we can't secede in the United States. Um, I, 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 my approach is a little bit different because I do believe that the only way you can have true sovereignty is by letting the families, the communities, the regions decide their own fate. And they they can set up their own uh, power structures, their own um, healthcare system, judiciary, and then they can connect with the other regions. But um, one thing that seems to be very obvious to me is what got us here are these globalistic structures and uh, the psychopaths who are behind these globalistic structures, because basically. The, the reason why we have this corona pandemic is because someone told someone to create panic and to, to create cases. Ultimately, it's the puppet Drosden. But who's the someone who told him to go ahead and invent this uh, uh, PCR test? It's the WHO. We, we, we don't know. We, uh, Brian Gerrish, has, he, he comes out with a number of analytical one-liners, which are pure gold. And one of them is, is this. If the real controllers don't show us their faces, what are they afraid of? Yeah. Right? We, we're not going to find out in one go who gave Drosten or equivalent figures in the British health secure, security state the orders. Yeah. The, the, the only analytical reason that makes sense, especially we've been talking about geopolitics and the world wars, if you keep that in mind as well, these guys never show their faces. There can only be one reason that they are afraid, that they don't have power if they show their faces. 
I agree. It's like the Wizard of Oz. And, um, <laughs> but um, and one one question again, like with um, you know, like what we saw, like with a lot of these, or like uh, at least I remember this, like that. In, in some countries, all of a sudden, you know, someone pops up who's like the new the new leader and he comes back, like has a Harvard degree, you know, like uh, uh, trained in America, you know, and then boom, all of a sudden he's he's there and he's like supported by the local press and he's like, um, you know, the new um, hero and leader behind everyone gathers. And But I have the feeling that maybe this kind of script, this, um, you know, that they... I have explored like over over in many opportunities is maybe a little bit at uh, at a loss here in this situation because like if some if people are really waking up to the corona problem you know and see this that it's it's a fake narrative and it's not meant uh, to to do to do them any good um then i think they will have quite a few doubts of like you know with regards to yes. people who pop up out of a sudden and you know have a non um you know not like a trackable um, um history of like resistance don't you think that that's a problem for like mm. the social engineers who now want to maybe install like a new leader you know, that we could then all talk to, uh, turn to in awe. Alex, I think the bottom line is uh, the Germans saying, wer einmal lügt, dem glaubt man nicht. If we manage to yes. expose these, uh, the structures at least, not necessarily the, the individuals who are really behind this, even though I do believe that'll come, that'll come out in time too. But if we manage to expose these extremely fraudulent and very, very evil structures, then uh, the people who are, understanding what's going on won't be fooled again as the who once sang <laughs> well the, the the biggest the biggest mechanism to fool the people uh is this idea of party politics mm -hmm. in some countries like the netherlands where i'm speaking to you from it has been the only game in town they, there's been only proportional representation yes. this is the ultimate confidence trick because it sells a whole manifesto as a fait accompli and it allows blackmail the british are the world's leaders at party-based blackmail we call it whipping and it's been admitted on camera that it involves uh, covering up the, the abuse of children in order to buy people's loyalties. Yeah. Right? The only way to, re to reverse that is to, and, and Germany is already halfway there happily, unlike some continental European countries, is to go completely to what you call direct candidate. Yeah. Uh, it's not coincidental that Dr. Wolfgang Vodag was a direct candidate and has become conscientious enough to join the Stiftung Corona Ausschuss. And from the other mainstream party, the same is true of Willy Wimmer, who became the number two at the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the OSCE. He, likewise, from the other side of the political spectrum, he was a direct candidate. He had the conscience to say, uh, and they represent two very different zones of Germany, Protestants and Catholic, but they both said, this is a load of nonsense. And then they left the Bundestag in the same year, 2009. And between them, they basically prevented the war with Russia and the, the previous COVID. Uh, scam. So they, they, they've got a lot to thank, to thank, be thankful for. You have, I think, 99 of them in the Bundestag, and they're not all high quality, but at least they were elected on an individual mandate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, in theory, Britain and America should be in a better position than you, because in theory, we still elect people geographically by their name, by their individual reputation. But of course, it's all done by the control of the party system. If you outlaw political parties, that's the single biggest thing you can do to restore constitutional government and liberty under law. I think I agree with that. And I think Wolfgang Vodak agrees with that as well. Because when he 
or all of us decided we would join this party, Die Basis, of which Viviana and myself are now the leaders, um, we were immediately told by Wolfgang and also the uh, people who have joined that party, I think roughly 32,000 in the meantime, immediately told, we're here, but we really want to get rid of the party system. We want to get rid of political parties. And I agree with that because the only way to have direct democracy is by voting for people directly instead of the party which will... Yes. Can I add with regard to foreign policy? In any Western country now, foreign policy is nominally in, in the hands of a minister or a secretary of state. Yeah. In practice, it is bureaucrats and the, the, the top level decisions are made by the think tank allied to the party to which the minister belongs. Right, so the uh, the Adnauer Stiftung in your case, or the Naumann Stiftung, or the Ebert Stiftung, we have equivalents, and they're even worse. Uh, the Ch Chatham House and the like. Right, these think tanks can steer foreign policy and uh, thwart the will of the of the people of the voters only in a party political model. If the minister uh, it has to go to a parliament that consists of independent men and women elected on their own reputation by a geographical constituency and says, we're going to invade Russia next week, those independently elected parliamentarians can say, not on your life. And if they're not in a party, it's much more difficult to blackmail them. I agree. Yeah, but however, it has to be like an evolutionary way to get there, because right now, I mean, we have, you know, also the parties in as uh, as part of our basic law. And I think we are, we, um, I really believe that the basic law is something that we should absolutely stick to for the moment. And then in like discussion with the people, you know, the, uh, the sovereign, basically, you know, um, uh, we can maybe then switch to a different kind of system. I mean, okay, it is true that right now we could also send, I think at least half of the, the members of parliament could be like directly voted for, which is an option. And I think which should be also, you know, be, be used in the, in the near future. Um, but it's, um, yeah, I think it's an evolutionary process and not something that, that we can we do can't immediately. We overnight. And what, what we're really trying to say here is that, again, we have to emphasize, we, are, we need to fight the system because it's been, it's been um, uh, hijacked by those who are pushing this corona pandemic. But we're not fighting our constitution or the American constitution uh, because th these are really great um, uh, documents that underpin our democracy. It's the system or the people who have hijacked the system who are trying to get rid of democracy. It's not the uh, constitutions. Th we need these constitutions. We need to stick to them. Yeah, may I mean, had they, had they been one, stick to, then we wouldn't have had these problems, you know. May, may I add one, just one thought? Um, think, of, think about the question why the parties are a part of this basic law in Germany. Uh, think about that. Uh, there is nothing which has been entered by somebody. It was constructed like this, that the parties have to rule because the party, the parties are something you can control. I absolutely agree with Alex. Um, you can control the parties, you can blackmail everyone you want. And um, uh, I'm not against democracy or anything, I, I, vice versa. I want more democracy. A more democracy means no parties. So I absolutely agree. And ask yourself why uh, the parties have such an important role in our basic law and who wrote it uh, in which time. And then you understand the way. I, I agree with both even, of you. Even even in in the area of taxation law, 
uh, my father was before his retirement an advisor on tax and had a lot to do with um, German companies, GmbHs, which wanted to get foreign ownership or a foreign member of the board. And he was surprised at how incredibly difficult it is under the 1949 uh, regulations for, for Germany, for Western Germany, to get a foreign owned GmbH. And he worked out in the end that the American uh, occupiers had, uh, and the British did the same too, uh, had hired taxation professors to make it as difficult as possible without making it outright illegal, so that they would have maximum control of the German, well, sub-sovereign sub entity, shall we call it. Yeah, it's crazy. Wherever you turn, <laughs> there's new things to learn. But the most important thing, and I think this is uh, something that tells us that we can, uh, not very clearly, but we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Everything is coming out into the open. This is what we're doing right now is brand new news to most people in this world. And uh, if and I think it is so important to be able to understand, to see the whole picture rather than just pieces of the puzzle, because only if you can see the whole picture will you be able to react accordingly. If you only look at, for example, one piece of the puzzle, meaning uh, the PCR test can't uh, tell you anything about infections, it's not enough. You have to ultimately be able to answer the question, if it's not about health, what is it about? And then you have to take this deep dive that you have taken us into. Um, so I'm really grateful for that, Alex. May I uh, round off by saying that we have been thinking about this historically in this discussion. We've been thinking about forces in Europe and in Britain that like controlling the world and controlling America secretly. And this has been the big uh, issue of the 20th century. America has now matured to the point where it might actually cut our elite loose and leave them to sink, including economically. Um, you, I know you have good connections in America, but you might not be fully aware that in, uh, shall we say, the more Bible Belt parts of America, they're starting to now think seriously about, shall we just get rid of these German, British and other foreign controllers, uh, ditch the uh, debt-ridden European continent, get rid of COVID measures, which were not, weren't our idea ultimately, and live happy and free. And a very good example of that, which I'd recommend to those listeners who can follow a podcast in English, is Podcast 93, the most recent podcast in the series called Gold, Goats and Guns, run by an American called Tom Luongo. In that episode, he interviews the hedge fund guy from Croatia, Alex Kreiner, who brought out the expose on how the Bill Browder, well, Bill Browder, this Manhattan guy, uh, tried to spin a story involving Putin as a villain. Um, and it was it's very interesting to listen to because they go into detail there about the British, the City of London financial empire and how uh, the beating of war drums with regards to Ukraine is a, ultimately a British project because the City of London needs more collateral for the for the loans they give. Mm -hmm. And people might be shocked. Uh, this is why I'm recommending it, because even those who think they know America well might be shocked at the self-confidence which American philosopher blog, podcasting philosophers like that are now showing we've had it with europe let's go our own way you know historically this was called isolationism yeah. and in in britain you're always taught that the, the, the role of america in the 20th century was to rise to the world's rescue and let's all criticize the isolationist periods in american history but that's the whole role of america from the founding fathers onwards is to be a city on a hill and if necessary to keep their distance from all the craziness going on abroad so we might find that the American people almost overnight decide to ditch us 
and become a, a beacon of liberty and get out of COVID tyranny faster than anyone else. That's what it looks like currently, doesn't it? But I think this could also be a very so. strong sign for us, you know, if it really, if it was possible to really like free America, then, uh, you know, I think it would be, it's, it's will be impossible to keep it up in, in Europe and other places in the world. I mean, I think these are, you know, like maybe America and as we said in the beginning, also Germany as part of like a major uh, entity in, in Europe, meaning then also the other, other states in, in Europe might fall. And I think then this could also be a, you know, like a liberation domino kind of situation for everyone in the world. And, you know, but what at the same time, I think, yeah, this might be a tendency, but I also see this sort of humanity rising happening at the same time and also connecting to other people that you yeah. see as tortured as yourself around the world. And I, I think it's maybe, maybe I mean, we have to think about new, new constellations. And I think it doesn't need to be like in these institutions that we've had, uh, you know, basically no, enough no, of. We don't, we don't need to be members of any power, political power structures, global power structures. I think it's all about regionalism and then connecting, but not being part of any structure that will ultimately. Yeah, and just like you extent. said, we we should uh, keep the resistance uh, not unified because if it were unified, it would be very easy to infiltrate it and bring the whole resistance down. If we're not um, if we're not under one huge umbrella but we're independent uh, parts of the resistance, then it'll be very difficult to bring us down because they're, ha they're going to have to bring each and every one of these uh, resistance centers down, and that's going to be next to impossible. Um, here, I would like to add something because uh, this is a very crucial question. Um, as you see, uh, all these colored revolutions work out because there is a structured uh, opposition with a leader. And of course, they are under control of somebody, but this is the way uh, where they're effective and they work. So you are right, you need it uh, decentralized, but if it's decentralized, it will not, not, not have success because for having a success, you have to coordinate it. And, and again, then you have to centralize it because without coordination, it will not work out. No, and this is this is I don't this is the not centralization well, well, connecting is is the secret. Yeah, well, it's, it's you have to organize it like a military because otherwise it will not have, be successful. Um, I, I work very much, and I think maybe Alex is, 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 disagree with me. Um, when I look at all these colored revolutions um, uh, and uh, protests which were just connected, like the uh, Geldwesten, they didn't they didn't do anything. They didn't reach anything. Um, and, and and the colored revolutions are organized. They have success. So this is a different topic. Uh, I had it in, in, a, in a conference in Moscow not long ago, where there are people here in universities, professors who study this kind of stuff. What quite what was quite interesting to, to talk with them. So this is a very complicated question somehow. But you know the the, the, the revolutions they were not real revolutions. So I mean it's no no not um, you know not surprising that they actually went through because like if you then have the media pushing them. And you uh, have like me, show, show me an example for one real revolution in history. Maybe maybe there's none, but maybe now we're yeah, going to have one. That's the point, because it doesn't work like that. It, yeah, it works always, only if it's organized. Well, <laughs> Otherwise, it doesn't work. Yeah, organization does still doesn't mean you have to have centralization. But again, uh, it, it's complicated, definitely. Now, 
we're uh, we we must uh, come to a conclusion at this point because Matthew Arid has been waiting in the Zoom for about a half an hour. Uh, but I don't want to cut you off, Alex. This is one of the most interesting conversations, one of the most interesting interviews we've had. Um, is there something that needs to be uh, told that that we haven't touched upon yet? Just a closing thought from me, and it's an honor to be between Thomas Roper and Matthew Ehret, two men I've uh, greatly valued listening to. But um, I'll say this, uh, we will have to look at our own national uh, shortcomings, confront our own demons. I've told you Germans what you need to do in that regard. The Brits have a particular problem with their soft power, mm -hmm. their propaganda. We've seen that it has basically manipulated America, Russia and Germany through the 20th century. Um, so even just with that closing thought that Thomas gave of decentralized opposition, it's not enough to do just that. I do agree with him. It's not enough, but I do agree with him on what he says, but it's not enough because you need finally to get your mind space clear of propaganda. You know, this, this term mind space is associated with Brian Gerrish in the UK column because we've shown how from 2010 onwards, the British cabinet office has used this behavioral change and sold it to the world. You know all that. Well, you know the old saying, they've got you body, mind, and soul. The, the British establishment basically is a triangle that controls you, body, mind, and soul. Body is the National Health Service, mind is the BBC, and soul is the Church of England, or in Scotland, the established Church of Scotland. These are the, the most pernicious and long-lasting of the British establishment's presences in the world. They regard themselves as having a worldwide remit to shape people's fears and concerns. So why do I mention that? It's because even if Britain lost its economic clout and its military ability to manipulate bigger countries to go to war on its behalf, we would still have this problem that some people would undeservedly look up to the BBC, the Church of England, the National Health Service, as if they were beacons in the world. So that's why a large part of UK Column's mission is to keep shining a light on the uh, ridiculous situation in each of those institutions, the hollowing out of those institutions, because... If you just take that closing thought of protesters, people will only come out on the streets if they have a sense of moral outrage. So that's the religious element before they even come out. So if you control the pulpit, you control what people get outraged at. When they come out on the street, they need to know a protest is happening. That's the media. That's why the BBC is so important. This week, the BBC is telling us that the war with Ukraine has already started. It's just invisible. So that's how powerful and clever and, and wicked they are. And... Finally, of course, why do people get dissuaded from staying out on a protest? I, I followed the Georgian and Ukrainian revolutions close up in British intelligence, as you can imagine. Well, they they managed to do so because they hadn't got health scares. Yeah, But nowadays, people will be, for example, with COVID, dissuaded from coming out on the streets or staying out because they think, oh, I could catch some disease, you know, the invisible enemy. So that the, these, these monopolies that... America blessedly never inherited from Britain or never developed, because we, we developed them after American independence, actually. Monopoly broadcasting, monopoly healthcare, and uh, monopoly religion. You've got to uh, address those as well. Absolutely. It makes perfect sense to me. Things become clearer and clearer. Thank you very much for these insights. I think we'll be in touch. We'll, we'll talk some more, because this, this historical background is extremely important for our understanding of the larger picture. You cannot understand what's going on unless you know this historical uh, historical backdrop. Ich würde sagen, es war ein reines Vergnügen. Danke. Für uns auch. Vielen Dank. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much and have a great weekend, Alex. Thank you. 
Okay, Matthew, um, I'm sorry to have kept you waiting, but I hope it was interesting. I'm pretty sure it was interesting, don't you think? Yeah, it was actually very pleasurable to be kept waiting in this, uh, in this instance. <laughs> um, so, uh, can we, um, uh, shall we pick up where we left off uh, just now, or do you want to start with the Great Reset and the Malthusian religious-like commitment to closed systems, etc.? Well, you know, I, I think that based upon what I just listened from, to from Alex, um, a whole slew of new thoughts awoke in my mind, which caused me to rather restructure a lot of what I was going to say um, mm -hmm. and take a, a little bit more of a step back than I was going to. And you know how I love context and I love history, but Alex just uh, opened up new vistas to explore. So I thought that we would uh, try something new. Um, on the note of, of party politics, the thing that here speak from, from Canada that I wanted to just chime in on, when you do look at uh, Commonwealth countries, parliamentary democracies, it, it, it is absolutely true. The Achilles heel is in the part, the party politics system that you are beholden tyrannically to whatever consensus is there in your party. So if you try as, let's say, a conservative or a liberal individual with a conscience to stand up and say, I don't agree with bombing this country or this dictatorial policy, you're out of your party. I mean, there's a whip literally there, and that's the position to whip you into place. Whereas in a republic, you can have parties, uh, but it is not a party system. You can stand up as a Republican, as we saw Ron Paul do on many occasions in opposition to bombing uh, poor countries on the other side of the world, despite the fact that his party was promoting it. And that is defended, your right to stand for your conscience. George Washington, when you look at some of the original speeches by Washington himself, he warned that one of the points of corruption of the United States would be that it fall into a party political uh, dynamic and the tendency to fall into mob rule, right, where you, you, you stop thinking as a sovereign individual, a citizen, and you instead allow a mob to replace your personal morality, your personal ability to, to think and speak. Um, so this is a long fight. And uh, people think, oh, America was always a, a party system. No, it was not. Um, and then when you look at other people like, like John Quincy Adams, the great uh, American ambassador to Russia who became president, he was somebody who also warned that America must never go about looking for monsters to destroy. That it would be, as earlier people like John Winthrop had made a point, a city on a hill. You would assist in other countries' aspirations, but you would not go about trying to uh, intervene on other countries' uh, internal domestic problems. The one, you know, the British Empire, <laughs> which always was a supranational empire, was never, and I think Alex has made the point with UK column, the British Empire was never something that was purely emanating from the British nation. It was always, it was willing to destroy British people as much as it was Africans, Indians, Irishmen, or, uh, or Americans. It didn't really matter. As long as this was a supranational, above, above nations entity that would have penetrations utilizing its controls of finance. The city of London, like today, was back then still in a nerve center of global, uh, global commerce, global finance. This is not a new thing. Uh, its controls of intelligence agencies, the ability to create various fifth columns in various countries that you wish to undermine from within. Um, this is what the American Revolution both broke free from, but also what tried to pull America back into its fold. I mean, it, people think, oh, 
you know, just like after World War II, Britain after after 1776 or 1783, they just let America go free. And America, this is the simplistic education we Canadians often get, um, our British education, that America just became immediately the new slave-owning white supremacist society uh, of individualism that uh, we, we Canadians, we kept our hands clean of that and never had a dirty revolution. Thank God, praise the queen. No. Um, the, the fact was that Britain never forgave the rebellious colony because there was an example that had been set for other countries to also become republics, to stand on, the, on their own two feet. And I think most importantly, to adopt political economic systems that would involve national controls of banking, the emission of public credit for great projects that would uplift the quality of people's lives, both spiritually, mentally, and physically. Um, great infrastructure projects were never done by purely letting, you know, the, the private financiers just do something. Private financiers on their own never allowed for any nation to develop infrastructure in that way. Um, so it was always done by this type of program, this long-term thinking, 10, 20-year programs. Um, so there was always a fight to, on the one hand, reabsorbed corrupt, corrupt nations like America, like countries that had been inspired by the, the U.S. example, to destroy them and, and reabsorb them. Um, and I, I just mentioned 1945 quickly, and I, I didn't follow up on that. We're often told that Britain stopped being an empire also. That's another mythology of history in 1945. And they decided to let you know, America coming out of World War II was going to be the new global, new British empire. And uh, Britain just get let their colonies go free. And, you know, now it's been this unidimensional America bad empire. And this is this very simplistic history we've been fed decade after decade, and it's wrong. And the good thing, I think, with our current crisis is it's shocked a lot of people to begin thinking more about the nuance than they had been formerly when times were apparently a, a little bit more stable. Um, there are, at recent terms, deep state has been a term often used and bandied about, and that's a fine term to use, but that there are these two Americas fighting each other. What was it that killed John F. Kennedy? What was it that killed his brother? What about, why, what was Franklin Roosevelt and Henry Wallace trying to do in opposition to Churchill and Keynes and the British Empire earlier, when before Roosevelt died while in office, and uh, uh, you know Henry Wallace was was essentially destroyed and called a, a red commie. Um, what about Warren Harding, when who died also in office in 1923? What about uh, McKinley, who died in 1901? What was he doing? What were what was Warren Harding and McKinley doing? What to revive Abraham's system, Abraham Lincoln's system? of protective tariffs, of um, credit emissions through new types of uh, state banking uh, for big projects, helping other countries to stand on their own two feet. Um, Lincoln himself, what was he doing? Did he have a global process in his mind as well as something that America could help uh, to, to liberate the world, not just, a, not just itself of slavery, but the world of the slavery of colonialism, which he saw. In his speeches, you could see this as two sides of the same thing. Um, I, I skipped over Garfield, who also died in 1880. Um, and, you know, we can go back to ha President Harrison in 1840, who died while uh, fighting to revive the Third National Bank, which was signed into, it was passed in the Congress and the House of Representatives and the Senate. Um, 
it was passed as a bill to revive a national bank, which was on his desk when he died after three months in office in 1840, or Zachary Taylor uh, in 1851, who also died. Eight presidents and Bobby Kennedy. What were, what was going on, right? There's this wonderful, I mean, wonderful, sometimes scary, but very empowering history that we're, we're not given access to uh, by this, again, imperial education system, which has glossed over and trashed the battles of history that would give us a sense of what to do, how to diagnose the current situation we live in today. So I do have uh, some things I want to show. Um, just quickly, I want to just, as Alex was speaking, I uh, decided that it would be appropriate. Since we're, we're now thinking about systems, not about pairwise interaction of parts, but rather systems as one singular chemistry, one periodic table of elements. So if you're going to look at one element or another, you cannot do it competently without having the whole in your mind. This is, I think, a good starting point based on what I just said, what Alex just said. In 1890, a map was produced by um, an individual named William Gilpin, whose work is, again, scrubbed out of history. This map was, was published in a book he wrote uh, called The Cosmopolitan Railway. And as you can see, it says, Gilpin's American Economic Just and Correct Map of the World. And I, I had seen this many years ago, and I just never really looked more into it. I, I thought it was an anomaly. But I didn't look into who Gilpin was. I didn't look into the world's chemistry of what was the potential, what was the fight in 1890. This is just a decade before William McKinley was killed. It was a decade after Garfield was killed. It was a decade after Tsar Alexander II was assassinated by an anarchist bomb. Um, this was an age of assassinations. This was an age of potential before World War uh, I and the color revolutions which uh, were sparked in Russia in uh, 1905 and again in 1917, funded by people like Jacob Schiff. Uh, even people like Lord Milner was a, uh, a financier behind the Bolshevik revolution originally, and that was its own story. But this is before that. So what does Will William Gilpin feature in his book? It's an interconnected network of rail and industrial corridors that he describes in depth, as well as the financing mechanisms of how this would be brought about. Uh, stretching through the Bering Strait, and what you see is a continuation of the transcontinental railway that Lincoln had begun in 1863, the same year that Tsar Alexander II had de deployed the, the Russian Navy to the coasts of the United States during the Civil War, right when America, when Lincoln had invoked the greenback system to break free of private monopoly or private uh, Wall Street and London banks that were trying to uh, provide usurious destructive loans impossible it would be impossible for the u.s to take out uh, to pay for the war that again britain had gone far to uh, organizing as a divide to conquer strategy um so the extension of rail from the transcontinental that had been finished in 1869 through british columbia british canada through alaska that had been sold by the the russians in 1867 in uh, may to the americans um and then through the hundred kilometer gap uh, and two little islands, big and little Diomede, into uh, into Russia, into Siberia, and down into Asia. Uh, and as you can see, there's a connecting line as well from Asia, from China, east-west through Europe, with connecting points uh, through the Middle East, uh, through India, as well as into Egypt and Africa. Um, Gilpin 
understood things better than we do today. Uh, he was living it. He was living on the front lines. He was Lincoln's bodyguard. He was the first governor of Colorado Territory. He largely helped save the Union at a time when a, a, a Western Front was about to be opened by the Confederacy. He, while governor, did save the Union there. He was known as the father of Manifest Destiny. He was the first, the earliest champion of the, uh, or among the first, of the Transcontinental Railway begun, that he began championing in 1840, 20 years before it was begun. And he was part of an international network of people in Russia. Keep in mind, the Trans-Siberian Railway was built with American-made cars and, and material from Philadelphia, Baldwin locomotives. That was what was rolling through Siberia in uh, the early 1900s. Um, Russia saved the United States largely by deploying their fleet. Why? To tell as a message to Britain and to French imperialists stationed in Mexico and in Canada that if they were to openly go now and back the Confederate South, this, this would be a casus belli against Russia. So there was a great brotherhood. People think of America-Russia relations purely from Cold War filters, and they forget that, you know, the history of Russian-American relations were very different. And even, you know, going back another 80 years before this, or 100 years before this map was produced, it was Tsar Alexander, uh, Catherine the Great working through uh, her collaborator, uh, Ekaterina Dashkova, who was the president, the first female president of the Russian Academy of Sciences, who had organized the League of Armed Neutrality that ensured success for the American cause. Uh, this was largely a, 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 a flank by Benjamin Franklin. So the idea of U.S.-Russia friendship, as well as Germany friendship, you know, keep in mind Otto von Bismarck was applying at this time as well the Frederick List system of protective tariffs, the Zollverein, the, uh, the customs union. This was done by Frederick List, the, the economist who had studied in the United States, who had studied Alexander Hamilton's solutions to the, the early uh, chaos years after the, the American Revolution. And he and List, after returning back to Germany from five years of studying in the United States in the 1830s, was able to provide this gateway to unify the atomized, very, uh, I mean, Germany was not a, a nation state in that period. And it was unified by a protective tariff with free trade within, but a protective tariff uh, from without to prevent for the from the dumping of cheap goods or speculative attacks by the city of London that had always kept Germany at war with itself and, and underdeveloped. And internal improvements like rail, industrial development internally with state credit. So this was done with the American model of political economy in mind that Lincoln had done, that Germany had done, that Russia had done. Uh, Mendeleev, I brought up chemistry. Uh, Dmitry Mendeleev, the founder of the periodic table, um, who worked very closely with uh, Sergei Vita, uh, the premier of, of Russia, the finance minister, who largely orchestrated much of the Trans-Siberian Railway. Vita Mendeleev himself was on the committee. He was the head of the Committee for the Protective Tariff of Russia. Who, he came to the United States in 1876 for the centennial with thousands of other delegates from around the world, from Japan, from France, got Sadi Carnot's cabinet, like Gabriel Henneteau studied this. And they brought back the experience of how the Americans were able to recover from their, their uh, civil war so quickly and become the industrial leader. What was their policy? What was the spirit? What was this, the, the philosophical way of thinking that allowed this? And it was done internationally. Now, the thing I want to point out is that 
though Alexander II and the third both died, both likely, I mean, one guaranteed by, by assassination, the second one likely by arsenic poisoning in the 18, late 1890s, there was still momentum to connect the rail through the Bering Strait and even Nicholas II, all the way in, until uh, March 1906, had funded American engineers to do surveying on the connection of the Bering Strait Railway. So this was moving very close. And this is, again, Vita's brainchild, uh, along with Gilpin. So here, I'm just going to do a stop share. So what you had was potential being actualized for a world, a community of sovereign nation states, a family of republics working on win-win cooperative benefit. So the idea was that you didn't, to get the British system, was always founded upon a worshipping of money and getting people to, on the one hand, divide themselves both physically and also intellectually, right? Be divided uh, in, in, in many ways, metaphysically as well as physically, so that they would be better conquered. Um, this other type of system was based upon an idea that was more than the sum of its parts, that the whole, that if you were going to get wealth, you didn't have to steal it from somewhere in a zero-sum game. That's the the imperial view of wealth is if I'm going to be wealthy, it's there's only a limited amount of, of the pie is only so big. So if I'm going to have more pie, someone else must have less pie. Um, the American system, which I, I mean, this, this goes back even before this to Colbert's of France. It had been something that had been evolving and, and, and finding new modes of expression for many, many centuries, even before the revolution. Um, this is a different idea that there was a gestalt that, the, that society as a whole, the world was like a gestalt, a thought, which was by its definition more than the sum of the parts, right? Um, the body of humanity is more than the cells of the individual body. There's something, there's a life spirit, a, a, a metaphysical essence that, that gives vitality and purpose um, and design and harmony to the parts and how they work together. So nation states and the science of economy were understood in very similar terms. Um, this is something which, um, the the uh, the previous speaker Alex had brought up the example of the uh, the 1922 Rapallo Accords. Mm -hmm. If you look at who was organizing the Rapallo Accords, that would have put an end to the hyperinflationary blowout of Germany by and also basically wiped out the Versailles Treaty unpayable debt payments, as I've also gone through in my previous presentation. Um, you had people like Walter Raffenhal, the the finance minister, and his assistant. Kurt von Schleicher, who was, who was both played an instrumental role in that. At that time in 1922 to 24, um, this is again, German-Russian relations that were, were the key backbone to a new, a new world that could have been brought, in, brought online. You also had Warren Harding in the United States fighting against the League of Nations at this very same time, who had not yet died of oyster poisoning <laughs> on a train from Alaska. Um, you had over 300 German uh, statesmen at this period who were assassinated by anarchist deployments. And anarchism was something that had been developed and honed from the 1800s by people like Giuseppe Mazzini, Lord Palmerston, who had organized a, a European-wide and American-wide array of young Europe movements. Uh, young America movements became things like the Confederacy, young, young uh, Americans as part of the Giuseppe Mazzini Freemasonic Network which Palmerston largely led, as, who was the head of the British uh, Empire. Uh, 
this, this these, were, these were people like Albert Pike, the Confederate general who went far to re, to establish the KKK terrorist organization inside of the USA, who had reorganized Scottish Rite Freemasonry under his morals and dogma. This is what was brought in as a secret police force after McKinley was murdered with uh, Jared Hoover, who became a, a leading figure within this as well throughout the uh, you know the twentieth much of the twentieth century. So you you have this coalition. What was the what was Lord Mackinder? who was a leading Fabian who worked very closely with Lord Milner. What was Lord Mackinder writing about uh, before in, the, in, the, in the, the days and months and even years before World War I was, was sparked artificially? He was warning of the danger, the, most, the greatest danger to the British Empire's existence. And keep in mind, the British Empire is a maritime empire. It can only control the world. This tiny little sociopathic network on a tiny little island could only control the world by keeping everyone dependent on unpayable rates of debt debt slavery and maritime sea trade that the British controlled all of the major nine or 10 choke points of maritime trade. If nations began to develop their internal capacities through rail development, industrial development, they would break free if they utilized their rights as a sovereign nation to un cancel unpayable usurious debt or emit national credit for projects uh, backed by the, the nation itself then that would break nations free of Britain's control. So what did Mackinder say was the greatest threat to the British Empire? A Russia-German-US alliance. The people who were organized in the Rapallo Accord were people from Germany who were part of the Frederick List Society. The Frederick List movement was very strong internationally, including in Asia. People like Sun Yat-sen, you know, just to give, put this in mind as well, right? The Chinese Revolution of 1911, organized by Sun Yat-sen, who was a Christian, who had studied in the United States, who brought back uh, an understanding and a strategy into China to overthrow the hereditary systems of the, the Manchu dynasties. And he brought in a system that he called the three principles of the people. He had studied Hamilton, he had studied Lincoln, he had studied Frederick List, and he was clear about the importance of a protective tariff and great projects like he was even talking about in his International Development of China in 1919. He warned of uh, trusting the British that would carve up China quickly if the intelligentsia of China would, would be so stupid as to uh, work with the British after the century of humiliation. That was still happening. And the opium wars and everything else had carved up Britain, right? Um, and he had in his International Development of China programs of rail and industrial development in ports that involves reawakening the old ancient Silk Road that was there in his 1911 book, animated by his studies of Lincoln's A Nation, A Principle of a Nation for by and of the people. That would be the animating principle that would make this work. Um, unfortunately, he died a little bit too young. Um, unfortunately, Warren Harding died too young and so did Rathenhau and so did many others. But still, despite that, the push for a one world government was still subverted in 1919, right? The League of Nations was always supposed to be a one world government to replace the sovereign nation state system. And people forget that. And they think often from our world, in the world that we live in, that the empires had all of this control for so long. And it's like, my response is, you know, they, they've been planning this for, for generations and generations. And it's like, yeah, okay. There's been a continuity of, of evil intention. But if they had all of the control that so many people attribute to them, then why didn't they win? Why are we not all dead? 
Why didn't they succeed in their objectives? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's obvious, right? It should be obvious, but it has to be explicit. So it was it, it failed because there were there were American patriots fighting a back uh, fighting behind the scenes. There were European patriots and others, uh, Chinese patriots fighting against things like the League of Nations and Article 10 of the League of Nations. That was a collective security pact binding any member uh, of the League militarily into supporting the, the entire award, just or unjust, that would be sparked. So that failed. It was again attempted in 1922-23 with the uh, London conference that I went through a, a few months ago. Um, that's, these are all features in my, my book series on the clash of the two Americas. But the, the, the League of Nations and the Bank of England and the Bank of International Settlements, again, it tried to get rid of nation states during the, the height of the Great Depression. And their solution was a, a central banker's dictatorship by the, the technocratic enlightened few that would know how to manage the levers of commerce from London. That was the London Conference of 1933. Why did it not succeed? It did not succeed because Franklin Roosevelt, who was the only anti-fascist option, that all of the people who had organized, the, the senators, the bipartisan congressmen who had organized against the League of Nations since the death of Warren Harding, they had all mobilized around getting Roosevelt elected, who sabotaged that conference. He pulled the US out of all discussion um, for an international bankers uh, program. Uh, he basically said, no, we're not gonna do this. And, he, and the response was a near assassination attempt in uh, February of 1933 um, with, by a, an anarchist Freemason who tried to shoot Roosevelt. His hand was hit in the audience while he was shooting and he shot Mayor Sturmak of Chicago, killed him. Um, and again, the same fascists who are working with their London fascists and with the German fascists, uh, people like Prescott Bush, like the Harrimans, who would, uh, many of the people like, like Schiff, uh, the, the Morgan machine that had initiated, orchestrated the Great Depression, the, the bubbles popping in the 1929 period, who had funded the Bolshevik Revolution earlier, who had, um, these individuals tried to get a, a military dictatorship with Smedley Butler, the general, to basically overthrow the government and install a puppet dictator, which anybody can go to YouTube and listen to this brave General Butler uh, educate the people of America in 1934-35 about what had happened, what, how he was he being deployed, and how did he blow the whistle on this fascist machine inside of America that was running think tanks like the American Liberty League that was trying to keep America out of the war. Why? Because they had a very, very clear plan. And Alex Craner, who I also interviewed, uh, Alex, uh, Alex Craner did a wonderful trilogy on the trifold agenda for a new world order, which would involve an Anglo-American control of much of Europe and, and the Americas, um, a, a German control of the heartland, you know, Mackinder's heartland, who controls the heartland, controls the world, uh, which would involve utilizing the, uh, the Slavs as the, the slave labor society, the, you know, for the Lebensraum, the, the Japanese would have the Asia Pacific or much of it, Britain would, would control. Lord Halifax himself documented his own discussions working with Neville Chamberlain and he, would, he had discussions with, with Hitler. And Halifax directly described, there's, there's records of these transcripts of his uh, understanding with the Germans, the Nazis, that you know, Britain would, they were the best at controlling India. They would control much of Africa. Germany would control the heartland. And this was gonna, and the American fascists of Wall Street who were always beholden since 1776, they were always, they were always United Empire loyalists. 
that had established Wall Street as a, a British fifth column within the United States. They always were going to control a fascist USA and probably some of Latin America, too. That would a lot of that would be Franco and and uh, and uh, Mussolini would also get chunks. So there was a whole blueprint that didn't work. Why didn't it work? Again, Roosevelt declared war. He broke up the banks. He he used the Constitution as an active document, not just as ink on paper and forced a, a, a breaking up of speculative from commercial banks. He forced more, these bankers to go to court. Many bankers went to prison. Um, this is unheard of today since, you know, it's been 13 years since the, you know, the blowout of Lehman Brothers, 14 years. And no, no major banker, no major player has seen any punishment whatsoever. In fact, they've just gone around and created a completely new system. So this didn't happen. Again, the, there was an agenda to create um, a post-war age. And there was a fight. And this is, again, the topic of my, my volume two of the, the Clash of the Two Americas. Um, there was a fight over whether it was going to be an Anglo-American run new empire, which is what Churchill wanted, or Keynes had wanted as well. America had come out of the, the war as the only industrially powerful country. Everyone else was crippled. Um, or would it be Franklin Roosevelt's vision of converting the U.S. military for, into an arsenal of, dem of democracy and utilizing the Bretton Woods institutions at the time, the World Bank, the IMF, the GATT, the, the UN, would these be utilized as instruments to extend productive credit internationally to assist nations in developing their own Tennessee Valley authorities, rural electrification projects for Africa, India, China, South America, and beyond, as well as the Marshall Plan. Um, there are clear battle lines that were drawn and the US delegations were totally in support of helping countries stand on their own two feet and develop their own industrial sovereignty so that they would no longer be reliant on the British. Uh, Keynes had lost those battles at Bretton Woods. However, as I said earlier, Roosevelt died. He died too soon. His allies were purged. They were called red commie traitors and were witch hunted very quickly. Wallace did try, despite that, to run as a third party candidate, as a progressive party candidate with, with Paul Robeson, the great baritone singer and activist. Um, that didn't work. There was a lot of FBI sabotage, CIA sabotage. Um, and this is a period when the, the Cold War, the Americans are forgetting that just moments ago, they were allies working as, as brothers with the Russians who had sacrificed, had 25 million of their people die. The, the Americans lost 450,000. The Chinese lost 10 million um, in World War II. They'd forgotten all of that very quickly into the propaganda campaign run by the reconstituted Liberty League apparatus which didn't really disappear, as we are told in 1940, when America entered the war. They just simply changed their, their veneer, and they immediately went to work creating the Cold War, right, and the Anglo-American alliance. Nuclear bombs were unnecessarily dropped on defeated Japan as a direct message to the Russians to say, all of the plans and hopes you had with, Rus with Roosevelt, those are off now. It's a new game in town. And people like Bertrand Russell were even promoting the idea of utilizing America's third nuclear weapon that hadn't been used on the Soviet Union that had just lost 25 million people. Bertrand Russell had even said, use this as a threat to get them to submit to one world government. So the, there was a derailment of history of this beautiful world of win-win cooperation twice, right? Three times, one in 17 after the American Revolution. This was an international network of, of people who wanted to create a new paradigm. 
1776 to 83. Um, I didn't even mention Hyder Ali from Southern India who would organize the, the uh, rebellion in uh, the 1780s and 90s against the British Empire that had, or that had managed to, to pull 20% of the, the British Navy into trying to suppress the Hyder Ali Muslim rebellion. And Hyder Ali's son, Tipu Sultan, a leader of the rebellion, had sent letters in 1780s to the Continental Congress of Washington saying, we are in this together as one fight. You had Sidi Mohammed of the Emperor of Morocco who had provided um, protective, um, he basically protected American ships during the American Revolution from Barbary pirates who were working for the British, uh, the British Empire. Um, you had Poland, Polish Republicans, German Republicans, Scharnhorst, you had uh, so many, Marquis de Lafayette from France, and many more, many 20 Irish generals who all fought with the American Revolution. It was meant to be a global new paradigm for the creative evolution of human be humankind out of the system of empire and into an age of moral reason. And again, with William Gilpin a century later, um, and the, 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 what we saw with that image that I had shown of this map of, uh, of rail connecting the world with national banking, national economics, uh, that was again subverted by an age of chaos, assassinations, color revolutions and war. Again, this other near potential of an age of an international new deal with the US, China, Russia bedrock. That was what Roosevelt had initiated, a US, China, Russia bedrock to replace the systems of empire forever and provide the means for, for nations to fish, not just give them fish. The Cold War derailed all of that. And again, what we saw was the Galen networks reconstituted by people like Alan Dulles, who had always been working behind the scenes with his brother, John Foster, and with this whole fifth column inside of the USA to create um, a nightmare. So this is what was reconstituted immediately in the wake of World War II, right, in West Germany. Um, this is what was done with the Operation Gladio throughout the 1960s and 70s with terrorist cell operations that were carried out by Nazi stay-behinds protected by the CIA and MI6. Um, so this is, this is really a big chunk of that history. Now, in all of that process, I didn't mention anything about system, how this is related to the Great Reset. I'll do that now. I, I had a whole PowerPoint. I'm not going to show it. It's not worth it. <laughs> but the Great Reset is not something that just began in December, January, June 2020. This is something that was planned the moment John F. Kennedy was killed, when Enrico Mattei was killed, when Charles de Gaulle was ousted in an organized form of color revolution in France, um, when Bobby Kennedy was, was killed, when Martin Luther King Jr. was killed, and many others. Um, I didn't even go into African, Pan-African movement leaders like, like Lumumba or Kwame Nkrumah's ouster. So in the 1960s, again, there was a fight that JFK had led to, to undo the Cold War by creating a U.S.-Russia alliance to, to build and, and cooperate on a, on a common space program. The space program defined the entire economy. JFK was killed. Um, that didn't happen. The moment Bobby Kennedy was killed and the Trilateral Commission came into official power, I mean, they were, they were officially created in 1973, but really Kissinger, Zbigniew Brzezinski, David Rockefeller, they'd already been working very, very carefully in the late 60s with the Rand Corporation, with other groups inside of the United States think tanks to create a, 
artificial wars like the Vietnam War. And when, as soon as they got control in 1970, 71, and lifted the dollar, floated it from the fixed exchange rate, killed the Bretton Woods basis of the fixed exchange rate global system of currencies and floated the dollar onto the, 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 the speculative markets. At that point, a new paradigm, a new set of rules, a new operating system was brought into place of deregulation, uh, you know, increasingly, <laughs> increasingly speculation and, and momentary desires to determine the, the value of commodities and, and currency. No longer was it based upon industrial production and the world was put onto a post-industrial society. America was told that the industrial power you had, that's now a thing that you're going to export to poor countries who will be used for slave labor. They will not be permitted to develop and instead they will produce cheap stuff for us as consumers and our new ethic will be a cult of consumerism. So this is a process where you could see the, the atrophy of investments into, into infrastructure, the maintenance or creation of new infrastructure went, it collapsed completely. NASA was gutted. It went from a 4% of GDP per uh, 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 budget down to less than 0.5% very quickly. And its peak was three years before uh, the, the moon landing itself. That was the peak. It was cut every year ever since and kept always without mission, always without the means to actually carry out projects. Fusion energy funding was sabotaged, was funded. Uh, all funding was cut during this time. And so the idea was, okay, we will atomize the individuals. We'll atomize and balkanize the parts of the system, but we will keep maximum controls for the elite few of a, of a technocratic priesthood. And this is where, if you look at the early days of the World Economic Forum, of people like Klaus Schwab, whose mentor was Henry Kissinger, keep in mind, right? Uh, co-founded this, the, the World Economic Forum was co-founded by Maurice Strong. Um, they, they were presided over early on by the leading figures like Alexander King of the Club of Rome, who had created, these were the new priests of the Malthusian priesthood that had tried to use computer modeling to determine maximum human population density called carrying capacity. And they said, this is what we're going to use as the governing class to manage the, the diminishing returns of resources in the system. So in that, in that new age, this new post-1971 world, the, the economy itself was turned largely into a time bomb. We lost capitalism. It became a speculative bubble and bubbles always burst, whether by design or whether by their own, just let them do their own thing. You blow a, a hubba bubba bubble gum too much at a certain point, that will blow up in your face. It's the nature of physics. It's like that for economy too. So you unbound speculation, you unbound, uh, you basically say that vice is virtue, right? Make, making money is good. Um, don't think about the future. Don't think about the past. Just live in the now. And this type of hedonism, this new type of, of consumerism drove people rather mad, I think. And now we're living in the wake where even before coronavirus was sprung onto us, the economy was already going to collapse. Mervyn King, the former head of the, of the Bank of England, had already warned in, in September of 2019 that we were on the cusp of a financial Armageddon. The, the bailouts had begun once again to pour emergency liquidity into the insolvent banks of Wall Street and also Europe, mostly Wall Street at the time. Um, it was only, you know, this is before event 201 even. So... Everyone knows that the system, and everyone knew who was in a position to know that the system was going to collapse. It wasn't a matter of if, but a matter of when. And there has been a fight over 
who is who will control the terms and conditions and the rules of the new system? Will it be based upon a one world government, a, a, a technocratic feudal scientific priesthood, which wants to do what it had been trying to do? And all of those occasions that I just mentioned and that Alex went through, uh, get rid of nation states, the, the, the best defense humanity has ever created for ourselves in opposition to the system of, of empire, which has always been a very centralized, I mean, empire is always a very, very centralized global system above nation states with a larger capacity, power to carry out chaos. So you do need, I would say, I, I would say that you do need nation states that have a power behind them, a central power to carry out as a weapon, this fight against this type of parasitic uh, supranational entity. Yeah. The national banking system is an important one. So I'm a, I, I do think that that is an important thing to, to hold on to. Sorry, you were going to say something? I don't want to cut you off. I was going to say, yes, I agree with that. Uh, but yeah. on, uh, inside these nation states, in order to have real, true democracy, we have to have regional self-determination, so to speak. Um, but you're right. Uh, this It is probably... It is, it is not enough to be connected, to have all these regions connected with each other, but rather the nation states as a coherently organized um, group of people, basically, is the best defense against the globalists, right? Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. that's, that's correct. Yeah, and in, in that sense, absolutely. The idea of a community of principle, a community of cooperating sovereign nation states is the key. It has to be the voluntaristic principle. You cannot force this type of, you cannot force virtue, right? Virtue is something innate yeah. that, yeah. Um, so <clears throat> the idea now today, if you look at the configuration of the world as a, one chemistry, um, you certainly have not just an, a military encirclement of Russia, and Russia has made very clear um, their demand for red lines to be respected, that NATO not encroach one more inch upon their border. We know that NATO has been installing uh, so-called defensive anti-ballistic missiles, but these can easily be converted into offensive systems, which when you look at the doctrine of full spectrum dominance that has been underway, or the idea of Zbigniew Brzezinski of, uh, of um, uh, flexible response, limited thermonuclear war that permits for um, a limited amount of collateral damage of, of, of European nations, you know, allies that we, we, we could tolerate their being wiped out, but overall, some of these game theorists who are used to looking at the world from a Rand Corporation style uh, video game. My, my wife is doing a wonderful study on, on the Rand Corps right now, and it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, they look at the world like it's a video game. They think that a, a nuclear war is actually winnable under certain scenarios. They would rather it not happen. They would rather other scenarios occur instead. But this is still what is going on. And as well, it's not just Russia's perimeter, right? Look at any map. I actually had this in my, in my PowerPoint. I didn't show it. But look at in the in the Pacific, right? There's over 100,000 U.S. troops stationed that have that were launched under Obama's Asia Asia pivot. There are military bases in the Philippines, in in uh, South Korea, 20 28,000 troops, American troops in South Korea with bad missiles, both pointed at China and at Russia. You have 50,000 uh, American troops in, in major military bases in Japan. There's a policy to absorb uh, Taiwan as well as Ukraine into NATO-like, or in the case of the Pacific, it's a NATO of the Pacific that the uh, Pentagon has created under Biden called the Quad. And uh, the British have played a large role in this too, a, a NATO of the Pacific, featuring India, uh, Japan, 
They want Taiwan into this as well as a forward stationing as, as part of this encirclement, this containment and a potential point of launch against both China and Russia um, and many others. And within China, within Russia, you've had many other asymmetrical forms of warfare that have been going on for decades. That's why Russia has kicked out Soros and said that Soros is not allowed to set up his, his open society operations within Russian borders because they were caught trying to do their color revolutions within Russia, within the white revolution of Moscow that was attempted. People like Navalny are, are entities that came out of this. Um, in China as well, uh, George Soros was kicked out in 1989 for a good reason. George Soros had actually worked to get his own puppet, uh, Zhao Ziyang, to become the head of the Chinese Communist Party, and who he was the head of the government, it was a guy who co-ran a think tank with George Soros, bringing in open society, who tried to run a coup d'état in 1989. We were, we were told it's Tiananmen Square. It was actually a coup d'état being run by the CIA. George Bush Sr., then you know, who had been the head of the CIA, was on the ground in in Beijing just during that event. So was Gene Sharp, the uh, father of color revol revolutions himself. Um, so there was an attempt to create a complete Yeltsin-like uh, breaking up, a, a balkanization of China back then. Zhao Jiang was the selected guy to privatize their central bank the way, you know, and they had been doing the same thing under Gorbachev and Yeltsin in Russia. This was the, the new, the, the age of the end of history, right? The one, the unipolar age was now upon us. The end of history was here. And unfortunately, Russia succumbed and the 1990s was a disaster. Uh, George Soros' operations went into high, you know, high regard, uh, high momentum, and many of the the Warsaw Pacts were all absorbed into NATO. As NATO NATO's mission, its raison d'être was was destroyed, but it kept on encroaching on Russia's perimeter. And uh, and Russia has been working under Putin to heal itself, to fight back against this fifth column of of you know these these zombies from within who are still there. There's still there's still a fight, obviously. Um, China has also been fighting against their own fifth columns. So you you have, but most importantly, Russia and China, as well as Iran, which has just signed a $400 billion deal recently with China, as well as another deal with Iran, has become a pillar of a new type of Eurasian multipolarity, a system of cooperation based on large-scale in infrastructure projects, instead of speculating on fictitious capital. So China has built 40,000 kilometers of high-speed rail, the, the world's most fast magnetic levitation and innovated in Germany. Yeah. Germans got rid of it <laughs> and they're that extending it to other countries. <laughs> yeah, really. Eh? Uh, but it probably a sabotage, right? 20 people died in that yeah. prototype. Yeah. So um, yeah, I mean, there's been, there's been a conscious effort to induce advanced technologies to, uh, to have mishaps and to create fear of technology, fear of power, fear of nuclear. Like that's why, you know, there were sabotages in a variety of nuclear accidents as well to induce fears that people would stay within the controlled domain of windmills, solar panels, oil, coal, things that were monopolized, things that involved limits to our growth and adapting to this cage that would always be made smaller and smaller as the great resetters today are wishing that we, we do is to live in a world like animals where we adapt to a diminishing world that gets smaller and unfortunately, some countries do not want to sacrifice their multi-thousands of year civilizations on the altar of Gaia um, and are fighting for defining the terms and conditions of globalization 2.0, as my friend or as my, my colleague, uh, uh, I shouldn't say my friend, but my colleague, uh, Pepe Escobar, uh, calls it is globalization 2.0. Um, 
this is a fight. There's a fight to bring this new system online. And what it's going to look like, what this is going to be is, is still underdetermined, but the fight is on. The danger of war is real. Um, but this history is, is very alive. It's not something that just happened in the, in the past that we just study for trivia's sake. It's, it's really something that's a living thing active today. So I, I guess I would just end it there. When you first when you first said um, you explained about the two Americas fighting each other and you mentioned all these presidents plus Bobby Kennedy who died in office, some of them obviously killed, others not so obviously, but maybe killed as well. Um, is that the fight of what they now call the deep state against the people who wanted um, who wanted a new world order for the greater good of people? Not uh, money-based and not debt-ridden, but um, like the like the Roosevelt idea, the, the the Great New Deal. Is that basically what this fight is about? If that's the case, then we're dealing, then we really are dealing with a few crazy psychopaths who are trying to control the world against a much larger group of people who, unfortunately, um, seems to be, I don't know, naive so as not to understand what this small group of people is trying to do? That's not a bad way of thinking about it. I, I mean, yeah, I do think that when you, when you have, uh, there's, there's a, a, a difference between the rules-based international order of the, this, the, uh, the unipolarists uh, like Anthony Blinken and, and these, these technocratic zombies, you know, that, It doesn't mean anything. That's just that's just basically saying the new world order with with new words, uh, where everybody just obeys the rules of the United States and uh, Britain. Mm -hmm. I would say Britain because I mean, at the end of the day, it's the it's the financial oligarchy centered in London that has been running the USA. But whatever, we'll use word. The words are are limited. So it's the same um, basically. basically. Yeah, and and the whole apparatus associated yeah. with that. It's it's mm -hmm. it's, it's a multi-dimensional apparatus. But beyond that. You have the those who are defending the the United Nations Charter. So whenever you hear the leadership of Russia or China speaking about international law, they're always referring to the UN Charter. If you go to the UN Charter of Franklin Roosevelt, that this was his allies that or, organized the crafting of this. It was not the League of Nations. It was not the abolishment of sovereignty. It was, in fact, the, the principle of sovereignty is enshrined in the actual constitution, in the charter itself, the principle of non-intervention um, by any government into another government. These are principles that are embedded as, uh, it's, it's, these, are, these are absolutely true and very important. It's antithetical to the idea of the new world order that necessitates a Hobbesian power impose itself onto the weak. Mm -hmm. um, so, You know, you you have right now, yes, a fight over two different operating systems. One is based upon an idea of a closed system, uh, a zero-sum game with diminishing returns for, a, you know, an, an ever small sociopathic elite. And the other one is based upon a non-zero-sum open system game. One is entropic. One is governed by the, the rules of entropy of the second law of thermodynamics. It's like a machine, right? Mm -hmm. If you put a, a certain amount of, of gasoline into your tank, Over time, as your as your pistons move and burn energy, there's always going to be less energy to go back into keeping the machine going, and it's going to be defined teleologically, like the the future empty tank will be defining its moments, and it won't change its architecture or its design to become a better engine producing more energy. It'll always be dying. They want they assume that that's the the machine of humanity. 
that ecosystems, human economies, even galaxies, they, they, they try to impose this type of system, closed system, un anti-creative um, yeah. idea onto what they want to control. And in their world, no, new, new creative discoveries that human beings uniquely do when we are not thinking like computers. We make eureka leaps out of logical systems and into gestalts, right? Mm -hmm. uh, real creative thought concepts that are solution concepts and translate that back into new technologies. This is something that they see as unnatural and disruptive to their equilibrium. They are committed religiously to mathematical equilibrium. That's like the priesthood of transhumanism. The fourth industrial Re revolution is a revolution of mathematical equilibrium. <laughs> That's not the way the universe works. It is, a, no. by all evidence, it is a creatively moving directional universe that has purpose, order, harmony built into it. Um, and we are a reflection of that creation that, you know, this is this is at the heart of the U.S. Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. Yes. If you read those writings, I completely agree with that. Um, but that also means that they cannot win unless they keep us in the dark, which uh, they obviously can't, because I think this time they have overplayed their hand by creating the the pandemic. Because now people. Many people have been awake before, but more and more people are really waking up and asking questions and wanting to listen to what you have to say, what Alex has to say, uh, to understand what is going on. Once you wake them up, they and once they start to ask questions, there's no stopping them. So I don't think they have a chance to win, but we have to keep, we, we, we must not uh, panic, we must not be complacent, of course, because we cannot just sit uh, uh, at the sidelines and wait for things to happen. We have to do our thing. We have to uh, be part of this uh, monstrous war, I suppose, uh, and understand what's going on. If we don't understand, including the historical backdrop, uh, if we don't understand, we won't be able to act accordingly. Absolutely. I Absolutely. I couldn't agree with that more. Right. Alex uh, just messaged me. Oh, sorry. Yeah, go on. Um, I, I was just interesting because like here in this, uh, you know, what we had as an information beforehand, like you mentioned various types of warfare, like this um, sort of like um, um, uh, social engineering manipulation kind of and like economic warfare and um, then also the this full full spectrum dominance kind of ideology, ideology as a base for like uh, controlling or like um, inciting war or like going that direction. Do you think this is maybe at the moment is that all going, I mean, it's some part of it is a little bit different players, you know, as I'm like, would, mm -hmm. who would uh, go for in, into this uh, each direction. So do you think they have some sort of like um, coordination, like in the in the top uh, or, or would, would they also do this like um, kind of contradicting one another? So having like a a problem that you know you have various things going on at the same time and they're even like fighting one another with these different oh, yeah. approaches uh, no absolutely i mean there, there's a there's a, a degree of incompetence uh clearly uh behind this as well i mean within this as well you have to take factor that in i mean just look at the fact that the 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 disputes occurring right now i mean around getting the entire, all the NATO countries on board with the narrative of Russia is about to invade Ukraine. They can't even get Ukraine to get on board with that, you know, and they're the ones who put Ukraine into power in 2014. Uh, and now the, the Ukrainian defense minister is saying, actually, we don't really have any evidence that Russia is about to invade. 
that that's that's an important player you want to have on board with the narrative. Exactly. Croatia is saying, you know, if they do this, we're not giving any soldiers in. We're we're not. I don't care about you know the collective security garbage. Uh, Germany and, and France are like they're they don't want to be caught in the crossfire of a nuclear war, and and so they've like initiated. Uh, with Russia and Ukraine, a revival of the uh, the Minsk agreements discussions, at least, which are moving somewhere. Um, so there's just there's incompetence, there's infighting. You know, there's a, a lot of members of the elite are realizing that it's not in their benefit to go along with this game in the context of an energy crisis where they're going to also be undermined by having Nord Stream two cut and in the middle of like Christ, we're going into an ice age for crying out loud. You know, um, people are going to die by 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 just freezing to death um we need energy uh, and and so there's infighting the the and i actually get a certain amount of uh happy not happiness i guess solace when i look at the fact that the best puppets the best managers that the oligarchy can find to put into positions of power in the united states like look at look at anthony blinken look at biden this this yeah. nothing there's there's nothing there or justin trudeau or the defense minister of germany yeah. this is the best that they could find to manage their system i mean <laughs> but, but why is that i think that the, the the quality of the politicians has really deteriorated over over time how, how oh, is yeah. that is it is it so tough to find these people that you can still manipulate because others are not available for this anymore or how does well, it here's the thing. I, my thinking on this has been that you know when the the, the when the oligarchy deploys cultural uh, warfare onto its victims to make the victims that they wish to suppress more susceptible to their sophistry, um, that involves a corruption of education, a corruption of different cultural institutions that would make people more myopic, more atomized, more hedonistic, less able to use their innate deeper powers of insight and reason. Um, they also will tend to, as a consequence, brainwash or it, that, that will touch their own progeny there. And here we are two, three, four generations after the thinkers like Bertrand Russell, H.G. Wells. And if you read the, the quality of, of writing coming out of an H.G. Wells or Bertrand Russell, that is some rigorous, disciplined stuff. Today, you don't find anything similar to that. The, the, there's a level of self-induced stupidification, which for me is only more scientific evidence that the oligarchical system itself runs contrary to the laws of nature, of, of, of nature's own law, because it can only, when it gets what it wants as a parasite kill, you know, sucking on a host, it can only destroy the host and thus also destroy itself, which is where you get these periodic uh, dark ages in various cultures throughout history which is the consequence of the oligarchy getting what it wants is it self-destructs. That's it. And once again, this, this is another case in point uh, that proves that uh, Professor Matthias Desmet's theory is correct. Because when we're talking about totalitarianism, it's always self-destructive. And it shows how self-destructive it, it is. I mean, look at our foreign minister. She is an idiot. She doesn't even know how to talk. <laughs> yeah, I'd leap in on this point. Sure. Yes, of course, you, your uh, foreign minister lied that she was a Fulkerrechtler. <laughs> she'd, she'd been to the London School of Economics, whereas the only proven fact in her CV was that she was a trampoline champion in her teens, right? <laughs> no, but Matthew's <laughs> taken a very important turn here because he's talking about energy. Now, mm -hmm. I don't want to pitch my own stuff because Matthew has really done a superb job. And, and I know as a professional interpreter how hard that is to interpret. So like you yourself, Rhino, your interpreters behind the scenes are doing wonderful professional level uh, output there. But he's talking about energy. 
as the key thing. Now, a, a, a talk I gave a couple of years ago in London is easily found on YouTube if you search for Alternative View 9.1. It's a follow-up, obviously, enough to a talk I gave called Alternative View 9. So if you put Alex Thompson Alternative View 9.1 into YouTube, you'll find it. I call the Anglo persuasion that we've outlined today in that talk the Aristotelians for short. And I call the progressive France list persuasion, which historically was more Prussian and early American thinking, I call that the Platonists. You have to use some terms for short. But one of the key things I bring out there, and I'm very indebted to Joseph Farrell, F-A-R-R-E-L-L, -L, for the best research on this, he reads German and Russian, is that the Anglo elite was very interested in using the Third Reich to develop energy projects around Ige Farben and then to extricate the goods of those after the war with Operation Paperclip. We have a couple of indications that they were close to what in layman's terms could be called free energy, although there's, there's many um, caveats to that idea, but in other words, harvesting energy in order to defy the effects of gravity locally. We know that they were pretty close to that because they had this weapon, which was described as Kriegsentscheidend, decisive for the course of the war, which, which was known by the soldiers uh, who worked on it as die Glocke or der Bienenkasten, the beehive or the bell, because it buzzed. Where did this stuff go? Well, it went to the USA, where they've pretty much admitted now that they have craft that can replicate uh, these, these effects. But there's also a German tail end to this story, which is, have you ever heard of Otrag? No. No. Otrag is Orbital Transport und Raketenaktiengesellschaft. Otrag was a 1970s German company which came up out of nowhere, suddenly got a concession for 5% of Zaire, as it was then called, under Mobutu. 5% of Zaire is the same size as the DDR. Mobutu gave them permission, this obscure Stuttgart company that produced what the Germans called Billigraketen, alternative technologies, to, he gave them permission to clear the natives out of their villages in this territory, and Otrag spent their time trying to develop this alternative launch technology unexplained. Nobody really knew about this until Gorbachev, uh, blew the whistle on it. Ultimately, Gorbachev is a, is a deep state globalist himself, right? But he, as a kind of getting his own back at the end of the Cold War, he said, oh, the Germans have their own high technology and their own space race. It's called Otrag and it's buried in Zaire. A very obscure element, but since you're a German-based investigation, you might want to look into that because if anyone in Germany can tie that together, you may have an indication from the personalities around that who in Germany were the stay-behinds, who didn't go with Operation Paperclip, so others went to Britain, France, and the Soviet Union, right? The, the, the geniuses who didn't get extricated or, or uh, executed, they may have developed some kind of energy technology which was allowed to be used in West Germany via this Otrag. Well, you know what? This is extremely interesting because right at the start of this pandemic, someone approached me in my office and told me about this secret energy pro uh, project. He, he didn't name any names, so I don't, I, at least I don't think, because if he had, it would have sounded familiar to me when you mentioned Otrag. But I think that's what he was talking about. The results of this must be there. That's at least what he said. I mean, he didn't claim it's from Otrak, but it can't be any other source, in my view, from what you're saying now. I'm going to look into this. We all will. Yeah. All I can say is if you talk to uh, people from any serious intelligence service, like the, the top five would be uh, America, Britain, France, Russia, Israel, 
to some extent Germany since the Second World War, they all say, well, we have a team somewhere in our national apparatus which goes around following these advanced craft. Yeah, I don't want to get into UFOs for its own sake, but let's say that the most sensible line you can take on UFOs, which is that developed by Jacques Vallée in America, Frenchman by origin, is this idea that there's military use of high technology, the, the principles of which were worked out in the early 20th century. The details were worked out by Third Reich physicists. The fruits of it were taken to the Allies, the Western and Soviet Allies after the war. And not all of this stuff, we, need to, uh, we, we, we don't need to accept that all of this stuff is alien, right? It could be something like a high physics psychological operation to scare people and ultimately to funnel them towards one world government. But it ties into what Matthew is saying because the ultimate game plan of what I call the Aristotelians, the Anglo-Saxon world to path to world government is, look, face it guys, there are shortages. Um, we need to reduce population, lower your expectations, live in poverty, etc. And uh, the more uh, productive line to world government would be this, this use of energy, as I say. So it's, it's a very dark area, but I think the time has come to start looking seriously into it. What do you call the other side, Aristotelia? Yes, because Aristotle, among the Greek philosophers, very roughly speaking, or his later followers, say uh, nature is limited and finite, mm -hmm. and therefore we need small government, and there are good arguments to be made for this. So historically, this has been uh, the, the position particularly of Protestantism and of the Anglo-Saxon world. And by that same token, also the northern half of Germany has been in this mold, right? Mm -hmm. the, the dominant position, though, including when Germany united in Bismarckianism, is more associated with Eurasian land powers. And that's the idea, as Matthews outlined extremely well, that by improving our infrastructure, also known as the American system under Hamilton and later Washington, uh, um, uh, Lincoln as well, that we can actually improve our, our lot. The, ultimately, you are facing a finite world, finite resources, but the artificial reduction of quality of life is a particular strategy of the Anglo elite, which I call the Aristotelians. Plato was much more of the idea of, yes, he did, did believe in, a, in an elite, quite a nasty elite in the end, uh, but, but the Platonist model has mu been much more popular in Germany and Russia, and it's the idea that we share with the people some of the fruits of our technological research. We make them feel that we're on an advancing national project. That's early America, pre-Civil War America as well. Yeah, can I just add one, one thing? I, I, know, I know we've overextended the time, but I, I would like to add a little thought to that as well. Um, the, the paper that if people want to stick, sink their teeth into this, I, I've become familiar with this too over the years. And I found personally that one of the most useful uh, essay studies that I'd ever encountered that showcased the uh, differentiation between the Aristotelian uh, versus Platonic uh, movements throughout the ages was a 1978 document uh, that I'd found. I, I'm sure people can get it easily by just typing secrets known only to the inner elites by the late uh, American economist, Lyndon LaRouche. He died in 2019. Mm -hmm. uh, but that work was a, a, a fantastic study on universal history as understood by a, a battle between opposing paradigms of elites um, that see the world, that see human nature in very different ways with the Aristotelian being much more based upon an idea of empiricism that, you know, in the Aristotle world, truth is located through defining things in a crystallized way. If you want to know what justice is, well, Aristotle will tell you there's a justice for the slave, a justice for the master. And he will also say that master-slave relations are built into nature. That is, you know, whereas in the Plato world, it's much more process verb-oriented. 
where there's never a solid crystallized answer provided in any of the platonic dialogues. They're given as a form of in inquiry into paradox and seeing where your own hypotheses break down when pressed up against reality. And so in the platonic world, you could have things like the Mino dialogue with a child who's a slave demonstrating greater, greater powers of creative uh, creativity and reason than the slave master, Mino himself, who's not able to, to do a very basic geometric proof that the slave is, boy is able to do. And in so doing, he's demonstrating the obsolescence of the elitist master-slave uh, structure without, without getting at it directly. And when you look at the writings of Benjamin Franklin or any of the founding fathers or many of the people who make history happen in an upward and you know positive way, you'll find a, a platonic understanding mm -hmm. or mode modality. And of course, Linda LaRouche, uh, who was very keen on America to go into space for peaceful purposes as well, uh, died a couple of years ago. His widow, Helga Zett, is still very much in the German political scene. And she has uh, a group around her who are very keen on rediscovering the potential of classical music um, and the, the, the legacy of Schiller, the positive side of the German Enlightenment. So um, I, find, I find that those people have a lot of good stuff to say. Uh, I, you know, as a, as a Christian and in many other ways, I don't like some of the conclusions they come to. I have to be honest about that. But they were some of the first and the boldest in the 1970s, the LaRouche movement, to say that the British crown had a corporate underbelly that made its money from sexual slavery and drugs. And they were proved absolutely right time and again. Oh my God. Well, it's really crazy. I get a very strong matrix feeling here <laughs> that, that it's really like, I don't know, like uh, where we are at this point. And I do you know, I remember uh, like uh, Nick Bostrom. I mean, he's a he's a um, transhumanist, but I thought it was an interesting concept that he once uh, like in a in a, uh, in a in an article proposed, or, you know, that we might be living in an ancestor simulation so that in the in the <laughs> our ancestors ancestors might have set up a computer game now playing their own past and for some reason it feels very surreal right now i mean listening to all that you know what i just a, a short remark i wanted to make on this creativity thing you know i think it's um i see this like that we have to tighten our belly and um our belts sorry to uh and and not to um to uh you know what Ida Orkin says i'm go i I'll, i own nothing and i'll be so happy about it um i think this is also a little bit an attack on like creative on the you know creativity of of humankind because of i mean okay if i don't own anything i don't believe in 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 consumerism obviously you know and but it's not only that you own stuff to consume but it's also that you need to own stuff to or have access to stuff to create things and i think we as as a humankind we're also you know we have a strong um, impetus, I think, to resolve also like physical, like real problems that are around us. And for that, um, you know, like in, uh, interfering with, with nature or like working with nature. And um, if you don't have any materials to do that, you're completely independent, um, de completely dependent on like the stuff that others provide for you. And I think we're not only there to produce like creativity, uh, creative things like with our heads, like, I mean, you know, creating like text and and uh, figures or like formulas or so but i mean we we've come to this world with a body we're not just a beam of light so i think it's it's really like um what we are supposed to do is also to to take the world but not in like um explore um exploiting it or like killing it but like sort mm. of making use of what the what nature what the world has to offer to us and like create social 
sculptures and create things also with a head, like involving a body. And that's what and indeed, is Indiana, killing that, that's us. Why. Or even though having grown up in a in a British and a Protestant context, I was predisposed in my education to believe the Aristotelian view of history. And uh, you know, there's there's perennial shortages of everything and whatever. In the end, as I said in my Alternative View nine point one talk, I regard it as a more godless kind of elitism than any Prussian or Platonist kind. Ultimately, it despises the physicality, or sometimes in English we call it the corporeal, the bodily nature of mankind. We go right back to Gnosticism and Hermeticism, the ancient mystery religions here, uh, because they despise the physicality of God's creation. And they say that the, the, uh, the game plan is to become uploaded into the cloud, as they would now say, you know, yeah. that, that leave our bodies behind us. And to the extent that bodies are useful, they're only useful because we can then possess the bodies of the plebs and make them our slaves. Yeah, yeah? That, that's, that's a long-term satanic plan. So and, and that, that even, even the worst that the Prussian model can be, you know, with, with totalitarianism, it's still not as bad as, as ruled by this Aristotelian uh, creation-denying agenda. I agree. And if you listen to, the, if you look at the writings of St. Paul um, within the Bible, it, there, there's concepts that are very clear that all is spirit, you know, that, that what we perceive to be matter, taking it from the opposite standpoint, that in fact, there is no dichotomy between the spiritual and the material world, that, that matter itself is one particular state within an otherwise spiritual existence. There's no empty space between objects with forces pushing or pulling the way a Newtonian or an Aristotelian would presume based on your five senses. That truth is not within your five senses. Empty space is an illusion. If you And it's true, right? When you actually, as we've discovered more of an appreciation for the full electromagnetic spectrum outside of that small bandwidth of what the eye picks up, there is an ocean of, of different plasma, of, of, of cosmic radiation, of uh, different radiations all throughout all of uh, between the planets, between the galaxies. And I mean, why are galaxies organized in these beautiful spiral golden sections patterns, right? And we're told, no, it's all made up of these randomized stochastic atoms that have no purpose, no rhyme, no rhythm that just randomly move, but that make up these macro states of beautiful order, which is just an illusion. It's like, no, actually there's probably some coherence between galaxy formation and atomic behavior and everything in between and how the human mind uniquely is able to synthesize understandings and willfully modify or tune our souls and our behavior in accordance with what we discover and transmit that to future generations. Animals are great, but they don't do that. You know, like they just don't have access to that. They're good for what they are. They're wonderful creations, but we have this other capability. And when we try to impose the law of the jungle onto ourselves, we, we become depressed, we become imperial, we become unhappy, we, we fall out of our nature because we're not creatures of the jungle as, as such. You know, I can't resist quoting Heinrich Heine here because one of the darkest periods in German history was just before the 1848 liberal revolution. And in that period, Heine wrote, Heine wrote Deutschland ein Wintermärchen. Yeah. And it looked like Germany was never going to become a modern state and compete with the British and the Americans on level terms, right? And he wrote this wonderful quatrain. Franzosen und Russen gehört das Land, das Meer gehört den Briten. Wir aber besitzen im Luftreich des Traums die Herrschaft unbestritten. Right, which uh, beautifully describes that uh, you know, you've got to expand in the mind. You've got to imagine the potential. That's, that's Matthew's thumbnail sketch of the whole Platonic mm -hmm. worldview, is see the potential in creation and exploit it, rather than just say, you know, we are, we are predestined to be slaves. 
I, that's it. That's what it's all about. Uh, if we're really going to move into, and I don't think we will, I'm certain we won't, uh, into digitalism and transhuman transhumanism, it's the end of creativity. Um, I've, I think I've told this story before. I have a brother in the U.S. who is a or was a banker, and um, some 16 years ago or so. He's, he was so sick and tired of selling these financial instruments, which nobody understands, caps and swaps and other complicated stuff, to uh, CFOs of major corporations who didn't know what they were buying, but who didn't dare ask any questions because they felt, if I ask a question, then he knows that I don't understand. He said, even I didn't understand. We were just selling shit making money out of shit and he told my father at that time he, he my father was helping him in his garden uh rolling huge rocks around he said this is what i really like when i come home at night this is creativity at the end of the day meaning at the end of the night uh, i i can see what i have created and what i do at the bank is nothing i'm not creating anything i'm destroying people and that's when he again uh, when he decided to leave the banking industry yeah, this, this is true of all of us on the uk column core team to some extent most particularly mike robinson and myself because he left the city of london and i left british intelligence after an elite education and both of us found that in the modern british setup when you get to the top of the tree you're amongst guys who boast that they sell shit I would put it as bluntly as that, because that's what they're proud of. From, from public school, and which is boarding school, to Oxbridge, the whole model is, well, the best you can do is go into a bank and sell shit and, and sell slavery. And, you know, that, that's not what we used to be historically, but that's because we've made that the be-all and end-all of our political role and the, the empire we still run. It's time for us to dismantle that. Yes. And we're, I think we're on track as far as that's concerned. I think we shouldn't be. They shouldn't be selling shit, but they should. Or we have the, um, you know, the task to turn shit into gold. And I, <laughs> and I think, as a, as a humankind, I think we're on a good way to do that. <laughs> okay. Well, I thank you both. Uh, this was again very, very enlightening, and I, I think uh, I'm absolutely convinced that our viewers feel the same way because we need this kind of information in order to be able to see the full picture, the whole picture, the whole, not just pieces of the puzzle, but the whole picture of um, how how they're trying to basically fool us, creating illusions all the time, um, and make us do what we don't want to do. Once we realize that, once we realize that the enemy is not the vaccinated or the unvaccinated or the Russians or the Chinese or whoever, it's those people who are using us, using some of us as puppets. They're the real enemy, but we're onto them. We're onto them. Okay, well, Alex and Matthew, I'm very, very grateful. Thank you so much. Again, we'll be in touch. Great, thank you. Have a, have a great weekend. You too. Ja, thank you. Das war wieder ein Ritt, ne? Das ist echt. Ja. Das ist auch faszinierend. Also ich habe ja, ich hatte Physikleistungskurs, ja. Oh Mann. Ja, dir traue ich das zu, mir nicht. Naja, also jedenfalls ich fand das anyway, faszinierend. I always found it fascinating uh, when uh, nuclear physics is uh, um, closely intertwined with astronomy and 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 this uh, was happening in space and at some stage it all becomes very philosophical as you just saw uh, now and very interesting all the puzzles that emerge 
and we don't know if the formula that have been uh, applied are all correct, um, the ones that we had at the time. Anyway, it was all fascinating. Um, and um, if you peel off another layer from this uh, whole thing that you never would have thought possible. Is that from you or, or did you make that up when you say physics becomes philosophical? Did you read that somewhere? No, it's really the case. Just say that as well. That's the way it is. Um, um, it's uh, the things that keep the worlds um, together, the heart of the matter. It's really fas fascinating. I think we're at the end for the day. We have the videos. We got a couple of videos. We got one with a doctor from America's Frontline Doctors reports on how it is tried to control the doctorship there. They're saying, no, no, we're not individuals. We are 17,000 out of the system, probably even more. The second video looks into the situation in Canada, where at least 10,000 truckers apparently uh, sent Justin Trudeau away. And the third one is just as a reminder, most of us know it, that in England, the measures have been abolished because Boris Johnson was extremely under pressure, probably because partying without masks while he um, asked his uh, fellow uh, um, uh, citizens to wear masks. And then we got a series of songs uh, which are great, great to listen to. It's not just anything going on, but it's good stuff, good stuff. And uh, from music-wise and from the vocals, it's well worth listening into it. I think that's uh, the way it is. We'll see a new form of art and um, artistic statements that um, match as well and um, less uh, celebrate the old um, than what's happening now. Well, thank you again for watching uh, and we depend on your financial support so we'll be uh, we'd be happy if you kept supporting us oval media uh, who are responsible for the technical end here also require financial support uh, in order to ensure our independence i'd say we wish everybody a, a pleasant friday afternoon and evening and a um, pleasant weekend we'll see you again but we'll be back on thursday next week because on Friday, I will be able to join. I have to take some evidence and um, that uh, witness is in prison. So I have to go there on Friday. All right, see you then. That's more than the NIH, more than the CDC, and more than the FDA. These are all signed and verified. There are powerful forces against us, as you know. The news media, does anybody trust the trusted news media? Do you trust the CDC and the FDA? Do you trust Fauci? All right. We've been fired, censored, erased from Wikipedia, but we're standing strong because we are with you. 
So today, again, we represent 17,000 doctors and scientists and humanity. We have three virtually indisputable recommendations backed by high-quality data. And I have one ask for you today. Today, you're going to hear the truth. And I ask you to have courage and join us to help our future, future generations resist this tyranny. read a report from Ontario where you said Sharia law was compatible with Canadian values. I'm like, are you kidding me? Sorry, sorry. I'm, I, I, we're going to let, let her speak and then I will. Number three, number three question, Mr. Trudeau, okay. is you've sold us out to globalism. Okay. You are not working for Canada. You are working for your globalist partners. I wonder how much they're paying you to betray Canada. Okay. What do we do with traitors in Canada, Mr. Trudeau? We used to hang them, hang them for treason. And you're doing that very same thing to us now. Okay. We okay. know what you're doing. We can return to Plan A in England and allow Plan B regulations to expire. As a result, from the start of Thursday next week, mandatory certification will end. Organisations can, of course, choose to use the NHS COVID pass voluntarily, but we will end the compulsory use of COVID status certification in England. 
From now on, the government is no longer asking people to work from home. Yeah. And people should now speak to their employers about arrangements for returning to the office. And having looked at the data carefully, the Cabinet concluded that once regulations lapse, the government will no longer mandate the wearing of face masks anywhere. Yeah. Mr Speaker. Mr Speaker, from, from, tomorrow, from tomorrow we will no longer require face masks in classrooms and the Department, and the Department for Education will shortly remove national guidance uh, on their use in communal areas. In the country at large, we will continue to suggest the use of face coverings in enclosed or crowded spaces, particularly when you come into contact with people you don't normally meet, but we will trust the judgment of the British people no longer criminalise anyone who chooses not to wear one. The government will also ease restrictions further on visits to care homes, and my right honourable friend the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care will set out plans in the coming days. Mr Speaker, as we return to Plan A, the House will know that some measures still remain, including those on self-isolation.
again. I'm in the booth again. All right then. Yo, mama, mama, don't take the vaccine. Papa, papa, don't take the vaccine. 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 Brother, brother, don't take the vaccine. Sister, sister, don't take the vaccine. 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 Children, children, don't take the vaccine. Kids, kids, don't take the vaccine. Don't take the vaccine. Don't take the vaccine. Don't take the vaccine. Don't take it. Youngsters busting rifles from the east side. East side, Bangkok. I try run and get him feet tight. He cried. Run government up by the seaside. We black no black no who? Let he try. He die. Lyrically, man, mother than jigger. Show where the gun crime scene get rid of. And time, man, a killer. Cut out your liver. Show it to the dog and make them yam that for dinner. Who the fuck is you, Faisal? Me the dark. Who the fuck is you? Chop up, rock up, Moderna in a basket. Wash it. Vaccine, no wanted. No. Sixteen, me blast. Nah, Mr. Tan. Walk it, me tan. Mama, mama, don't take the vaccine. Papa, papa, don't take the vaccine. 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 Brother, brother, don't take the vaccine. Sister, sister, don't take the vaccine. 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 Children, children, don't take the vaccine. Kids, kids, don't take the vaccine. Don't take the vaccine. Don't take the vaccine. Don't take the vaccine. Don't take it. Your mask move, you walk through. Your ass move, your ass move. Not kung fu, your big flow, your cartoon, your cartoon. We are foot soldiers. We walk it. We walk it. Foot soldiers. We march. We march. The march move. Israelis, them ass move. Me blast through. Oh, no vaccines around here. Me nah do. Nah do. Pfizer, Moderna, you tools, you fool. My body, my temple, my choice, my rules. Parents, start removing your kids from school. Satanic race, them want create from you. Only vaccine of vegetables and fruits. Fresh ear, fresh ginger, fresh orange, fresh fruit. Mama, mama, don't take the vaccine. Papa, papa, don't take the vaccine. 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 Brother, brother, don't take the vaccine. Sister, sister, don't take the vaccine. 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 Children, children, don't take the vaccine. Kids, kids, don't take the vaccine. Don't take the vaccine. Don't take the vaccine. Don't take the vaccine. Don't take it. The only people, the people, have is the people themselves. You hear me? The only people, the people's have is the people themselves. Trick O, fool O. This is a war on religion. This is a war on the children. They give you the cure with the sickness. This is a war on tradition. This is a war on religion. This is a war on the children. They give you the cure with the sickness. This is a war. This is a war. This is a war that we live in. Through never to you that they also leave and killing you. They don't tell you what the hell you agree to. She been hurting you. Know who leading you? Keep on proceeding to follow your mind is so hollow. Are you being caught by government swallowing up everything that the media tell you without a question or a problem? All of the sheep being slaughtered, they poison the water, removing the father and trusting these daughters, ignoring blue collar, keeping the dollar and washing your sons and your daughters. Ain't got any honor if I'm being honest. I just ain't picking the side, but I'm not a ride for my freedom and die for my freedom. 
and question the government lies. A lot on my mind, it's so little time. Gotta think all of us needing a sign. The devil he hides and ego and pride. They sell them, they sell them, they paying the price. God won't give you more than you can handle. Government should be dismantled. Every politician got a scandal. Prepare for the war, we going to battle. This is a war on religion. This is a war on the children. They give you the cure with the sickness. This is a war on tradition. This is a war on religion. This is a war on the children. They give you the cure with the sickness. This is a war. This is a war. I'd rather be red pill, get killed. The ignorant living in me that's still. Don't stand up for something, you falling for nothing. No way to the world that we know fall ill. This is the revelation of our generation. Losing civilization, I'm determinated. Just to liberate us with our dedication. Fuck the terminator, fuck your medication. The administration gonna alienate us or exterminate us. I'll just keep on praying for your salvation. You are outdated. Society becoming outrageous. Keep your house painted for the firstborn. The angel of death in its worst form. We being scorned. Look out for their horns. Remember, this isn't their first war. They coming prepared, so just be aware. They do not want to hear none of your prayers. This is a war that ain't playing fair. They feed off your fear. They wanting you scared. Death in despair. It's all in the air. Just be aware. You think I care? The more that you know, the more that it's clear. This is a war. It's this already is here. This is a war on the children. They give you the cure with the sickness. This is a war on tradition. This is a war on religion. This is a war on the children. They give you the cure with the sickness. This is a war. This is a war. Home of the slave to the crickets make a sound. Where's the bold and the brave? We all Where's the bold and the brave? We all have to stand our ground. This is a war on religion. This is a war on the children. They give you the cure with the sickness. This is a war on tradition. This is a war on religion. This is a war on the children. They give you the cure with the sickness.
my wife, my mommy, my daddy, my sister, my life, my granny, my uncle, my tears, my cries, my journey, my vision, my pain, my fire, my belief, my religion, my God, my light, my thoughts, my senses, my love, my life, my spirit, my passion, my sword, my life, my beauty, my nature, my strength, my fire. Hot switch off, soon as the football matches kicked off, me pissed off, the booster of the football and him a crisscross, killed off, ripped off, shipped off, blessed off, tipped off, rushed off, scratched off, a real talk. No play dumb like you don't know what I'm talking about. Go play dumb. Kill it hard, please, then I bother hard. Tell the truth. Leave all the matrix, wait quick, stop the fear. Why can't be loaded up, matrix, remove them from your mind. Acht Uhr am Kotti, ich gehe in den Rewe, ohne Maske wie immer und dann spricht mich so ein Typ an. Ey yo, hast du einen Test? Nein, dann rufe ich die Cops an. Er ist 10% Gesicht und 90% Stoff, Mann. Er sagt, gib mir deinen A-Test und ich sag ihm, ich hab's nicht. Dann droht er mir mit Rauswurf, doch ist ein Hemd ohne Kragen und hat mir echt nichts zu sagen. Opa, was willst du machen? Überall trägst du Maske. Ja für ja wird es schlimmer, rasier dir gleich noch ne Glatze. Ne Pandemie gab es nie, alles fängt du Genie. Geplant von BEF, Johns Hopkins und Pharmaindustrie. Test, 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 test. Test, 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 test. <lacht> Pfizer, Biontech, Beste. Astra und Moderna, Killer. CureVac und dann noch der von Johnson und Johnson. Beste Marke. Sie kommen und sie ficken uns, sie sind Steuergelder, Erpresser. Sie nötigen uns zur Impfung und liefern uns gern ans Messer. Also der WHO-Chef, bekannt ist ein Land für Folter. Er hat vor Strafen Register in seinem Amt als Minister, da war er wirklich sinister. Opa, was willst du machen? Überall trägst du Maske. Ja, für ja wird es schlimmer, rasier dir gleich noch ne Glatze. Ne Pandemie gab es nie, alles fängt du Genie. Geplant von BEF, Johns Hopkins und Pharmaindustrie. Steig in die U-Bahn ohne Maulkorb und Leine. Die Leute schauen mich an, als hätte ich keine Beine. Such draußen Hochschulabschluss und ob vorsichtig. Verwirrt, benimmt er sich wie Gott, wenn er durch die Charité marschiert. Sein Vorbild ist Mengele, seine kleinen Stiche bringen jeden Impfling in die Notaufnahme. Wir kennen ihn schon länger, denn seit der Schweinegrippe gibt's jedes Jahr Pandemie und eine wirkliche Todeszahle. Vila, Söder, Merkel, Lauterbach, Spahn. Was willst du machen? Überall trägst du Maske. Ja für ja wird es schlimmer. Rasier dir gleich noch ne Glatze. Ne Pandemie gab es nie. Alles fake du Genie. Geplant von BEF, Johns Hopkins und Pharmaindustrie. Verrät nicht wie Drossen. Überall sind geschockte und verängstigte Menschen, die darum andere lockte man mit Gehalt und Erfolg. Glaub mir, ihr seid so 
so deutsch wie ihr schon wieder Und hinterfragt mit Macht so obrigkeitsvoll Du verrät nicht wie Drossen Überall sind geschockte und verängstigte Menschen Wiederum andere lockte man mit Gehalt und Erfolg Glaubt mir, ihr seid so deutsch wie ihr schon wieder Und hinterfragt mit Macht so obrigkeitsvoll Ah, Transhumanisten 